Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. This is being recorded and broadcast live on March 21st, 2019. Right now the time, 9.10 Pacific Time. 9.10 p.m., that is. We have a free roll, which uh, if you're not in, you got to hurry up and get over there. It's $115 this week. $100 came from Eric Benzamogan. $15 came from... Uh, now I'm forgetting who it came from. <laughs> Other 15 came from Bust Me a Nut. Sorry about that. $115. First place gets $60. Second place gets $30. Third place gets $15. Fourth gets $10. It started at 8.50 p.m., but you can still get in with a full stack until 9.15, which is five minutes from now. It's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find that near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account in that poker room to get in, and you also need to be validated by either me or the poker room manager, Belly Buster. If you are not validated, then it's too late. You won't get into this week's free roll, but you can always shoot for next week. So 60, 30, 15, and 10 are the prizes being given away. I will send this to you by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, by other methods you might be able to think of, such as a certain service that's been around almost 20 years that is used to pay for things online. And I can also send you the money through the Cash app. If you go to cash.me, you can get a free account there. And there's no fees to use the Cash app. So you can get paid that way as well. Link it to your bank account. So those are the ways I can pay you. Or if you want to wait till the World Series, if you're going to be there, you can collect from me in person. We give money away every week on Poker Fraud Alert Radio for this free roll. No other show does this. You won't find another poker show out there which has a free roll every week that gives away money, especially one where there's not that many players competing with you. So you have a real good chance to win. It's very unique to this show, and I'm happy about that. Can't find Trader Ruski this week. Can't find Calwatt. Calwatt makes more sense. It's after midnight where he is. I'm not sure where Trader Ruski is. Uh, I texted him twice today. If he pops up, we will have him on the show. Otherwise, it'll just be me. But uh, the good news is we have... Oh, no, we have Trader Ruski. He just responded to me. Okay, good news, we're going to have Trader Ruski and we're going to have two different guests on tonight. One is a guest you've heard from a lot in recent times, and that's attorney Eric Benzamokin. He's going to help us make sense of the latest Phil Ivey story. Basically, anything having to do with uh, courts, the legal system, stuff where a lawyer would be able to make better sense of it than I could, we're going to have Eric on. And it seems like it comes up a lot in, in these stories. Because a lot of the stories that we cover here have to do with some sort of controversy or some kind of crime, whatever it might be, some kind of civil dispute. So there's a lot of times where a lawyer's input would be valuable. So he's going to come on whenever we have a segment like that, provided he can make it. So tonight he will be here for that. And we have an interview tonight with Darren Lara, who you may have heard before on this show about a year ago. He was not on live. I played a recording of Darren Lara where he did an undercover investigation into some shady behavior at the Westgate. And he sent that to me to be played on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. And I played it, and people really enjoyed that segment. Uh, by coincidence, he ended up involved in a, a pretty uh, 
difficult situation that was not his fault at all. A, a pretty uh, traumatic thing happened to him related to the Bellagio robber, which is going to be our lead story. So we're going to talk about the Bellagio robber, and, and then a bit later, we have it scheduled for 11 o'clock, because that's when he wanted it. We're going to do an interview with, uh, with Darren Lara. And... Well, I'll just tell you right now, Darren Lara was falsely accused of being the Bellagio robber in 2017, and that kind of followed him all the way until this year, where people thought he was dead. A lot of bad rumors going around about him, which were not true. We're going to hear about his story at 11 o'clock tonight, Pacific Time. If you're listening in the archives, it'll probably be eh, a little bit before the two-hour mark. The other, informa- the other uh, stuff we're going to talk about tonight... I went skiing for the last few days, uh, actually from uh, Sunday to Tuesday I skied. On Monday, I almost had a serious injury. On Monday, I almost had a really, really bad skiing accident. I can't tell you what would have happened because it didn't happen, but if it did, it was going to be pretty bad unless somehow I got super lucky and nothing occurred. Well, actually, I got even luckier in that the injury didn't happen. So I'll explain what almost happened to me and how it ended up not happening. My credit card information was stolen, not my physical card. I still have the physical card, but the information was stolen and used to buy things online. Today, I attempted to investigate who did it and wanted to see if perhaps we could bug them on the radio tonight. I'll tell you what I came up with when I investigated this today. As I mentioned, we'll talk about the Bellagio robbery, the shootout that occurred there, and uh, we'll interview Darren Lara, who was accused falsely at one point of being the Bellagio robber. The Global Poker Awards finalists have been announced, and I'm sure you're absolutely going to be very, very surprised and shocked that uh, Poker Fraud Alert was snubbed once again. Now, we, we just do so well with these poker awards ceremonies. Everybody wants to award us with things. Actually, it's the opposite. We, we never get recognized for anything. And we were snubbed once again. But there was some backlash. Not about Poker Fraud Alert, though there should have been. But there was some backlash to the nominees that were chosen. So we'll talk about the Global Poker Awards and how a lot of people are angry about them. And there might even be a competing awards in protest. Phil Ivey strikes back with a lengthy appeal motion regarding the $10.6 million judgment against him by the Borgata. We'll have Eric Benzamokin on to talk about that. Here's a sports betting fantasy story, something that uh, everyone wishes they could do. Wouldn't it be great if in sports betting you could bet very little money and come away with a whole lot of money, where you're risking very little and then the reward is huge? There are such spots in sports betting, but... If you try them, you're almost sure to fail and just throw the money away. Well, one gambler bet $25 on a 20-way parlay and walked away with a very large sum of money when the entire thing won. I'll talk about that and how unlikely that was to happen. I have some news about 2017 main event player Joseph Steers. We've talked about him on this show the guy who got disqualified because he was banned from Caesars and he used a fake name to play. He had a lawsuit going. The lawsuit has been dismissed. I will tell you the ending to that story. A dealer in New Hampshire has been arrested for bottom dealing in a casino game. Not in a poker game, but in a casino game. 
where he dealt for the bottom of the deck to give a player a winning hand and was caught. A New Vegas strip casino might be coming to Vegas around the year 2022, and it's going to be in a place you wouldn't expect. It is going to be on the strip, but it's going to be replacing something that you wouldn't be expect a, expecting a strip casino to be replacing. So I'll tell you where that's going to be. The Showboat Casino in Atlantic City has been closed. Might it reopen soon, and why? We'll talk about the kind of resurgence that Atlantic City's having. Finally, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke is in the news a lot these days. He is the same age as I am, but we didn't grow up anywhere near one another. He grew up in Texas. I grew up in California. But did I know him in the 1980s? I will explain why that question is relevant. Why some people think I did know him in the 1980s. And I will give you the answer when we get to our final segment. So that's our agenda for tonight. If you want to chat in the chat room, just click the chat near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a Flash-enabled device and no iPhones or iPads because those don't have Flash. Only bother chatting if you're listening live. Otherwise, no one's going to be there. The phone number to the show, 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is our main phone number. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. That's 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808. That's the Mount Charleston line. Separate line into the show. When you do call the show, please make sure you're calling when I either say I'm accepting calls or in between segments. If you just kind of hammer me at, re- at random points during the show then I am going to not answer. And if you keep hammering it over and over, I will block you. And I don't even know on the new Skype how to unblock someone. So if you're blocked, you may have a hard time getting in ever again. So just don't do it. In fact, don't call the show unless you're listening. I have these people that try to call and who aren't listening when they call, and they just expect me to drop everything and answer the phone. It doesn't work that way. I can only answer the calls at specific times. I could answer any time, but I'm choosing not to. It's not good for the listener to just have calls interrupt segments. So we're not going to do that. You can text the show, 775-372-8355. It's our main phone number. Text me before, after, or during the show. I might read your texts on the air unless you ask me not to. The call to listen line is a number you can call to listen to the show just requires any phone that can dial, does not need a smartphone, doesn't need a data plan, doesn't need an app, doesn't need a computer, doesn't need the internet, none of that stuff. You just call up and listen with any phone in the world that can dial. 605-313-0736 is the number, 605-313-0736. If the show's not on live, you will hear our streaming reruns on there. It'll pick a rerun from our library of more than seven years worth of shows Pick one randomly and run it until it's done, and then start another one again and again and again until we come back live on the air. Other live listening options, Amazon Alexa. Say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. If you want to hear the last episode, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn. You can also just use the TuneIn app to listen live, 
or also the archives. There's two listings for Poker Fraud Alert Radio on there. One is live, one is the archives. Stitcher is another app you can use to download the show, not listen live. You can also get the show in podcast form from iTunes or Google Play, depending on your device. You can also just download or play the MP3 file of the show directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server in the radio forum. So a lot of different ways to listen. You can find all this information, including the phone numbers I just gave, on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com near the top of the screen. Just click radio. It's all right there in case you're forgetting everything I just said. So we're going to try to find Trader Ruski and then get going. And shortly after that, we're going to get to the... We'll get to the Ivy topic earlier than I was originally going to because Eric Benson has court tomorrow at 8.30. So he can't stay up that late. Hopefully we can reach Trader Ruski here. If we can't, we'll try him in a little bit. There we are. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, I'm glad I found you today. I'm glad we have you here on the show once again. And uh, you, you know, Thanks for having me. I didn't see your text earlier. I mean, I saw the announcement of the show, but I didn't know that required a response. So. No, it, it, I mean, it didn't have to have a response. My bad. I was just sending it to you. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll usually let you know if I can't be here. Yeah. Uh, no problem. So we're going to get going, and we'll do two quick topics about me. And then uh, after that, we're going to call up Eric Benzamokin and do the Ivy topic before Eric goes to sleep. And then uh, then we'll get into the Bellagio thing. And maybe that'll work perfectly to where at 11 o'clock we'll be ready to call up Darren Lara and talk to him about his experience. Anyway, let's get going here. I went skiing on Sunday. There's a lot of snow currently in the Sierra Nevadas, which are in California, Nevada. That's the best skiing is over there, and that includes Lake Tahoe. I went to Mammoth, but uh, Mammoth, Lake Tahoe, it's uh, that whole area in kind of central northern California and Nevada. That's uh, that's all the Sierra Nevada range, and that's where the best snow is. However, not every year is good. It depends upon how much snow fell. Last year was a bad year. Two years ago was a very good year. This year. A very good year. A lot of snow fell in California and in the Sierra Nevada. However, I've had a hard time getting there to go ski because the weather has been bad. I've talked about this, how this has been one of the coldest winters in, I think, probably the coldest winter of my life in, in California. So it's been basically too cold for me to go ski. I mean, I could ski, but it just wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be comfortable to do. I only like to go skiing when the weather's good, meaning it's not snowing, it's not windy, it's not super cold. Ideal for me is when the mountain is in the 30s, like the, uh, kind of the upper 30s, lower 40s. So the snow doesn't melt too much, but it's nice, and then there's no wind and no snow. That's, that's ideal for me. So I've, I've had a hard time finding that. And also, I've been going with my dad, and he has to be able to make it. So uh, We also don't want to go on the weekends when it's super crowded. So we chose to go Sunday, Monday, Tuesday this uh, this past uh, week. And on Monday, you know, I, I, I should start by saying 30 years ago, I mentioned this before, 30 years ago, I broke my arm skiing at Snow Summit in Big Bear. And ever since then, I wasn't quite the same. I kind of had more cautiousness when skiing that I didn't used to have. 
but I, I have more. I ski with more caution now than I did even after that accident because I've just gotten older, and I, I don't want to break things. And I know falling now, there's a much higher chance that I'm going to sustain an injury than if I fell when I was 22 years old. So I, I ski pretty carefully. I do still go on advanced slopes, not the expert slopes, not the super super tough looking ones, but the the ones that are the single di- the single black diamond. I go on those runs. But the problem with skiing is that uh, usually if you're going to get hurt, it's not when you're going on the toughest runs. Because when you're going on the toughest runs, you're usually uh, careful. You're usually very mindful about everything you're doing, and there's less of a chance something's going to happen. It's Usually more of the mundane times in your skiing when you're just doing routine things in areas in the mountain that aren't very hard where something can happen and you fall. And sometimes these can be kind of fluke things that you would never expect or know to prepare for. Well, this almost happened to me on Monday. On Monday, I was skiing on not a very steep but a narrow run that connects two areas of the mountain. And I, I was going down carefully, especially because there's some very reckless skiers and snowboarders that come up behind you and can knock you over. So I, I, I was careful to make sure that none of them were coming. If they were, I was going to get out of their way. And but I, there weren't. There was nobody there except me and my dad going down that uh, that particular run at that time. So everything seemed pretty good. However, strangely enough, near the bottom of this connecting run. A strong wind went up the hill and over the ridge and blew snow into my face like I was being sandblasted. So I felt the sting of my face of a bunch of snow just shooting at me. So the reflex that you will have when this happens is to turn your head. So I turned my head, and while I was turning my head, I turned my body. Kind of, it was like a reflex to get away from it. Like I'm, I'm just skiing there, and then I get blasted with this snow that's stinging my face. It blows into me so hard. So my reflex is to turn my body the other way. Well, right when I did that, I realized what a mistake that was, because this is a very narrow run, and I turned the opposite direction, and I was headed straight for pretty much a wall of the mountain. Because on one side is the wall of the mountain, the other side is kind of a, a cliff. I guess it's better I didn't head the other way, but uh, it's a cliff. It's like a hill. It's, it's not that you wouldn't fall off hundreds of feet, but you, you, would, you wouldn't want to go off that definitely. But I wasn't going towards the edge. I was going towards the wall. And the wall was full of, filled with snow, but it wasn't going to be like, like soft snow. I was going to hit a mountain with snow with hard snow on it, face first, and then probably flip over or something. At a high rate of speed. Because what happened was I quickly turned my body and kind of launched myself at the side of the mountain. And I, I didn't have any time to react either because it's a very narrow run. So it's just a matter of a few seconds before I slam into that mountain. So how did that not happen? How did I not slam into that side of the mountain? How did I not get hurt? Because I didn't. I didn't get hurt. I didn't slam into anything. Well, it just so happens that right then... The side of the mountain, which had been there the entire time, it opened up. This happened to be the very end of this. So even though where the snow blasted me, the mountain was still there, the direction I was headed happened to be exactly where it ended. 
So I went into a place where I could continue moving to the right, but it, it, I wasn't out of danger yet because there were two little poles they had planted there to note that there were some obstacles in the way, like some rocks or something. I could have hit one of those poles, but I didn't. I, I happened to end up right in between those poles. So there I was. It was, there was 10 seconds of like terror, but when it was all said and done, I was still standing. I hadn't hit anything. And I was on the side there, not a place you're supposed to be skiing, but nothing happened to me. I was on the side between those two poles. Whereas if I were just a few feet further back, I would have either hit the pole or worse, hit the side of the mountain. At a high rate of speed and probably flipped over. I don't know what would have happened. It would have been very bad. It would have been like a crash. That was really, really lucky. (laughs) <laughs> wasn't lucky that the snow blew into me like that, but that was the only spot in the entire run where I could have done that and not gotten hurt. So that was really fortunate. Otherwise, we'd have a very different situation. I probably wouldn't be doing this show right now. I'd probably have been in the hospital or something. Something bad would have happened. So that was very fortunate. Something else that happened that same day, March 19th, two days ago. I guess it was three. I guess it was uh, more than two days. I guess it was uh, March 18th. Uh, or no, no, sorry, it was March 19th. It was, it was the next day. It wasn't the day that the almost crashed. That was on the 18th. On the 19th, which is my final day skiing, I was all ready to go, and I got a text on my phone which made my heart sink. The text was from a credit card company the company that is issuing my uh, that issues my credit card that I use the most often and it asked if I made a charge to sears.com for about $9 it asked that because it said it was a suspicious transaction well no I, I did not go on sears.com and I knew as soon as I got that that someone had stolen my credit card number I have the physical card. No one stole my card. But someone stole the number. Probably someone working for one of many companies where I've used that card. The reason this is so crappy is I knew I'd have to cancel the card and get a new one with a different number. And this meant I would have to go change all the auto billing things I have attached to that card. There's a lot of different things. It's going to be a big pain in the ass. So... I said, ah, crap. And so I went online, and sure enough, there was not only that $9 charge, but there were two other charges from Sears, that were one of which was over uh, $200. In fact, two, two were over $200. And one other smaller charge from Kmart.com. So there were four charges all made the same morning on March 19th by whoever stole the credit card. So I, I, called, up, I called up the company, and you know, the credit card company, and they canceled that card and sent me a new one. I think will be here tomorrow. But as I always do, I wanted to do my own investigation to see if I could figure out who was doing it. Now you might wonder why. If the credit card company is going to give me the money back for those charges, which they will, and if they're giving me a new card, and if this is all taken care of very quickly, aside from me having to go fix all these sites that I used the old card for billing, aside from that, everything was fixed quickly, why is it my 
duty to go find out who did this? Why Isn't this a waste of my time? Why am I doing uh, free law enforcement work? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, uh, I thought of this show. I thought about, wouldn't this be great if we can get at least a silver lining from this whole thing, if I could find out who did this, or at least an accomplice of this whole thing, and call them up and harass them on the radio? I mean, they deserve it, right? Talk about an unsympathetic character. Wouldn't it be cool if on this show I could call up and confront or at least screw with a prank call somebody who had stolen my credit card? Now, I did exactly this before I had this show, long before I had this show. About uh, 15 years ago, my credit card information was stolen and used to make various uh, fraudulent purchases. And not only did I get a new credit card and then call up the various merchants where stuff was bought and canceled those orders so the thieves would not get what they ordered, even though if it, even if I wasn't paying anymore, I still didn't want the thief getting away with it. But I did an investigation myself into the whole thing, and I uncovered a credit card fraud ring that was based out of two places that were quite far from one another. It was based out of Armenia. And it was also based out of Maryland in the U.S. And I struck back. (laughs) I got the phone number of the main scammer in Armenia. And I pounded his phone all day and all night with calls from my computer. And this was a phone he was using to verify the scams, you know, whenever anyone called up from these companies to verify things. He he needed to get calls on that number. He couldn't just take it off the hook. It was very important for him to get calls. And he was getting furious and cursing me out that I was doing this. What was really, really strange was I called up and um, I, I pretended to ask for me. I pretended like I was from one of the companies he ordered from. And I asked for Todd Wittellis. And he says, yes, this is Todd. And it was so weird talking to a guy saying he was me. So my first, the first thing I did was try to pump him for info to see what he had of mine. I wanted to see if he had my address. Wanted to see if he had my social security number. I, I went through like I asked him these questions to see what he had and what he didn't, as if I was verifying something. So once I got that information, and fortunately he didn't have my social. I don't think he had my address. But then I just started fucking with him, and. He was so pissed, and he was screaming at me at the top of his lungs to stop calling him and telling me, what do you want? What do you want? Tell me what the fuck you want, man. Just stop calling me. Like, so so I, I told him. I said, I want to know about your whole operation. I want you to tell me everything. And he wouldn't, so I said, okay, I'm going to keep calling. So I, I hammered him with so many calls, and at one point I told him, you know what's the best thing about this? I can harass you, I can fuck with you all I want, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't call the police, you're all the way in Armenia, there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And I'm going to do this all day and all night, as long as you have this number. And there's nothing you can do to stop me. How do you, how do you like that? And he'd yell, fuck you, and hang up. It was, it was fun. It was fun, because this was a, a piece of shit scammer, credit card thief, who stole my credit card and had this whole operation going, and I was really noticeably pissing him off, and throwing a big wrench into the operation because I was ruining this phone number for him. And I told him, you're never going to get calls on this number again. I'm going to have my computer hammer it all day and all night and there's nothing you can do about it. Which is true. What could he do? He couldn't call the police. Can't say I'm harassing him over the phone. 
because he knows that uh, number one, he's not even in the U.S., and, and second, I, all I had to do is tell the police why I'm doing it. <laughs> the, they wouldn't exactly be too sympathetic. So obviously, he was not going to do that. But I wasn't done. I also tracked down the accomplice in Maryland who was receiving a lot of the merchandise and found out that this guy was not doing it. This was not an unwitting accomplice. This wasn't a, a, a victim also. This was actually someone who was knowingly receiving the packages, and I found this out through uh, his apartment complex. I, I pretended to be an investigator with a credit card company. I, I didn't pretend to be a cop because that's illegal, but I called to pretend to be an investigator with a credit card company, which is legal to impersonate. So I, I called up and found out a lot of information that this guy gets tons of packages, that he signs for them every day, that you know, basically th- this was someone who was definitely knowingly receiving all these uh, all, all the stolen merchandise. There were some other people who were involved that didn't know they were involved, people whose addresses were used to ship things. And I talked to some of them, too, and I determined that everyone except this guy in Maryland was innocent, but this guy in Maryland was definitely guilty. So anyway... Uh, I let's just say I convinced the landlord of what was really going on, and the guy got evicted. I told the landlord that uh, if they, given that so many packages have been received there, if they continue to let him live there, that uh, pretty soon we're going that the police are going to come down and arrest him and yellow tape off the the unit and not let them rent it for six months. And so they got so nervous they evicted him. But 100% this guy was involved. I, I got enough info to where this guy was for sure someone who was really involved in this and not uh, not just another uh, victim. So I was looking to do something like that again. I thought it'd be fun for the show, and it's kind of satisfying to screw with these people. It's gonna re- you get to screw with someone for fun who deserves it. I don't like screwing with people who don't deserve it. I don't like screwing with innocent people, torturing innocent people, harassing innocent people. That's that that wouldn't be enjoyable. That would be that would make me a sadistic asshole. But to screw with scammers is fun, especially on this show. So that, that's what I was trying to determine. But I, of course, have to be careful that anyone I identify is actually involved and not also another victim who's being used as an unwitting accomplice. So the way I went about this, the starting point here was to simply call up Sears.com and ask them for information on this purchase. I gave them my own credit card number. Now, a lot of times companies will not want to cooperate when you call up and ask. I've, I've had this before where I call up and a company does not want to help me. They say, basically call the police. So either I have to lie to them about why I'm calling and to try to find out info, or I could just try to level with them and see if I can get them to give me the info anyway. I've tried both ways, and both ways have their advantages and disadvantages. But fortunately, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but fortunately when I called up, I reached the Philippines. And usually when I reach customer service abroad, I cringe and I hate it. And I asked to be transferred to the U.S. This is one of the few cases where I was happy to reach the Philippines because I figured they were not going to be as hard line about not wanting to tell me things. I figured that they would probably just spit out whatever they had in front of them. So for once, it was actually better to get someone who wasn't in the U.S. So it was funny at first. You know, they were very cooperative in the Philippines. I'll give them that. They gave me all the info 
of this woman in uh, in Northern California, and I was all ready to blow her up. I was all ready to blame her, and then I figured out on my own that she was innocent, and they actually gave me the the wrong account. <laughs> So this poor woman, they actually gave me all her login info, and I logged in as her to see <laughs> to see the purchases she made, and she had bought clothes and other things. And then I, I looked, and it said that her payment method was a Sears card. And I go, wait a minute! It's, it, I thought the payment method was supposed to be my card. This looks legitimate. This looks like it's just some woman who bought stuff at Sears. And the guy from the Philippines is like, oh, I'm sorry. Hold on. Oh, okay. So that's not it. <laughs> so he looked up the wrong things. So I almost blamed this poor woman who had nothing to do with it at all. In fact used her own credit card to make a regular purchase. So I, then I, I had them look at it again, and they finally found the right account and the right purchase. And the first per- purchase led to an individual named Darren, and I'm not going to say his last name, but it was Darren H. something, who lived in Peru, Indiana. Not the country of Peru, but Peru, Indiana. And the second purchase was by someone named Michelle. Her last name begins with H. And she was from Sorrento, Florida. That's where the stolen merchandise that was bought through my credit card was being shipped. Two different places. Now, immediately, of course, I thought, well, maybe these people are accomplices. But I remembered that situation from 15 or so years ago where that Armenian ring was also shipping things to people who had nothing to do with it. I won't get into why. I figured it all out, but I won't get into why. But this is done sometimes. One example of how it's done is it'll be shipped somewhere that they expect the person receiving it not to be home, and then someone comes over and just takes the package off the porch, and the person whose address it is has no idea because they weren't expecting it in the first place. So it ends up on record being shipped to their address, but they, they never had any idea. So I had to watch out for that. I wasn't going to harass innocent people that may have had their address used in that fashion or some other fashion if they had nothing to do with it. So I decided to look up Darren and Michelle and see what I could find out about them. Well, Darren, it turned out, he's in his early 50s. He works at Chrysler. Uh, he seems to have an office job there. Uh, He just recently framed his college diploma from 30 years ago and hung it in his office and posted a picture of that on Facebook. I just looked at the guy's whole profile and I go, no, this guy's not a credit card thief. I mean, yeah, people can surprise you, but this just looked like typical kind of middle manager type at a big corporation who's still proud of his college diploma from 30 years ago. This guy's not receiving stolen merchandise worth 200 bucks at his house. It, 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 like, it's very unlikely. Then I looked at Michelle. Michelle runs a small company with her husband involving equipment for street repairs, and she's in her 40s. Again, from everything I can see about Michelle, she looked very legit. This uh, didn't really look like someone who would be involved in this. Again, you can't be sure, but that was my assumption. But then I noticed something else about these two addresses, which really tipped me off that these two weren't involved. On the street address portion of the delivery address, on both addresses, there was something extra added. 
So, Darren, it's 304-something Avenue. And then after that, it says Miami number 103. Isn't that weird? Miami number 103. With no space. It's Miami number sign 103. On Michelle's address, it's 25322-something-something road, lake number 069. Same format. Isn't that weird? Now, I looked up these two addresses. They don't have this Miami number 103 or lake number 069. This is something extraneous added at the end for some reason. Now, I don't know for sure what that means, but I have to guess that's some kind of code for someone else involved to then forward this merchandise to some other address where they really want it to go. So, for example, maybe one of the accomplices lives very close to where Darren lives in Peru, Indiana. So they order to Darren. They have observed that Darren is not home during the day because he's working at Chrysler. The package comes, they swipe it, Darren never knows it came, and then they know from the code, from this Miami number 103, they they have a list of what that actually refers to, and that Miami number 103 instructs them where to actually forward it to, where to remail it to. Probably the same for Michelle with his lake number 069. It's very possible that the scammer is selling this stuff on eBay, And that what they do is they ship it to someone they know is not going to be home. An accomplice grabs it, looks at the code on there, and then that code is representing where it's really going to be shipped to, which would be the address of of the buyer on eBay, who doesn't even realize they're buying something stolen. Probably something like that. But I figured with the code at the end for both Darren and Michelle that they're not accomplices. They wouldn't need that code if they were receiving it themselves. So here, and, and I looked up the addresses. These are the real addresses for, for Darren and Michelle. There was a phone number for each of them. Michelle's phone number was real. The one for Darren was fake, but that doesn't really matter much. So after seeing this, I, I believe that Darren and Michelle are not accomplices to this. I might call up Michelle tomorrow. It was too late by the time I went through all this, but uh, I might call her up tomorrow. And ask her a few questions and see if she knows anything about this. If she's received anything funny. And see if she knows anything. See if she's been a victim of credit card fraud herself lately. See if I, what I could find out. I don't have a phone number for Darren. Because the phone number listed for him was not his. I could probably find it, but... I think just talking to one of these people would be enough. So unfortunately, there's my dead end. I I can't get any further. Now you may wonder, what about the billing info? It was my credit card. What what billing address did they put? Well, they actually put my address, but a little bit wrong. I have a zip code that's associated with two different cities, and they had the other city there, so they probably just looked it up by zip code. And they made one other small mistake with the address, but otherwise, otherwise it was my address, and it was under my and the billing address was under my name. The, The billing info was my name. The email address was Wittellis with two S's at W-I-T-T-E-L-E-S-S at SpaceX.com? <laughs> yes, SpaceX, exactly as it sounds. Now, was it someone working for the SpaceX program? Doing credit card fraud on the side? No. 
This was a dummy email address. And clearly, Sears must not need any kind of email confirmation, so they just made up this random address. Sure, if you send an email to Wittellis with an extra S at SpaceX.com, it'll just bounce back. Either bounce back or go into a black hole and won't be received anywhere. But I'm sure nobody from SpaceX is involved. (laughs) The merchandise that was bought, Darren was getting a cheap kid's backpack, like a Marvel backpack for 10 bucks, and a Craftsman's Mechanics tool set worth about 220 bucks. And Michelle was getting a, another cheap backpack and a Kenmore vacuum worth about 240 bucks. I would love to know how this is actually working. I'd love to know what those codes really mean. It's very interesting to me. Benjamin's mom was here when I was investigating this whole thing, and, and she was very interested. She said she'd love to know how this all works. I, I kind of like just uncovering this. It's kind of fun. It's kind of a challenge. And then the bonus is if I figure out who it is, then I can really screw with them on the show. Unfortunately, I hit a dead end. There's nothing now to link me to the actual person doing this. All the phone numbers given were either fake or the phone number of the person receiving it who probably doesn't know they're receiving it. And the email address is fake. So there's really nothing to identify the actual culprit here. So I'm stuck. But that's what happened. I was hoping I'd have something for you guys. I, I wanted to make a call. In fact, I was going to say, if I, if I got the info of who I thought was involved, I probably would have called them earlier and recorded it because it's a bit late to make the call now. Well, it depends what type of call. I was, if it's going to be a call where I just social engineer them and try to get them to believe something. An idea I actually had was I was going to have Chico Loco call up and say that he worked for Sears and that he he's realizes what's going on here, but uh, and that he's going to blow the whistle unless they agree to cut him into the profits <laughs> and see what they say to it. But uh, unfortunately, I can't find anyone to call up and say this to. That that was an idea that I had uh, to do during the show, but sadly, there's nobody to call. That would have been a good one. Now you just sent me a photo here at Trader Ruski. What is the photo you sent me? Oh, that was that was that was just probably my best day of skiing with my dad earlier when I was at Arapaho Basin in uh, Colorado. Oh, it's a long time ago. This picture many years ago. Yeah, but just shorts on, beautiful I, day. I, 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 see, I see Trader Ruski with a shirt off, and, and he's uh, he looks uh, thinner than he is now. And uh, you look young. How old were you here? Probably around 25, 23 to 25, I'd guess. Yeah, you look like a young man. It's so strange to see you this way. Like, uh, just, I see this young guy, and that's Trader Ruski I know. Doesn't fit with that, but, uh, yeah. When you're talking about the spring skiing, that picture came to mind. I happen to have it on my desk. So, so where was this again? Arapaho Basin, your Breckenridge in uh, Colorado. You know, I've never skied outside of California or Nevada. Never. Oh, yeah, you gotta go to... Never. Yeah. Not once. All, Breckenridge always, is awesome. All of my skiing's been in California, Nevada, and nowhere else. And I haven't skied yeah, Mount Charleston. doesn't get much better than Mammoth, so... Provided the snow's good, yes, Mammoth is, is, is a very good resort. Very, very big. Uh, very well laid out. Uh, a lot of different runs, a lot of different ability, ability levels. You can If you go to the top, you can ski a long way before I even get on a lift again. 
Only problem with some years, the snow's not that good, depending on the weather. But this year it was good. All right, we're going to get to the Ivy topic, and we'll try to reach Eric Benzamokin. Won't keep him up too much longer. He's got to be up early for court. And uh, let's try to get him... Try to get him on the phone, and then we will talk about what's going on with Phil Ivey. How do you, I'm trying to, here we go. Still not used to the new Skype. Phil Ivey and his uh, latest courtroom shenanigans. He's, he's really trying to get out of, of paying that $10.6 million, which may keep him from poker. Why is... I'm trying to add in... Let me hear. Why is this not working? Here we go. Dial. Okay, I do the dial pad. This is such a piece of crap, this new Skype. I type in the phone number. It's not letting me add him. I have to do the dial pad. Dumb. Skype takes long times to complete calls. Oh, there we are. Eric Benzamokin. Hello. Hey, Todd, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you uh, Thank you for donating to the free roll tonight. Always appreciate it. No problem. Happy to help. So I thought this is a good topic to have you talk about because uh, anytime we have uh, a legal discussion on this show, uh, I, I, every time I think, if you're not on the phone already, I think, damn it, we should have Eric here for this, because uh, <laughs> otherwise i got to kind of guess at it and and figure out, you know, from a legal standpoint, I go, I think this is the law here, I think this is what's going on, but then I always have some doubt that I'm actually saying the right thing or analyzing it the right way, and I go, oh, we have somebody who could do this much better, and I shouldn't have done this topic at 1 in the morning. So here we're going to do this topic here at, at 9.55, and uh, this way... We can get your input on this. I know you've been on before about this Ivy situation. So have, have you seen the latest news of what's going on with him? Yeah, and I, to be frank, I'm surprised it took this long for him to file an appeal. Uh, I would have thought he would have appealed that judgment sooner. Um, so I'm not, not surprised that he's appealing. I'm surprised that he waited this long and you know waited for them to begin enforcement actions before he did it. Yes. Um, yeah. So what's happened? You just just to yeah. update the listener here, the uh, Ivy. There's a ten point sixteen million dollar judgment against Ivy that's awarded to the Borgata since uh, late 2016, and it has to do with their edge sorting advantage play that they were doing at uh, at Borgata. We've talked about that before on the show. Ivy was paid, and now Borgata wants the money back. And this has been an ongoing battle. So the the recent thing going on is that Borgata has been trying to find ways to collect. Ivy's not he's not paying, and he's trying to avoid avoid it. And then uh, Borgata is trying to find ways to collect. And at the same time, Ivy wants to appeal. But but one problem is uh, usually when when such an appeal is done, uh, you're required to post the money as a bond. So this way, if you lose the appeal, that uh, the defend that the plaintiff can get the money right away. And doesn't have to keep chasing after you for collection. So there, Ivy's trying this, this delicate balance of being able to appeal without posting this bond and see if see if it works. Is, is that uh, accurate? Yeah, that's a really really good summary. So the the appellate process is extremely technical versus the trial court process, which you know is prior to an appeal, 
which can, you know, it's, there's technicalities involved, but there's a lot more passion and arguing and, and uh, you know, advocacy and things like that. Appellate, appellate court, they're looking for either judicial error, meaning the judge made some kind of mistake during the course of a trial that resulted in some kind of wrong decision that, you know, or the outcome would have been different, um, or they look for something called an abuse of discretion where a judge maybe takes something too far at the trial court level, and then the appellate court is there to kind of set things right. Um, statistically speaking, appeals uh, are successful about 10% of the time. So appellate courts do not reverse trial court judges. Uh, they don't do that very often. They don't take it very lightly. But on the occasion that your appeal has merit, then an appellate court has the power to what's called reverse and remand which is really the outcome you want. They reverse the trial court's decision. In this case, they would undo the judgment, and then they would send the case back to the trial court to determine a different outcome. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a different outcome, but use a different set of facts or a different set of guidelines in making their decision. And then the outcome could be different depending on if they, as they, if they apply the correct legal standard uh, and don't abuse their discretion maybe, you know, could be a different outcome altogether. Now, I, I have a question for you here. Uh, I, I still don't quite understand this. How How is Ivy even submitting this appeal? See, his, his lawyer submitted a 39-page appeal here, but the problem is he has not posted the $10.16 $10. million bond. And so, so how is this even possible that the court will be willing to hear this appeal if he's not posting the bond? Well, it, the the appellate court could issue uh, an order not requiring him to post a bond, but the Borgata could still continue to collect while this appeal is pending. So in some instances, um, you file a motion called, you're asking the court to issue what's called a stay pending appeal, um, and you ask that judgment enforcement be limited or restricted until this appeal is heard. Now, if you want something like that, that's kind of an extraordinary remedy. So usually you're required to put up an, a bond equal to the amount of the judgment. Um, so that way, if you know you can't just abscond with your assets and give you a chance to do all these things. Um, in this case, if Ivy can't post bond because $10 million is a lot, you basically have to post a cash equivalent. Because a bondsman, you know, a bail company is not going to say, this is not like a criminal bond where you pay 10% of the bail amount and then the bond guy puts up the rest. It's not, nothing like that. So he'd have to put up $10 million in cash in order to, receive a bond for that amount, um, which I don't think he has anymore. Certainly not available to him here in the States. And so the Borgata is just going to continue their collection efforts while this appeal is pending. And, but, but So my question is, though, since you are required to put that up and he's not going to put that up, then, then does the court decide if they're still willing to hear it? How, how does this work as far as the appeal now that he's not putting it up? They could. I mean, what, what happened is he'd file a motion asking the appellate court to allow it to proceed without um, posting a bond. The Borgata will probably oppose that, and given the amount, they would require some kind of bond or collateral or something, and then at some point, the, and the appellate court will decide. It's possible that this, this appeal won't get very far, and the appellate court at the Third Circuit will simply say, uh, no bond, uh, no case. You know, We're going to kick it back out. Uh, they may take some mercy on Ivy and and uh, allow the appeal to you know proceed without the bond, but Again, the Borgata wouldn't be stayed from enforcing it. I see. Enforcing the judgment. Okay. And there, so there are four main arguments in that 39 page appeal 
that as to why the appellate court should find the ruling to be an error. So, so here's the four points. I'm going to see you know, one by one what you think of them. The, the first one is uh, the district court erred in failing to dismiss plaintiff Borgata's complaint pursuant to the applicable statute of limitation, basically saying that uh, – so basically they're claiming that there's a six-month statute of limitation that, that should have barred the Borgata from being able – be able to allow to sue him because they sued him more than six months after he won. So uh, do you know anything about the statute of limitation of this or because it's New Jersey, you don't really know? Well, this, uh, a statute of limitations is not unique to New Jersey. It's just the time yeah, that's what I mean. that the statute runs. So, But assuming it is six months, the way a statute of limitations works is that the six months begins from the moment the casino determined that they were at some kind of loss as a result of cheating. So the minute they pay him out, that's not when the six months begin. Oh, I see. The six months begins when Borgata turns around and goes, hey, we just got duped. Uh, you know, I, I cheated, or him and his, his female uh, accomplice. That's when the six months start. So if they sued him within that period, from the day they recognized that they were wrong, then it's within the statute. And it's kind of hard to argue if you're Ivy, when, when you know, how do you argue when when did the Brigada believe that they were you know hoodwinked? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's possible that it's still within the statute. Yeah. Okay. Uh, number two, the plaintiff's complaint, and the plaintiff is referring to the Brigada, of course, uh, did in fact allege only a private cause of action for violation under New Jersey's Casino Control Act, which should have been dismissed on defendant's motion. So uh, I, this is basically saying that uh, this this is something that has to do with New Jersey's casino-based gambling and that it's it's bound by the New Jersey's Casino Control Act. So uh, since the investigation by New Jersey's regulators didn't show that uh, Ivy or his accomplice violated any of their rules, that it should have ended there. That's the claim of Ivy's lawyer, that there shouldn't have been able to be a civil case on top of that. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? So, well, so what that's really saying in the appellate context is this is that idea of judicial error. Right? In other words, what Ivy's saying is that there was already this remedy or this statute that controlled this particular issue, and the fact that the judge didn't go by this statute or didn't apply this particular code or rule, there was error there. So that's really what that's about. The actual violation or alleged violation of the statute doesn't matter. What matters in the appellate context is you're saying, okay, there was a clear guideline that the judge had to follow, and the judge deviated from that, and that deviation caused this negative outcome. And then you have to go further and say, and had the judge actually followed this particular rule, the outcome would have been different. Yeah. So that's what they're trying to do there. And and do you know uh, as far as this is concerned? I know this is again a New Jersey thing, uh, but uh, you know, do you think this argument could hold any water? That this is something that the New Jersey gaming regulators should have had to deal with, and that's it, and it can't be sued in in civil court above that. It's it, it's hard to say because I'm not familiar enough with New Jersey law and what kind of you know exceptions there might be to certain rules, but. It, it, it generally, I would say, uh, without specific, without specifically invoking New Jersey law, generally, I don't think that that argument holds a lot of muster. Usually, courts have a certain degree of discretion, and there's probably more to it. So, if there was other 
potential issues at stake beyond what this particular statute covered, then the judge didn't err at all. Statute maybe dealt with a part of it, but not the whole case. And from what I remember reading, there were some fraud causes of action that were thrown out. And so maybe the statute only covered the non-fraud action as opposed to the fraud or back, you know, vice versa. So it's, that's sort of like more of a Hail Mary argument. I don't think it's very strong. Yeah. Now, this, this next one is, I think, their strongest one that I'm about to read you. The court's marked cards finding was an error based upon both the undisputed facts and the essential elements of the marked card statute. Now, what happened here was that the lower court found that Ivy and his accomplice marked the cards, even though it was acknowledged that they never physically touched the cards, that the casino does all the touching of the card. Now, the cards were seen as marked because it was printed in error, and Ivy's accomplice was able to notice those errors and then see what, be able to see what was coming that gave them the edge. But uh, the, the claim by Ivy's attorney is that the entire marked cards finding was an error because it's, it stated that uh, Ivy and Son, Son being his accomplice, uh, marked the cards when in reality they didn't touch the cards and couldn't have marked them. So, so I would think that would possibly be their strongest uh, point on appeal. So, so that's interesting. So I'm try- I don't remember if the that Croxford Casino had sued Ivy before the Borgata did. Actually, he sued, he, he sued Crockford's would have. They wouldn't pay him. Borgata already paid him. Right, Crockford, right. right. So he sued Crockford's okay, and lost. So, okay, but but what I'm, so what I'm asking is, so Borgata paid Ivy first, and then I went after Ivy sued the the casino in England. That's when Borgata sued to get their money back. After yes, yes. Okay, and the reason the reason why I think it might be important that there's a distinction is because that last part of the argument that Ivy's attorneys are raising now sounds an awful lot like when the Borgata was suing Ivy, they borrowed some of the logic from the British court. Because there is a statute, and I think Nevada has one similar, but New Jersey has it, that cards that are, like, like in other words, card counting, like a blackjack card counter, it's not considered cheating. It's nothing illegal. If a card has a defect on it and a player exploits it, it's not the same as marking the card because there's no physical contact by the player with the particular cards in play. Uh, and I think that's an important distinction. And I think that the Borgata's attorneys maybe got creative basing, on, basing, basing things on what happened in England and trying to use a similar sort of around-the-way argument by saying, no, he's, you know, Ivan's intention was to come in and cheat, because he knew of this defect and he exploited it and he asked us to, you know, deal the cards a certain way and that's tantamount to marking the cards, right? So understand, and for everybody out there, I know it's a little, you know, it's a little bit of a bumpy road as far as logic goes, but what they're really saying is take this particular standard, right, and, and apply it to a situation that's different but yields the same result. So... When Ivy sits down at the Baccarat table in Atlantic City and says, I want to bet more than the table maximum, I want to bet 100000 a hand, and Atlantic City is hurting for business at this point, and they don't get guys like that every day, and Ivy's kind of a celebrity, and they'll okay, get great. Uh, and then he says, now I want the cards dealt horizontally versus vertically or whatever he had them do. So the argument that they're making, uh, the Borgata, is that the minute he started requesting these things, that's tantamount to marketing because he knew of the defects, and it gave him that edge. 
where I think the Borgata's logic fails, and I agree that this is Ivy's strongest point, is Ivy's not the one who manufactured the cards, and Ivy's not the one who decided to deal them the way they did. The casino always maintained control of that decision. They opted to deal the cards the way Ivy asked them to because he was a whale. He was betting 100000 a hand, and they, you know, they didn't want to lose that player. And it's probably a situation where if they didn't do it, he would go to a different casino and somebody else would for those kinds of bets. So I agree that this is Ivy's strongest argument, and I think that if, if all the other arguments fail, this is the one that he's closest to prevail upon. And then the question becomes, what does that do or how does that change the outcome? Because that's the other thing. that You could win an appeal by saying that the courts um, issued the wrong st- used the wrong legal standard or they committed judicial error, but then the question is, is that error harmless? Because there have been plenty of cases where the courts might apply the wrong standard, but when the appellate court looks at it, they say, well, even if the correct standard had been applied, the outcome would be exactly the same. Hmm. So it's harmless error. Yeah, that's, so that's, that's interesting point, real yeah. question. That's, that, that's a good point. Here's, here's the, uh, the fourth one. Uh, the, the applicable statute in no way renders edge sorting illegal. Unfair odds of the game of Baccarat can only be accompanied by a violation of the rules and, and regulations designed to ensure fair odds. So uh, what, what, what they're saying here is that because uh, because the uh, they they were not found to be in violation of New Jersey's gaming regulations, then they weren't doing anything to change the odds that uh, that, that makes the game unfair to the casino. And, and so basically they're saying that, that nothing in the New Jersey's gaming regulations prohibits what Ivy and his accomplice did. And since that's true, since nothing that could be found in the gaming regulations did prohibit this, then therefore... Uh, th- therefore, there's uh, they they had they didn't have any unfair uh, unfair odds or unfair, or unfair edges there, and that uh, oh. the, the the house having an edge is not a part of the state's regulation. Basically, that uh, the house doesn't have to have an edge, and if the house makes the game in some way where the player has an edge, that's not the player violating, or the player f- finds a way to get an edge because the house did something wrong with, with designing the game, then uh, then that's not on the player. That, that's basically what they're trying to say is, uh, is, is that, that uh, if, nothing, if nothing in the New, Jer- New Jersey statute said they did anything wrong, then how can this be unfair? So this is this is a, that's an interesting sort of point because there are in in any kind of civil litigation you have um, in this case for example you have like a like something tantamount to a breach of contract and then you've got like fraud so let's look at the idea of fraud right this is poker fraud alert radio so let's talk about the fraud part first fraud would be if Ivy walked in and brought his own deck and said look. I'll bet a hundred thousand a hand on the most negative expectation table game you have, but you have to use this deck of cards only. And of course that deck is marked or he's you know, done something to them. So that would be fraudulent, right? Because he's, and, and of course he doesn't tell the casino that these are marked cards or 
some manipulated deck in some way. On the other hand, the idea that he comes in there, what I think the Borgata was arguing, or where some of the or, or, or some of the um, briefs talk about, is this idea of there's already sort of an implied contract. So when I walk into a casino to play slot machines or table games, it's already known, it's implied, almost contractually, that I'm going to be playing at a negative expectation. The casino has the edge. And if I do something to change that, the argument Borgata is making is that that's like breaching a contract, even though there's no written rule, right? there's no written contract that says, uh, except in England, of course, apparently there's a law in the books that you know, casinos always have to win. But in New Jersey, there's no physical contract that you don't have to sign when you walk in to the Borgata that says you can't win here. And if you do, you know, then we're going to sue you. So it's this imp- idea of an implied contract. And what's an implied contract? An implied contract is, even if it's not written in stone, there's this implication that these two parties agree to do something. I agree to gamble in your establishment and have fun and do whatever I'm going to do, and you agree to provide me the atmosphere to do that in, and as part of that, though, you're expected to win and I'm expected to lose. And that's what that's where the Borgata is coming from. That's what this is all about, this idea of this implied contract that Ivy intentionally broke but it doesn't rise to the level of fraud. Now, that's also important because, and I don't think this would happen, but down the road, if it got really bad, and Ivy just said, you know, I'm just going to declare bankruptcy, Jamie Gold style, they couldn't hold that debt non-dischargeable because it's not based on fraud. And that's, also, that's, that's an important distinction for people other than Phil Ivy that, you know, get sued and get a judgment against them. But I don't see Phil Ivy going bankrupt, but there's an important distinction there. No, no, nothing about that judgment was based on fraudulent conduct. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Well, we'll see what happens with this. Uh, of course, uh, as Eric mentioned earlier, the uh, appellate court has to even decide if they want to hear any of this because he wouldn't post any bond. So this that may be dead on arrival anyway. But we'll have to see if any of this holds water, and then if if somehow this will get him uh, the case reheard, and and what I'm sure what he's hoping is a different result. In the meantime, as we've mentioned before, while o- Ivy still owes the $10.16 million, he will not be playing any poker tournaments anywhere in the U.S. because anything he wins could be confiscated. And, and there's really nowhere to run or hide, even if he doesn't play the World Series, play some other tournament somewhere else. The second there's coverage that Ivy's in the tournament, then they can get ready to grab the money, whatever he cashes. So he, 100% he's not going to play any tournaments in the U.S. where the money can be reached. And he may not play any tournaments at all in, in, during this time yeah. while he's, this is yeah. uh, being dealt with. Right. When they transfer that judgment to Nevada, especially, uh, I think timing-wise, come, you know, since the World Series is set to start pretty soon, um, I think they pretty much ensured that he won't be there because of that. Because they could just put a withholding order they could file it right with the Rio and serve it. I mean, you know, a marshal or a, or a local sheriff will just wait for him to cash and he'll just take the money. You know, they'll and could they, it, could they do that it. in a cash game too? Yes. That's a good question. They can, and it actually happened once at Commerce. Huh. Where, <laughs> yeah, they, there's, so there's something, you can, you can hire sheriffs uh, off-duty, uh, and they're called keepers. So oftentimes the way you can collect a judgment, let's say from a bakery or a donut shop or a cash business, is you put in what's called a till tap or a marshal's keeper or a sheriff's keeper, and they'll sit there and they'll literally take the cash out of the cash register. 
you know, customer walks in, buys the donut, pays three bucks or whatever, and then the sheriff just takes the three bucks. They account for it and so on. So there was a, a story uh, several years ago at this point, but I remember reading it in the, some obscure law journal that a guy knew, you know, a judgment creditor knew that the debtor that owed him the money played in these, you know, the, it's like a 2000 buy-in, 2000 minimum buy-in no limit game of commerce. And sent the sheriff's keeper there and, you know, waited. And the guy cashed out for more than 2000 and he, you know, scooped up the change. <laughs> was he able to get the 2000 he bought in for originally or only the, the additional money that he, he won? And how is it determined? How is it determined? How is it determined what he won? Yeah. I, I, it just anything above the 2000 buy in the minimum. Now, I, I don't know because I read it in a journal article, so I don't, I wasn't there personally. So I don't know if how they, how they knew, or maybe they just asked, you know, what he bought in for. Maybe they just hauled him to the cage. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm surprised maybe they didn't take the whole thing. Whatever he, amount, you know. I'm surprised they didn't take the whole thing of whatever he, whatever he had on him. I'm surprised that they uh, only took the profit. Yeah. I, and honestly, maybe they did. I'm just trying to remember. This is some time ago that I read this. No, that, that's interesting. I, I know that they they have to act quicker, of course. Than with, the, with the tournament, they have more time to, to get these things done. Uh, with cash, you have to know they're there, and you have to take this action before he gets up and leaves. So it's uh, it's much easier with, with tournaments being involved. Uh, Mason Malmuth did this to Dutch Boyd. He had a $60,000 judgment against Dutch Boyd because Dutch Boyd had cyber-squatted 2plus2.me. And... Uh, and <laughs> Or, or no, no, sorry, that, that was someone else. That was Yepsite who did that. Uh, he still hasn't collected from Yepsite. Judge Boy did 2plus2poker.com. That's what it was. And he got a 60K judgment against Dutch, and then Dutch cashed big in some event there, and they Mason got the 60K out of, out of the, what he cashed. He got got it uh, withheld by the Rio and, and got it. So he got paid well you know that there was that whole thing with jamie gold too when he won and there were all these disputes over the money and if I, my recollection serves i think the real held it until they had settled all their differences yes. and wouldn't release funds to anybody yes they i remember that too they 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 held the funds there and uh or i think they they held half of it i think that's what they did because uh crispin lizer who is the other guy who was saying that uh Money was owed to, to him. He, never, he he asserted he was owed half of the twelve million dollar cash. So everybody agreed that Jamie Gold was entitled to at least six million of it. So they gave Jamie Gold six million, and then the other six was held until it was figured out what was going to happen with it. And then there was some settlement out of court, which was never made public. But I have to imagine it was it was probably fairly close to the six million because the, there was such strong evidence that Crispin Lizer had with what's known as the $6 million voicemail, where Jamie Gold stupidly said on the voicemail, will you fucking leave me alone and stop calling me so much? Yeah, you're going to your, get your half, okay? Just leave me alone. Something like that. I mean, <laughs> and, and Eric, in that case, I mean, the Rio, he would have had to file something for the Rio to hold it, right? It wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to go to them and say, here's this voicemail, hold half the no, money. He- no, he right. would have had to have gone in like like an ex party motion for a restraining order, a temporary restraining order prohibiting the Rio from paying out funds above six million dollars or something like that. And he'd have to have and he, now that recording probably would have had to have been listened to by whatever sitting judge issued the TRO. You know, they wouldn't have done it just on Christmas word. Um, but yeah, you the you can't just walk in and say, Look, I'm partners with this guy, don't give him more than half. There has to be some kind of court order or something. But I, but I don't think these are uncommon in Nevada or in Vegas. I think these, this kind of thing come, has come up in the past. Maybe not for that, that amount, but it's probably not the first time that something like this has happened. So 
I'd imagine there are attorneys that are out there in Nevada that know exactly what to do. Yeah, and and that's you know, the the attorney Mason Mammoth had knew what to do, and that's that's why they held up his the sixty k he was owed, and they got it. So yeah, that's uh, I as I don't think we'll be seeing Ivy at the World Series this year, unless by some chance this gets resolved in some way uh, prior to the start of the World Series or prior to the end of the World Series. But I don't see that happening. We're not that far. The World Series begins in a little more than two months. And even if you want to look at the end, it ends in less than four months. So that's... Yeah, I don't I don't see him playing it, but, I, but I'll make a prediction. And what I do predict is going to happen is in order to assert pressure on Ivy, uh, it's possible for a judgment creditor to schedule examinations called... Here in L.A., these are called an ORAP, um, or a judgment debtor examination, or a third-party subpoena. And I think you're going to start talking to all of the people that Ivy's friends with or close with because it's very likely that Ivy spread assets around and hid money. And if you want to really pressure a guy, the first thing you start doing is talking to his wife or then his best friends because nobody wants to put other people through that. So that's my prediction, that we're going to see more uh, of these high-roller guys or people that might be close to Ivy pulled into this and questioned or examined because – it's hard for it's hard for anybody to disperse ten million dollars. I mean, he won the money to Borgata, he got paid, right? It had to go somewhere. Is you know, I know it was wired to a bank in Mexico, but I don't think it's just I don't think it's still sitting there. Here's a question: As far as these other people, where can they be located? If if they're not located in New Jersey, not located in Nevada, can they reach them? Like somebody in California or another state, do they have the power to f- compel them to? Uh, to be questioned like this, or can the person just say, no, I don't want to cooperate? Well, people don't always get the option of deciding if they want to cooperate or not. So well, they what if they just don't? Party subpoenas like, uh, to these people, and then they can try to quash the subpoena, but that doesn't always work. You know, they have vital information. So, well, What if you now, get a subpoena from they may, New Jersey and you're in California? What if you just ignore it? What could New Jersey do about it? Well, it depends if you're ordered to appear or not. So often what will happen is you'll hire an attorney to try to quash the subpoena by saying it's inconvenient or too far, but then what if they say, look, we'll come out to you. We want to examine you. We want to take your deposition. Right? We, want, we want bank records and transfers. So, and that's the other thing they might do, too, is they'll send these third-party subpoenas out to different financial institutions around the U.S., and they have to comply. They're just a document request based on the judgment. So there's ways, around, you know, there's ways to kind of do that, too. But, you know, people that are in Nevada, remember, they moved – they transferred the judgment to Nevada, so they could examine and do these kinds of things to anybody in Nevada. So whoever Ivy's good friends with that's still there uh, or playing there, you know, they could start to make their lives a little bit miserable too. Interesting. Well, we'll have to see what happens. An ongoing story. It's been going for years now, and if if Ivy ultimately fails and it's ruled that the Borgata. The judgment stands of over ten million bucks, then Ivy's going to be running from this for uh, the rest of his life, unless he finally offers to settle or something for for less or something like. If they if they believe they can't collect the whole thing, maybe he'll do that at some point. But I I don't see him ever voluntarily just coughing up the ten million. No, and it's probably closer to twelve at this point. So it accrues you know a million and change a year in interest. Yeah, that's true too. Mm. Well, we will we'll, we'll see what happens. This is, this is a fascinating story, and uh, it's uh, 
getting to be a, a big problem for Ivy and maybe something that just never goes away that he may just always have to deal with. So we will see where it goes. It's, but this appeal is important because going back to some of the earlier conversations we had about you know, the casino in England and you know they're, they're just sort of not wanting to pay and you know this idea of it's sort of like an assault on advantage players and this is like the ultimate assault on an advantage player in my opinion. Oh, it is. Yeah, um, I do. I you know, yeah, I, I, and I think that the. This appellate, this Third Circuit appeal, if it goes forward, if they hear it, because they could hear it just because it has much farther-reaching implications. Right? This isn't just about Phil Ivey. This is about advantage players as a whole. And if they find a means to exploit a casino and they aren't doing anything illegal about you know, like just like counting cards is not illegal. Right? Well, that's you know, what I was going to ask you. I don't want you to ask, but... Right, and because okay. because you're allowed to count cards in New Jersey, I mean, would that factor into his argument at all? I think right. it's, I think it's part of yeah I think it's part of the of the bigger argument. The bigger argument being, look, um, if we don't manipulate, if I don't touch these cards, if I don't change the deck, if I don't, if I'm not the manufacturer, if I'm not the one that makes these subtle defects appear, I shouldn't be punished if I figure out how to play them, right? And, and it, the same logic applies to counting, you know, to card counting. If I can sit at a blackjack table and figure out, uh, you know, the, by counting when to place my strategic bets and when to increase and so on. All you can do is tell me not to come back, and I'm not welcome there. But nothing, there's nothing illegal about it. So I think it's a, it falls more on the same lines, you know, the same logic. Now, whether the appellate court will utilize New Jersey's, you know, statute as far as card counting not being illegal and applying that to edge sorting, that remains to be seen. But if I were Ivy's appellate counsel, uh, that's one of the bigger arguments I would make is that look, this is essentially the same problem, the same issue here, and if it's not illegal. On the one hand, it shouldn't be illegal on the other. Yeah, and Eric, do you know, was there a ruling that made that card counting different than it is in Vegas? Do you, do, I, I, do you know, Jeff? I, I don't know. Yeah, well, the, yeah, I do know. That's, this is from back in the 80s, and uh, the, it was involved a guy named uh, Ken Ooston, I think is his name. And he challenged it, and New Jersey did rule that casinos cannot eject patrons for counting cards or any kind of other advantage play. They they can't kick you out for it. Where in Nevada they can. In New Jersey they can't. They they, they cannot come up to you and say, you're counting cards, get out. Uh, the, they can take some countermeasures to make it tougher to count cards. They can shuffle up the deck earlier. They can restrict you to only playing one hand at a time. They, there's a few things they can do like that, but they cannot stop you from playing. And they can't stop you from coming back. They cannot ban you from the casino for that reason. And I, I put that to the test one time, a, a long time ago, where when they clearly caught me counting cards and they changed the deck from being shuffled about, let's say, 70% through to being shuffled 50% through, which is a huge difference. So what did I do? I walked over to the other side of the casino and played at those blackjack tables where they hadn't stopped me yet, and they didn't bother to see that I had walked over there, so I got away with that over there for a while, and then uh, they changed that too. Then I left, and the next day it came back down to the same thing, to both pits, and I knew they couldn't eject me. I knew all they could do is shuffle up and uh, and, and tell me I can only play one hand, and they I, I didn't have to worry about it. And in fact, there was a... They had a New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement 
agent on premises. I, I don't know if this is still the law over there, but back then there was a law that they have to have a gaming agent on premises in case there's a dispute. So I knew that too. I knew if they tried any shenanigans with me, I'd say, you know, bring over the gaming enforcement agent who's sitting right there on the premises. They didn't. They didn't try anything with me, but uh, they that's what they had there. So I, I have a common sense question that, uh, me, you know, you guys probably answer better than I do. I don't, I don't have a background in casino marketing, but before it reaches 10.1 million in winnings, when it's like at 3 million, why didn't the Borgata just shut the table down? Or, well, you know, I, I know why. Look, it's because we're they, not going to cover these bets anymore. No, no, they, no that's a great point. Because they had him sit down and they took his actions to try to get his money. And I'm sure they figure if he's swinging, you know, it's going to turn around eventually. Right. It's just the, the idiots that were there, right, Trump? Yeah, mean, that's, that's what happened. One man, the dealers. The, Casinos, as long as they can take the hit, as long as they, they're deep bankrolled enough to take the hit, they will let whales play and keep winning because they know that the odds are in their favor and that eventually they'll turn around. The only time they turn them away is either, one, if they're suspecting that the person playing them has an advantage that they're not understanding, or if the person's winning so much they can't afford the loss. But if, if it's a deep bankrolled casino... They will continue to take the risk, and they figured Ivy, he's just getting lucky, but if he plays long enough, it's going to go back the other way. Or another way to look at it is casinos don't look at the past. They don't look like what they're up and down at the moment. They just look like what's going forward. So if they're if they're happy to take the $100,000 bet 10 minutes ago, then they're happy to take it again right now, unless they've realized something was different than they thought it was. But other, they, they don't worry about someone who has been lucky so far, because that doesn't affect what's going forward. So that that's the way they look at it. Where they were idiots was making all these changes at Ivy's request without stopping to think why might they be wanting to do this. And then especially after they make these changes and start doing well, you'd think they'd be smart enough to say, oh, okay, well, Ivy's he's kicking ass here, and he's kicking ass after we made these changes for him. He didn't play before that, but he, he asked for these changes. We make the changes. He does extremely well. Maybe this is connected. Maybe we better shut this down and reevaluate why you know, why we're allowing him to do this. And just if he doesn't want to come back, then just eat the loss. Or, you know, while we're figuring this out, they just let it keep going on. And that that was kind of stupid on their part to not at least think about that. Maybe there's something going on here. But that's the way it goes. They I've never felt this was cheating. I always get irritated when people say Ivy was cheating. And this is a case about Ivy cheating. It's not. He wasn't cheating. He, it was advantage play. And you shouldn't call it cheating. And as I've said many times before, I'm not a Phil Ivy fanboy. I'm not trying to kiss his ass. I'm not taking his side just because he's a famous poker player. If, he, if I thought he was wrong here, if I thought he was cheating, I would say so. He wasn't. He wasn't cheating. This is advantage play. And as Eric said, this is an assault. This entire case is an assault on advantage players. It's a way the casino can free roll. Advantage players by keeping the money if the advantage player doesn't get lucky and loses, but sue them for the money if the advantage player wins, which is a terrible precedent, and casinos shouldn't be allowed to do this, short of when there's actual real cheating involved. And cheating involves only if the player is using some kind of equipment to get some kind of edge, like like mirrors to see cards, or or has an accomplice who's giving them some kind of edge that, uh, not like Ivy's accomplice, I mean like someone like, like someone's watching the whole cards from across the room and then giving you signals, things like that. That, that. That's clearly cheating. Or getting a dealer to give you signals or, or having a dealer deal from the bottom, which we're going to talk about later in this in this show. Stuff like that, anyone who's caught doing that, 
I fully agree with the casino prosecuting them. And I have no sympathy for those who are caught and who go to prison or suffer other consequences for that type of cheating. But not advantage play. Advantage play is where you're keeping within the rules. You're not uh, manipulating anything. You're not using accomplices within the casino. You're not using people or uh, equipment to see cards that you shouldn't be seeing. But uh, you're simply using your head to give yourself an advantage in a game because the casino didn't do something right or didn't do something well and you're, and you're capitalizing on it. And that's, you know, it, it's a strategy game. It's a skill game. And if you can give yourself enough skill to where you can actually turn it, the tables in your favor, that is something you should be able to do. And the, it's the burden on the casino to create an unbeatable game. It's not your burden to not take advantage of what you notice to which could give you an edge if you play the game within the rules of how it's set up. So that's uh, that's what advantage play is all about, and this is very bad if casinos try to deny winnings that advantage players get. Dealing with advantage players is part of running a casino. You have to, that's just part of what they have to do. And when they design their games, when they choose to have certain machines on the premises, when they choose to have certain card games, the part of their own responsibility is to make sure the game can't be beaten. That's that's what comes along with having a game that's positive expectation for the casino, is to make sure that it always is positive expectation for the casino, and to ensure that uh, there's no loopholes, and, and, and that's just part of offering that. It's, it's, you, it, it's an adversarial relationship between the customer and the casino. They're trying to beat each other. The casino is allowed to have the edge, but if they screw up and don't give themselves the edge, then the customer has the right to win. And that's, uh, unfortunately, the casinos don't see it this way. They just feel like they're entitled to always having the edge no matter what. And that's not true. So, I, and, and what's even worse about this is, even if you want to say that advantage players are cheaters, what defines an advantage player? So what would stop the, the casinos from trying to collect money back from people who just get lucky and win and maybe don't want to play again? Yeah, a whale is going to come right back with all the money and lose it back. They're happy to have him back. But what if someone they're convinced you know, just won something big and, and is probably never coming back? What if they find an excuse to sue them? So this is a very, very bad precedent that advantage play, which is very loosely defined anyway, could be thought of as cheating and that casinos could sue to get their money back. So I'm, I'm very much on Ivy's side on this. And it, it saddens me to see whenever he's taking losses uh, in court – related to these situations. And in fact, when I heard these cases, starting with the one in Crockford's in the UK, I had thought he was going to win them. I was surprised he lost both. But that's how it went. Anyway, Eric, th- well, thank you. Well, oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I just wanted to make one last point. The, one of the reasons why I sort of asked the, you know, about the idea of shutting the table down is because, at least in California, I, I'm not certain about New Jersey, but in California, when there's some kind of action that's based on uh, a breach of a contract, even an implied contract, there's a duty to mitigate your damages. And that's, that's, right. a, that's an that's affirmative a defense point. that you can use. Yeah, totally. I forgot. I didn't even and think so, of that, but you're absolutely right. Because I know in Nevada, in Las Vegas, if if there's – I think we talked about this on the show once, or you did, not me, but uh, I remember listening to something along these lines where if there was a slot machine that the pay table was messed up or it was paying an abnormally high amount, the casino doesn't just let it keep running. Right, they go in and they stop. They turn the machine off, or they tell players they can't play on it for this period of time, and they reset and they do whatever they have to do. That's mitigating their loss. 
they don't take the money away. So, I, you know, if I happen to be lucky enough to find a machine that just happens to be paying at a 109% rate versus 98, you know, 0.5 or whatever it is, they're not going to make me give back any profits I make. But at the same time, they're not going to let the machine keep running like that. They're going to mitigate those losses. You know, they're going to fix those damages. So that they just kind of sparked an idea. Like, well, I wonder if this wasn't an affirmative defense available in New Jersey if it wasn't played that way. Because I think that there may be the, at the worst case, at the appellate level, the appeals court could say, okay, look, we're going to stick with this judgment, but we're going to change the damage, which an appellate court can absolutely do. They can turn around and say, look, you were awarded too much. Or the trial court made an error because they should have mitigated their damages and they didn't. And at what point then, and that's when you can bring in these gaming experts or various people and say, look, if, I, if I'm running a casino and I've got a guy who's up $2.8 million, you know, and he's asked me to do all these things and change the direction of the cards, and all these people say, I'm shutting it down. It doesn't matter how deep the bankroll is, you know, I'm shutting it down because at that point I know I'm not going to pay him or whatever. Now, I know it's a little different in this case because Borgata did pay it, and then they decided to go back after him. But, again, the bigger point is, you know, they should have mitigated the damages at that point. Yeah. So, all right, well, just an idea. Well, thank you, Eric. They'll, they'll, I'm going to move on right now because I want to introduce the whole thing about the Bellagio robbery before we have Darren Lara on in, in about 20 minutes. So I, I want to have enough time to do that. But thank you for coming on here to explain all that. I th- once again, it was very enlightening, and I learned a lot here, and I'm sure the listeners learned a lot. And I, I get a lot of compliments about your segments here. That you know, I have Eric on more, and uh, everybody really enjoys them. I, haven't, I, I seriously have not had one negative comment about you and it's all been positive about your appearances on the show it's very very nice to hear and i appreciate appreciate you having me on and happy to help whenever i can okay thank you eric goodbye thanks eric good all luck right, in the morning night. all right thanks a lot bye-bye that's eric benzamokin an attorney eric at eblawfirm.us that's eric at eblawfirm.us if you want to email him about any legal matters you can hear a very nice guy and you know sometimes people sound nice on the radio and then in in reality they're assholes but <laughs> he's not like that he's the, he's the same in person and he'd be the same in email as as you hear on this show and i know this from many personal interactions with him off this show so i want to quickly go to the bellagio thing because we're actually running out of time before we call up darren lara for the interview with him about the situation there's a lot to talk about with this so a lot has happened with that. It's a very big story. It's, it's definitely the biggest story of the week, but we're doing it at this time because I wanted to get Eric on the show about the Ivy thing. On Friday night, on uh, March 15th, six days ago, there was a robbery of the poker room. This may sound familiar because it happened also in November 2017. And we talked about that on this show. Let me give you the order of things that happened leading up to this past Friday, March 15th, 2019. So back in November 17th, or back back in November 2017, there was a robbery in the poker room. And a guy showed up there with a, like kind of like a, knit cap on and glasses and a giant nose that uh, looked like Humpty Hump from the Digital Underground. And, uh, yeah. So 
he kind of looked like a white Humpty Hump. A giant nose that was fake over his real nose. And uh, the, the big glasses. A knit cap, which Humpty Hump also had. And uh, he had a like some kind of weird white tape, like white medical tape over one side of his face. Which Humpty Hump doesn't have. But other than that, this guy looked like a white Humpty Hump. And he went to the Bellagio poker room. And he demanded with a gun that they hand over money and chips. And they did. And and so he he quickly ran out and got away. And they didn't catch him. Yeah, he got away. And in fact, Card Player Magazine recently did an article that he still hadn't been caught. They did an article late last year about that, that it's basically been a year and he hasn't been found. Two months later, in January 2018, another Humpty Hump robbed another casino, this time New York, New York. And the only one to really compare the first robber to Humpty Hump was me on this show. I, I think it, I think a member of the forum originally mentioned that he looked like Humpty Hump. I forgot who came up with it first. I forgot it was me or somebody else. But whatever it was, it was really on Poker Fraud Alert where the Humpty Hump comparison was made. But this time, a, a black Humpty Hump with the exact same look did it in, uh, in January of 2018 in New York, New York. Well, two months later, he was caught. And the funny thing was that Black Humpty Hump was actually a white guy in blackface. So it actually was another white Humpty Hump who actually went in blackface. And I wondered if perhaps that second Humpty Hump listened to this show and got the idea. Because he, it was incredibly similar, the costume that they both used. Now, maybe he just saw it and recognized what I did, that it looked like Humpty Hump. And he said, hey, that's a good idea. So I'm going to take it a step further and give him blackface. I don't really look like Humpty Hump. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll go arrest uh, Shock G of, of Digital Underground for the robbery instead of me. But they caught him, but they could tell that it was not the same guy as who did that to Bellagio in November 2017. I forgot how, but maybe just from the pictures, whatever it was, they were able to tell that it wasn't him. So he definitely did the New York, New York one, but he didn't do the Bellagio one. So the Bellagio robber from November 2017 was still at large, and I I referred to him as White Humpty. Well, fast forward to March 15th, 2019, close to a year and a half after the last robbery of the Bellagio poker cage. Someone hit the Bellagio poker cage again. A guy showed up, this time with a cell phone up against his uh, side of his face that he was holding the whole time instead of white tape. Same thing with the big nose and the big glasses and uh, no wig this time, but a knit cap. But uh, kind of a similar look to the first Humpty Hump robber back in November 2017. Also hit the Bellagio poker room, also did it at gunpoint. And he ran out to escape after. Where did he escape? Well, the reason he hit the poker room both times is because the poker room is fairly close to what's known as the North Valet at Bellagio. The North Valet is an entrance to Bellagio off Flamingo Road, 
directly across from Caesars. And you can only enter there either on foot or by valet parking. You cannot self-park there. You used to be able to self-park there, but they closed that after 9-11 when there were some threats to bomb the Bellagio, and it was discovered that that garage was right under the hotel. So they realized that was dangerous, that someone could bring the whole building down by setting a bomb in the car. So they now only let people valet park there. And the self-park lot was closed. That's been for many years. So it's referred to as the North Valet. And that's the closest exit to the poker room. And you don't have to walk through the casino to get there. So you can walk from the poker room to the North Valet without having to pass through the casino. You're also not passing through any stations where guards sit. So it's a relatively unguarded stretch between the poker room and the North Valet. So it's a lot easier to rob that cage than the poker cage at, uh, or the regular cage, inside the middle of the Bellagio, right in the middle of the casino. A lot easier to get out through the North Valet. Um, I'm not sure how the guy escaped back in November 2017. I heard something, but I, I never got confirmation that this was true. I heard something about that he carjacked someone and forced the person to get in their trunk. So he carjacked someone and said, get in the trunk, because he didn't want that person going reporting the carjacking. And that was going to be the getaway car. But that while he was in there robbing the poker room back in November 2017, the guy who was in the trunk found a way to open the trunk and get out. And then that person just quickly drove away. And then probably called the police. But whatever it was, uh, the police didn't get there until after the robbery was done. So White Humpty got out there and there was no car. This part is not confirmed, by the way. This is what I heard. But uh, he must have found some other way to get away. Maybe he ran off on foot. But whatever it was, he got away. Hadn't been caught. No real leads. But, but, there were some leads just to the wrong people. And one of them was Darren Lara, who was thought by some to have been the Bellagio robber. He wasn't, but someone reported it. We'll get to that shortly. Anyway, on March 15th, White Humpty, knowing he got away with it back in November 17, decided he's going to hit it again. So he showed up, basically did the same robbery. Uh, This time he didn't have a getaway car. This time his plan was just to either steal a car in the valet area that's just sitting there with the keys in it, or maybe carjack someone. He felt that he probably had a lot of time knowing that security at Bellagio is really discouraged from shooting anyone unless they're shot at first. And also that he could get from the poker room to the North Valley very quickly before security could get there. And that by the time the police would be called, it would be quite some time. So at 9.45 p.m. on Friday, he did this. I'm also wondering if he chose that time and night because Friday night is very busy in Vegas and it would be hard for the police to travel over there because of all the traffic on the Strip. But he hit the poker room the same way, 9.45 p.m. on Friday night, March 15th. Again, seemed to be getting away with it. Ran to the exit, to the North Valley, 
got out and saw a white Mercedes just sitting there, ready for the taking with an unlocked door. Jumped in there, expecting the keys to be there, and there were no keys in the car, and he couldn't go anywhere. So he quickly jumped up and decided he had to carjack someone. What he didn't realize was that the police were already there, but not because of him. This Bellagio robber ran very bad, because this happened to be one of the few times that there was a heavy police presence at the Bellagio, because a second crime was taking place there at the same time that had nothing to do with his. A family at the Bellagio reported that their 12-year-old daughter was missing. And it was found from looking on surveillance tape that some pervert lured her away to go with him. So they had just finished finding where this girl was. She hadn't left the property yet, and they did find her with this pervert, and they arrested him. They had just finished looking at the surveillance footage, and this situation was over. But there were some cops still in the room where the surveillance was done, and they saw on the monitor in the poker room, they see it being held up. They couldn't believe it. They're there to find this girl and arrest the pervert that took her, which they did. And uh, and while they're there, they see the poker room being held up on on, on the screen. They can't believe what they're seeing. So they rush down there. Uh, They also had four cops posted at the North Valet in case the pervert left with the girl. They wanted to post the cops at uh, the various exits so this guy couldn't get out. So the cops were told to look for any guy walking out with a 12-year-old girl. Now, the cops hadn't been told yet about the robbery. So... As this, So what happened was the white Humpty went out there and jumped in that white Mercedes, couldn't find the keys, and jumped back out. Well, the cops didn't really notice this because they were looking for a guy with a young girl. And uh, I'm, it's possible they already found the girl by this point. It, it was right around the same time this was all happening. But they, they weren't looking for the robber. But then, right as white Humpty approached a car to carjack it, and he, he probably didn't even see the police there, even though they were in big yellow shirts saying Metro, but he must have just not been looking. He wasn't expecting them to be there. Uh, they got a call over the radio that to, watching out that a, a, someone just robbed the poker room that they're going to be leaving. And a quick description of the person. So right as they hear this on the walkie-talkies, they look up and they see White Humpty attempting to carjack a black BMW. The black BMW has a woman in it and... The doors are locked. He's trying to open the door, can't get in. He showed her his gun, like, you know, you better get out. She actually tried to pull forward a little bit, but I didn't pull forward that far. I think she was, didn't know what to do. And uh, before this woman could decide what to do here, the cops ran over there to approach White Humpty. At which point, White Humpty took his gun and shot one of the cops. And you can see this video. If you go to Poker Fraud Alert and look, you can look at our thread about the Bellagio robbery and the Flying Stupidity Forum. You can see a YouTube video I posted of this 
entire thing I'm describing you, not the robbery of the poker room, but the aftermath in the North Valet. You can actually see him firing the gun. You can watch the gun flashing and the cop falling back as he gets shot. Now, the good news is the cop had a bulletproof vest on and was shot in the chest. So while this knocked him back and actually knocked him back and knocked over two of the cops with him, he ultimately wasn't hurt. What about the fourth cop? The fourth cop who wasn't knocked down chased after White Humpty, who then took off running. And the cop raised his gun, fired at Humpty's head, and hit him. And he went down. Right in front of, an, of a car with someone in it. There's actually a car driving there, like at slow speed. They're slowly moving forward, and, and then there's a guy running like right at the car. And they the cop shot him dead, fell right in, right kind of the back toward the back of that car. Nobody got hurt, except for Wright Humpty, who was almost dead from being shot in the head. I'm surprised he didn't die right there. Took him to the hospital and he died. I know you're I know you're all broken up to hear this that White Humpty didn't make it. But White Humpty did not make it, and it took a few days for the police to identify him. And in that time there were rumors. First the police verified that this was White Humpty from back in November 2017, that it was the same robber. But they wouldn't identify him yet. And the rumor mill started. Perhaps it was someone in poker. He hit the poker room twice, after all. Then the rumors really got going that White Humpty, who is now dead, was professional poker player Darren Lara. Yeah. And that Darren Lara was dead. And he was the robber all along. And those rumors went around the poker world. Eventually they got back to Darren Lara, who was not dead. <laughs> said, what the hell is this? And he started to confront people who were spreading this, saying, stop. I'm not dead, and I did not rob the Bellagio. Well, it turns out that Darren Lara had been questioned by the police back in 2018 over the first robbery. And he went through a lot of crap already, which we'll have him on this show in about five minutes and talk about that. But he had to deal with that whole situation, both being accused of being the Bellagio robber by the police back in 2018 and having the poker world, a lot of the poker world, believing that he was the robber who is now dead, which fortunately was able for him, easy for him to disprove at that point. If he could message them, or call them, or text them, and tell them they're wrong, that pretty much immediately disproves what they had been saying. The actual criminal involved was Michael Charles Cohen, not Trump's former lawyer. Another Michael Cohen. 49-year-old Michael Charles Cohen... I don't know if he's a poker player. There's been some people who've claimed they've played with him, but I don't know if they really have. They could be people who just think they have. There's someone who played looked like him. I don't know. His background was of a career criminal. He had convictions for bank robbery in 1999 and 2008. He also had been convicted before of carjacking, of kidnapping, uh, I think of making threats to people. The, the guy seems like a piece of shit. And honestly, 
he should still be in prison. He shouldn't have even been out to commit these robberies. I mean, he was out as recently as 2017. I mean, you think after two different bank robberies in a nine-year period and kidnapping and carjacking, why is he still walking around in 2017? He should be in prison for much longer than that. But he was, and his new thing was to rob the Bellagio. Who knows, maybe he robbed other places and got away with it. Uh, I haven't heard that much more about Michael Charles Cohen. The reason that it was believable to some that Darren Lara was behind it, Darren Lara's a lot younger. We'll ask him how old he is, but I, I don't think he's anywhere near 49. I think he's in his 30s. Uh, but the reason it was believable is because the person had on that Humpty disguise. But what you could tell of this person was that, number one, they were on the shorter side, you know, like five seven, five eight, something like that. And they either had a large nose or they had uh, a fake large nose. But if you look at Darren Lara, uh, he's around that height, and he has a large nose. So... In that way, he does kind of match the description, but on the other hand, if you look at it closely, it doesn't really look like his face. But they couldn't immediately dismiss that it could be him, the police, because there, there wasn't anything that's like a gotcha that it couldn't be him. Like, let's say someone said, I was that Bellagio robber. Well, all I'd have to do is say, well, look at that video. This guy is, is, is uh, shorter than average height. I'm much taller than average height. Clearly, that's not me. Like, my height would have just... Knock that out right away. There's no way I could be accused once they saw how tall I was. So that would be my answer immediately. But he couldn't give that answer because he was about the same height uh, as the uh, Bellagio robber. So I, I, I see why it took a little time to figure this out. But he, he went through a lot over this. And, and what's got to be frustrating for him, talking about Darren Lauer, not Michael Cohen is that he didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> this was really a case of being accused of, of a bad crime you did not commit. And it's scary when that happens because you wonder how far is this going to go? Is it possible I'll be arrested? Is it possible I'll be convicted when I didn't do anything? And it's a very helpless feeling because there are mistakes sometimes. Sometimes the evidence seems to line up when it's not really true. Before we call Darren, I'm just going to quickly tell you, uh, unrelated to this, but back in 94, I lived in Riverside, and there was a serial rapist in the area. Very, very awful guy who was climbing into second-story apartments uh, late at night. He'd climb up to the balcony and get in through unlocked doors, people who didn't bother locking the door because they figure in the second story they don't have to. So he'd get in that way. And rape women and steal their possessions and run off with some of their possessions. And he, he did this to several women in Riverside when I lived there. A woman I knew was one of his victims. Well, they finally arrested someone who seemed to fit the description of this rapist. And the woman I knew and another woman identified him in a lineup. This guy seemed dead to rights. It seemed like he's going to be in prison for a long time. They were all ready to put him on trial, and it seemed to be a done deal that he was uh, going to be convicted. And 
it was funny. This one uh, community activist, this one black community activist, wrote a letter into the newspaper and said that this is uh, crazy. They're just arresting any black man they could find. It, it seemed like an insane letter, but the guy was saying that they were not that they didn't have enough evidence against him. That the, he felt that they were falsely accusing someone. It turned out he was right. They were. So, what actually happened was that they caught someone in Orange County committing a similar crime and when they searched his apartment they found a bunch of stuff that was taken from the apartments of the women who were victimized in Riverside. They found like IDs and other things that were you know, very specifically belonging to these women who were this guy's victims. And it was clear it was the same guy. So wait a minute, how could... They thought they had the guy, but nope, the rapes are still going on in Orange County, and it turned out it was the same dude, which means the person they arrested was the wrong one. So they let him go, obviously, the uh, the one that they falsely arrested, but imagine how helpless that guy felt for all those months. He sat in prison for... or jail, I think he sat in jail for two or three months before they realized they had the wrong guy, only because they happened to catch the right guy. Actually, you know what? I'm not sure if they caught him. I think actually what they did, I think they caught him in Riverside again, like kind of milling around the area and staring at balconies of apartments and something seemed wrong. And I think, I think that's what it was. I think they, the, the actual one who did it, I think they caught him and they asked him why he was there and he said he's just taking a walk because he's depressed. I think that was the story. And then they, there was enough suspicion to where they got a warrant to search his place in Orange County. I think that's when they found the stuff that was uh, taken from these robberies and rapes. And they realized that was the actual guilty party. But think if they didn't catch this guy. Think if he just stopped and didn't do it again and let the other guy take the rap for it. That guy probably could even still be in prison today, 25 years later. Who knows? So sometimes they get the wrong person. What I do wonder is why, why they didn't take a DNA sample and prove it that way. Like, why, why was there a few months delay here. I, I don't know. That's, now that I'm thinking back, that's kind of strange. But anyway, 100% they had the wrong person. So we're going to call up Darren Lara, who is who also was the wrong person here. Hopefully he's there. We scheduled for 11 p.m. It's 11.04 right now. Darren Lara did an undercover video when the Westgate was letting people buy in for half price last year to a guaranteed event when there was an overlay. And that was really, really shady. And Darren went down and pretended to be interested in buying in, secretly recorded the audio of all the people discussing it who worked there, and then uh, sent it to me, and we played it on this show. And I, I really appreciate that he did that. At the time, he didn't do it for Poker Fraud Alert, but when he mentioned he had it, uh, then we discussed it, and he said, yeah, I'll send it to you. So he sent it to me to be played on this show. And uh, it, it really helped expose the Westgate for what they were doing, which unfortunately wasn't illegal, but should be. But at least it made him look bad. So given that I already had that prior contact with Darren Lara, he's not a close friend of mine by any means, but uh, we had that prior contact. He had been on the show before in a recorded, a recorded fashion, 
and gave us that recording. So I said, okay, I wonder if he wants to come on here and tell his story. And he, he went through a lot here, and I will let him tell you what happened, provided we can reach him now. And I think this should be interesting. You don't often get to hear from someone who is falsely accused of a major crime. I know I've never talked to someone before who's been falsely accused of a major crime. Hello. Darren Lara, hello. Hey, how are you? So welcome welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, and uh, glad to have you on here to tell your story, which I know is not a very pleasant story, but it's, it's something that uh, I feel everybody should hear, and it's something that I found interesting, and I've, I've even thought about it a lot since uh, hearing what happened, and I've thought about, wow, if this happened to me, I, I would have really been very, very stressed out as it was occurring. So um, let's let's go back to the beginning of this whole thing. I, I already gave everybody the background on the show of what happened to you, but uh, I want you to tell the story, story in detail. Um, sure. No, I appreciate, uh, first of all, Todd having me on, uh, give me a platform to finally discuss publicly, which I haven't done um, since this whole incident occurred back in 2017. Uh, I just want to say something just to clear the air. Um, you know, my, my real last name is Atterbury. Uh, on Facebook, it is Darren Lara. And I appreciate the notion that you said professional poker player. I kind of giggled when I heard you say that. But uh, I'm really an amateur. I, you know, do play recreationally for fun, and uh, I do have a day job. So oh, okay, no, <laughs> I, I, that. that's funny. I always, I always thought you were just like a, a local Vegas poker pro. That's funny. I never knew. I didn't know that you're just a no. a rec. <laughs> I try, I try, but no, I, uh, you know, I have a lot of gambling. Me, I do gamble a lot, um, poker. You know, even in poker. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that when I come to the poker table and I sit down, everybody wants to get in that game because I create a lot of action. Okay. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we actually we actually have more recreational players listening to this show than pros. This is a we have a rec heavy audience, so I, I think they can relate to this for sure. So, okay. So, awesome. why why, why did so you back tell? Back to Blasio. Back to Blasio. Uh, on November 28th, as everybody heard, just like I heard, you know, Blasio gets robbed by. Um, the Humpty uh, guy. Now, where, where did you get that name? I'm just curious, Todd. Where did that name come from? The, the White Humpty? I, that was just my I, I just make, made that up because he looked. The, the, oh, this guy's made him okay. look like Humpty Hump from uh, Digital Underground. That's, I made that up. Okay, that, that was kind of funny. Yeah, when I when I got on your show today, I was listening to it uh, just in the last 30 minutes. When you said that, I was like, man, is the police um, calling, or, you know, calling him the White Humpty? I just kind of, <laughs> it was kind of funny. So anyway, that happened back in November uh, 28th in 2017. I, at that time, I lived in, in Kansas City. I happened to be in California prior to that for a few days. I was doing a video shoot because most people that know me know that I'm vegan. And I was doing some animal rights out there in Berkeley, California. So I had a friend of mine fly out to Berkeley, and uh, I, flew out, I flew out there. And I was on my way back from California. We actually rented a car. Actually, we flew to L.A., went to the Commerce Casino, gambled a little bit, and then drove a car from there to Las Vegas. So we were in Vegas. I was in Vegas during that time coincidentally. And, you know, I was in Vegas for a few days, but the point is, is I was here during that robbery. I could be placed in Las Vegas Mm. during that time. So anyways, that happened. You know, everybody heard about it and I'm like, you know, no big deal. Everybody kind of giggled like Bellagio got robbed again. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, after that guy that was, you know, the motorcycle bandit, then, you know, the, the guys that were dressing up with the pig masks, 
they, you know, come and rob the jewelry store. It just seemed like the Bellagio was a target. So everybody was like, man, you know, it's such a nice place. You know, oh, the irony. So I get a phone call. I go back to Kansas, life as usual. And then I get a phone call in January 16th. And the reason why I know it's January 16th is because I have the call recorded. I have call recorder on my phone. And I could even share with you at some point some of the details of that phone call. You might find it interesting. I get a phone call at like 9 p.m. Central Time. I'm in bed reading a book. And um, it's a guy who identifies himself as a detective with Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Now, immediately, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, this is a prank call. Who is this really? But he just reaffirms me, no, I'm dead serious in his words. I'm dead serious. I need to ask you about the, you know, you were, you were mentioned, your name came up about the Bellagio robbery specifically. So at that point, I'm thinking, come on, are you serious? It just, it, it, you know, I had a flood of emotions. Half of me is like laughing. The other half of me is like, all right, somebody's got to be playing a joke. But once it finally settled in and I realized that this really is a detective, that, you know, this is armed robbery and that, you know, that carries with it a prison sentence. I'm thinking, man, you know what, you know, what in the world is going on? You know, so I wanted to definitely cooperate to an extent without hurting myself because, yeah. you know, I'm 42 years old and I've been around the block a time or two. And it's not that I have a lot of distrust for police, but, you know, I know that when you're being questioned, you should always, you know, be questioned with an attorney. You should have some representation and you should definitely, you know, know what it is you're getting into. You shouldn't just talk freely and randomly about something that, especially me, I had no idea about other than what the news media portrayed as an armed robbery, you know, and by me being in Las Vegas, that already places me there, not necessarily at Bellagio per se, but I'm in I'm in the town, and anybody who knows me, they know I have a lot of gamble in me. That's just a fact. I mean, it was even last year around the same time. Well, actually in April, you know, I brought five hundred dollars to the craps table, and um, I brought it up to over eighty thousand dollars. Wow! <laughs> that very that very eighty thousand dollars, and I, you know, I documented this on Facebook Lives and and uh, various means. But that very same $80,000, I lost it within 10 minutes' time at the Golden Nugget. Jeez. Yeah. So that, you know, but I tell you what, though, you know, I've hit some highs and I've hit some lows. You know, people see me, I'll have tons of money, you know. So I guess that's relative. But for me, tons of money. And, you know, I'm loaning out money. I'm paying for people's meals, picking up the tab. And then there'll be times I'll say, hey, you know, do you mind loaning me a couple hundred dollars or, you know, I'll get you back, you know, because I've always been in sales, you know. In Kansas, I sold roofs, you know, out here I sell solar, you know. So I've always had the salesmanship and the ability to go ahead and make a lot of money whenever I hit rock bottom or if I needed to go out and make money. So the point is this, is, you know, even if I've gone broke, even if I hit rock bottom, anybody who knows Darren, Anybody who knows me knows 100% with certainty I'm not going to go hold up anybody or any establishment. I'm just not that stupid, and I don't have that much gamble in me. I mean, that's the risk-reward just isn't there. I mean, and everybody who knows me. So immediately, I'm asking the detective back on January 16th of last year. I said, all right, who, who, who made this up? Who told you this stuff? 
And of course, they he explained to me that he's bound by law. He can't he can't disclose that. And even if he could, he just he can't. It could mess with the case or something like that. So that that phone call happened. He asked me where I was. Asked me what do I do for a living? How long I was in Vegas? Why I was in Vegas? In reality, I was probably answering more questions than I probably legally should have. But I mean, I had nothing to nothing to hide, right? I mean, I, I mean, I was trying to be as honest and transparent as I could, you know, within reason, you know. And then um, that phone call happened. He was actually pretty polite. And then that was it. I didn't hear from him until about a week later. He calls me back up and he says, "Hey, Darren, not to bother you again, but." You know, I just had some more questions. Who do you bank with? Um, who does your girlfriend bank with? Can I talk with her? You own any guns? And in Kansas, you can actually own guns. They don't have it. That's one thing about Kansas is you don't have to have a closed concealed permit. You can open carry. You can conceal carry. He was asking me all kinds of personal questions, and, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, this this is probably starting to get incriminating now. I mean, what if I lie to him and I tell him no? What if I say yes, and now does that make me – you know, a bad guy because I'm a, I'm a gun owner. Does that place me at the scene of the crime somehow? Um, what's the motive? People could say ah, there's a motive because, you know, one minute I have a lot of money, next minute I don't. They have a lot of gamble in me. So I, all these things were flooding through my head, and I, I was just, I didn't know what to do. And so I got another phone call and yet another phone call and yet another phone call. I probably got about five or six phone calls from the same detective, and finally – he said on the most recent phone call, he says, Darren, I got a question to ask you. You've been pretty straight with me, but I'm just going to be straight with you. We have several people that we're looking at. But just to make sure that it's 100% not you, would you be willing to come out here and do a polygraph test? I said, well, sure, why not? I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, you know, it can't hurt. you know. But the more I looked into it and I Googled online people who do polygraph tests, you know, first of all, they're not admissible in court. But if you do it and you do it under stress or you're nervous, you know, you can get mumbo jumbled up. And, yeah, that's, that's what I'd be know, worried about. They might ask you, were you there at 8 p.m. or something? And then 10 minutes later, say, were you there at 9 p.m.? And then you kind of contradict yourself and now you're discrediting yourself. But I didn't mean to cut you out. What were you saying? No, I can understand that where you'd be afraid to come down there and do this polygraph. And then uh, because you're nervous, it, it uh, ends up with the wrong results and it looks like you are lying. And then and now that really yeah. makes them like you. And you, you, start, you start to wonder, how much should I do? Because I, I don't want to make it look even more like I did it when I really didn't. So uh, I can understand. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I've, I, I, you mentioned the polygraph on Facebook, not in this much detail. But I have thought of these things. If this was happening to me. And if and if I couldn't disprove it, like like what I was saying earlier, if, if I was accused just from the height difference, I could get out of it. But if, if you can't, if if you match the description closely enough to where there's no way to get out of it that way, then the, then you've got to be very careful because you could end up being falsely convicted or, or falsely accused. But but then at the same time, if you clam up and don't want to answer anything, then you look very guilty, and you could really really send them in your direction. So it's, it's a tough decision. Either way, it's a what to do. decision. And, and my peers weren't being any help either because playing in, you know, poker, you know, there's people of all, all walks of life, obviously. So I have some friends that are attorneys and I also have some friends that are detectives and cops. And I called a friend. I'm not going to mention his name. I don't want to call him out because he actually does a lot of undercover. Um, he's an investigator, not an investigator. He's actually a detective and does a lot of undercover stuff. So I don't want to put his name out there. 
But, you know, he's a good Facebook friend of mine, and he's a detective for the NYPD. And I, I played him. I actually sent him the phone call that I recorded of the detective that called me about the Bellagio robbery from Metro Police. And I asked him, I said, look, man, I mean, what do you recommend that I do? I mean, as a friend, I mean, just shoot straight with me. And he said, man, he says, you got nothing to hide. He says, they don't have anything on you. If they had something on you, they wouldn't be calling you up. They'd be at your door. He said, if I was you, I'd go ahead and try to get a free airplane ticket out of it and tell them, yeah, I'll come to Vegas and, you know, fly me out there. You know, <laughs> so, you know that, I, that made me feel kind of good just hearing a friend that's a, a long, you know, a long-time detective from the NYPD tell me that. And, you know, I started feeling, you know, comfortable about that. But then I had some more friends that are attorneys, and they're saying, no, you don't ever want to go talk to the police for any reason, and you definitely don't want to go out there and do the polygraph test because they can go ahead and, you know, basically catch you up and discredit you. And they could even, depending on how crooked they are, if they need a fall guy, I mean, it's just the Bellagio. They need to have somebody convicted of it almost because it's a, a five-star resort. They don't want to... They don't want people to be afraid to come to the Bellagio. So, you know, don't do not do anything alone. In fact, don't even talk to that detective anymore. So, I mean, I was real confused. You have to understand. So I moved out here, and uh, prior to me moving out here, that detective, he called me on that last phone call. He said, would you be willing to come out here and do the polygraph? And, you know, I don't know. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was nervous as hell. I'm not going to lie. I said, I tell you what, um, you know, I'm moving out to Vegas. He said, oh, you are? It, it kind of shocked him, you know, like who in the right mind that robs the Bellagio supposedly is going to move to Las Vegas, you know, right after being accused of robbing the Bellagio. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, you know, hey, I mean, if you want to meet, I'll meet. I mean, you know, I might get an attorney. I might not. I got to, you know, think that over. But I'm not going to dodge you guys or duck you guys. I've got nothing to hide. We can go and reenact the crime. And I don't look nothing like that guy. I mean, I'll go up to the Bellagio cage. You know, I watched the video myself, and, um, you know, I'm half Filipino, so my nose is a little big, but I promise you that doesn't look anything like me. I, and I'm, I'm telling the police officer this over the phone. I said, I'll go, and we'll reenact the crime together. And he said, no, no, that's not necessary. He said, I just want you to come and, and talk to me. And these polygraph tests, they cost a lot of money, so we're going to schedule it about two weeks out. So if I get your affirmation that you'll do it, um, you know, I'd like to go ahead and move forward with this. I'll call you back with a date, and you'll be out in Vegas anyway. We can go ahead and move forward with this. So I'll be honest with you, Todd. I mean, I was scared, man. I was, I was like, and, and, you know, even though I didn't do it, just being questioned about something so serious that if you screw up on this polygraph or if it becomes a false reading and they, they really think it's you because I meet the description somehow because I'm five foot eight and, you know, I have a, a medium to small build, you know, what, what, what happens to me at that point? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they literally, Todd, they literally, because I forgot to tell you this, they investigated my bank account, my girlfriend's bank account at the time. Our banks shut down. They thought I was structuring. They thought I was doing all kinds of things. They didn't know where the money was coming from because, you know, when you gamble and you deal with a lot of cash, you're making a lot of large deposits sometimes and, you don't have, you know, accountability necessarily when you go into that teller. You have to fill out that little form if you're depositing over 10K. They want to know, you know, what that money is for, and they're just calling your business like that. So my, our banks actually shut down. They literally shut down. And we, we didn't get any money confiscated or, you know, held or anything like that. But, you know, that 
to a degree that that's kind of just messed up. And so, so they just they just called you, you and know, said they're closing your account and come come get the money. No, no. Basically, they said that um, they sent a letter in the mail. I'll never forget it. It came from U.S. Bank, and um, you know that's a that's a big bank. That's like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, yeah, right? Yeah. From U.S. Bank, they went ahead and said that um, in that letter, they said due to some unforeseen reasons, you know, and an ongoing investigation, um, we regretfully are going to have to terminate our our relationship wow. with you. And yeah, and they said that. You know, you can contact your local branch and come in and, and, uh, and their nice wordage and verbiage, you know, they was like, you know, basically come get your money. We don't want to do business with you anymore. Yeah. You so, know, banks are, banks yeah. are funny. I've, I've gotten, uh, hassles when I've withdrawn cash from, from banks where they, uh, they, they want to know why I'm taking the cash out. And this is less than 10 K and it's not like, yeah. it's not like, and it's not even like I'm getting like 9,900 where they think I'm, I'm avoiding the 10 K requirement. Right. I'll take like 5 K or something and, and they'll start asking me a million questions. What I'm going to do with the money? Where am I going? And, and I don't even want to answer it. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm taking it to go play poker or to, or to, to go gamble in some other way, but I don't even feel like answering because I'm afraid the more I say, the more they're going to get suspicious of things. So I just, I yeah, just try to give true. very general answers or, or sometimes I just say, uh, no, I just, I just decided the, I have too much money in the, in the account. I just want to have some of it in cash. And, you know, because I, I have a legal right to withdraw that cash. And the only thing that'd be illegal is I'm structuring. So I, I just say, I've just gotten to start saying, you know, I, I just want to, I just want to take it out because they, right. they, they, yeah, get, they I get, didn't even they, know what structuring even was, you know, and, and all these terminologies, I, you know, this is kind of going uh sidetrack in the story a little bit. This is unrelated. I just want to clarify, but I was at New York LaGuardia airport. I flew out and played um, in the park series and uh, that's actually, uh, and Ben Salem. That's not too far from Philadelphia for those who don't know. But um, I flew out of LaGuardia just because I, got, I was able to catch a cheap flight. And then I was with a couple friends. And as I was going through TSA, you know, I always hold my cash in my hand. And then um, they flipped through it, and I never had an issue. I remember I had close to 18000 which is not really a large sum of cash. I mean, it's just it's, it's one handful, but it's not like, I mean, there's people who travel around with bricks, you know, 100K, 200K. I don't have, but 17, it's like 17800 is what it was. I had it in one hand, and I walked through, and then they took it from me, and they said, wait right here. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. They're going to give it back. I mean, they can't keep my money. I mean, it's a domestic flight. I don't have to declare it. I'm not flying out of the country. And all of a sudden, they had Port Authority there. They had NYPD. They had airport you know, personnel, and they literally were Googling my name. They were, thank goodness, on the straps. They were in 5K straps. It had the name of the casino actually oh. won, you know. Yeah, so it had the straps, you know, with, the, with the, the casino on there. And I said, look, you can call the casino. I turned in my player's club card. And, I mean, I was nervous that they were going to keep my money because, you know, I had, like, my net worth in my hand at that time. Was it? Was this, was after, you, was this after you were accused of, uh, of, of the robbery? No, this, this is unrelated. This actually happened um, before. Before that, okay, so this is unrelated. To this. Okay, I, I had seen you posted about that. I thought this was related, but okay, that's uh, yeah. They get funny no. at airports about these things. I mean, you're, I don't know if you heard about this. Yeah. The people who would fly back from the Poker Stars Caribbean adventure uh, in the past, they they actually had agents targeting that flight, and uh, and they were not only confiscating people's money who didn't declare 
having over 10,000, but they were actually confiscating people's money who had less than 10,000 who, uh, who, who couldn't, uh, fully explain how they got it. Just, you know, they say, I want to gamble. Do you have proof? Right. No. Okay. Well, 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 you have two choices. You can surrender this 7,000 to us or, <laughs> or, 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 or you can be held here for a while while we investigate this and we possibly charge you with yeah. a crime and everybody gets so nervous. They turned it over and they, they would target that flight, especially because not only was it gamblers coming back from, from this poker stars Caribbean adventure, but most of them were pretty young. Most of them were in their twenties and they felt that they could really intimidate right. those people. So it, it was really disgusting right. what they did. So yeah, that's, that, that's crappy. So, Here's the other thing. So a couple things were going through my head. I know I have a poker pro uh, friend uh, that his name is uh, Jeffrey Fielder. A lot of people know who he is. He's he's really you know crushed the circuit. And so I you know I know he knows a lot about these situations. He's been in some similar circumstances. So I mean I called him up and I said, look man, you know what what's going on? You know you know is this illegal? I mean is there something that I you know because he has the inside information because he's. You know, he's traveled with a lot of money in the past, and he's had similar issues. And he told me, Darren, no, you can travel with a million dollars cash if you had that much, A, and B, could carry that much. He said, you know, they can't do anything to you. But where I got worried, Todd, was two of my friends that were with me, they're, they're potheads. I'm not going to say their names on here, but, you know, they, they, they smoked, you know, they had probably some weed on them and maybe in their luggage. And I was kind of panicking, man, because I was thinking, oh, shoot, man. They're going to find the weed and they're going to see the cash and that might be just enough, you know, whatever yeah. to, to detain my cash or something like that, you know. But to make a long story short on that, you know, they gave me a run around. I almost missed my flight. I got my cash back. So, yeah, that stuff can happen. So back to the story of the whole Bellagio situation, the structuring and, the, you know, accusations and all that. You know, I was really concerned, man. I was just like, man, I, you know, I, to this day, I have a distrust of banks. To this day, I don't trust banks. You know, I don't trust making large deposits. And I don't think anybody should ever have to fear that. But I just, you know, I do what I have to do to conduct my business and, you know, live my life. But the distrust is definitely there. And everybody who knows me knows that this whole experience, the whole Bellagio situation, you know, the TSA experience I've had, it just kind of are contributing factors to what created a little bit of paranoia that I kind of have now. So, so anyway, I moved out here to Vegas, you know, to play poker, recreational, to work, just to start a new life in animal rights and, and uh, start my journey, you know, out here in Vegas. And, you know, not too many people I thought knew about this, this whole situation until I moved out here. I had people coming up to me and saying, oh, man, what'd you do with the money? Don't worry, I won't say anything. And I'm like, what money? <laughs> what are you talking about? They said, nah, we see you, you know, you're out there gambling big money, throwing dice, and, you know, putting $5,000 on four, $5,000 on ten, and gambling like there's no tomorrow. You had to have robbed the place. You know, we heard the rumors. And I'm like, no, 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 I, I would never have done that. So that, Todd, is the reason why I did that one and a half months, you know, of going Facebook Live and documenting my my high roller, you know, adventure from, you know, 500 to 80 grand back to, you know, <laughs> zero, you know. And it was like I did that because people were thinking that I was out robbing casinos or something. I mean, I was like, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm just like, you know, living like there's no tomorrow and and, and just gambling and and. I would never rob a place. So, I mean, people knew about this story, Todd. And 
it really stuck with me. So the more people were talking about it and they would come and approach me about it, I played it very, very low key and hush hush because up until this point, the police that promised me that they were going to get in touch with me to do this polygraph test, they never got in touch with me. So I didn't know if A, they were building a case against me or attempting to, or B, maybe I would never hear from them again because maybe I called their bluff. Maybe yeah. they had no true intention of interviewing me. You know, I, I don't know. But it was enough that it, it had many, I had many sleepless nights. You know, I was freaked out about, okay, do, if I get pulled over, are they going to detain me because they want to question me? And I just, I had no idea what to expect. So that happened, Todd. A whole year of just like, you know, I'm just being low-key about it. People would sporadically ask me about it, and I would just kind of brush it to the side and kind of downplay it. Like, yeah, you know, some idiot robbed the place, but that's got nothing to do with me. You know, I don't know why you would even think I would do such a thing. And, you know, people would say, well, kind of, you know, it's got your height, got your weight. I mean, it, it could be you. And people that didn't really know me, they were suggesting that. You know, Todd, it's, it's one thing if I said, hey, man, you look like this, you look like that, and that's my opinion. I can say that all day long. But if I run my mouth, Todd, and if I go to the police and I say some stuff like that, you know, and, and kind of drop dime and say, hey, you know, Todd, he's the one I think did it. Or I get on Facebook and I say, Todd's the one. He's the one who did it. That kicks it to a whole different level. It's, it's one thing to have an opinion, but to go public with that opinion, you know, that, that can really hurt your reputation. And there's a lot of friends and acquaintances that even though they didn't come to me to my face and tell me, you know, I think it's you, I know that in the back of their mind they thought that it was me. Now, how many people do you think were running around uh, saying this about you? And were they saying this before or after this uh, incident uh, last week where, where that guy robbed it and got shot and that for a few days the identity yeah. wasn't known? So. So in the beginning, when I first moved to Vegas back in March of last year, I mean, people were talking about it. But as time goes on, you know, they don't, I guess the police, they didn't find the guy, obviously, up until just recently. You know, it, it kind of just died out. Until recently, until the Balazio gets robbed again on the 15th of March, just a few days ago. And, you know, I'm like, oh, here we go again. You know, and, and and it did. It started all over again that Sunday. I come, I'm out hiking in Red Rock Mountains with my girlfriend and and some friends. And my phone, you know, you get no reception. I don't know, Todd. Have you ever been to the Red Rock? Yes, uh, yes. Red Rock Canyon. Over you, you know, it's funny. The, the the girl I'm with now, that I've been with for almost ten years. When she came out to Vegas to see me, because I I knew her from a long time ago, but I hadn't seen her in sixteen years. She came out to Vegas to see me in two thousand nine. Uh, I she was she's not a gambler at all, so I had to find things in Vegas to do. That weren't gambling. So the first place I took her was Red Rock. That was when we hiked over there. That was the first thing we did. Yeah. So my my significant other is the same way. She's kind of turned me on to uh, to the whole bit of hiking, and 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 I'm actually loving it. It's giving me something to look forward to, you know, outside of just you know poker. And it's I think it's good to diversify and have balance in your life, not just you know poker, 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 and gamble, gamble, gamble. Some people can handle that. I, for one. You know, it's just not my thing. I have to have balance and do other things just to just to be able to function. So, but so Todd, so when you go there to Red Rock, you know firsthand you get no cell phone reception, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm there, and this is on Sunday. And when I finally come back, you know, from Calico, uh, doing the Calico Trail, 
I get back into Vegas because I live in Summerlin. I live real close to Red Rock. I get back to the Summerlin area. I have a whole mess of text messages from people that I do know and people that I don't know, missed phone calls. And I won't read the whole entire list, but, I mean, I have a friend, Liz Huey. You know, she's a real grinder. Um, she, she was trying to get in touch with me. TJ Schulman, he's a poker pro. I don't even know this guy. He's a real nice guy, you know, and friendly on Facebook. He's reaching out to me saying, hey, are you okay, brother? You know, is, is everything okay with you? My friend Eddie, Aco C. Mac, a.k.a. Pinoy Image, y'all need to check him out on his, uh, his YouTube. He's a poker blogger. He does a lot of cool work, and he's also my camera guy when I did a lot of work out there in California when it comes to animal rights. He showed up at my door. He showed up at my door, and he says, Darren, you okay? I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> like, is this the Twilight Zone? I didn't put two and two together, Todd. I didn't, I didn't think that this is all related to the Bellagio. Well, had, had, you, you know, had, had, you heard, had you heard what happened the night before with, or on Friday? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did. I did. Absolutely, I did. Absolutely, I did. And you know what I was thinking, Todd? I'm like, man, please. You know, I'm not religious or anything, but I was like praying to the universe. I was like, please let this be the same guy. Let him find out it's the same guy. That way I can just alleviate this anxiety in the back of my head that, you know, it, it, it could just shut down the rumors for starters. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, man. So when I got back on Sunday from this hike, at that time, they still didn't know, I don't think, by that time that um, it was the same guy. I don't think that they knew that. It, yeah, they, they didn't know that it was. Or no, that was the day that, that he died, right? Yeah. I don't think they came public with that, though. Um, was it Sunday, Todd? Remind me. Was it Sunday that they that they found out? I don't. Let me think. I don't remember when they said it was the same guy. There was. Uh, there were already rumors about this. Uh, they. They. I know it took a few days to announce it, and I was watching. Yeah. I was watching very closely. In fact, I, I was going. I was. I went skiing with my dad on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And and one of the days we were skiing, I think it was on uh, on Monday. I was telling him this story, and I was telling him that I really want to see who it is because there's rumors that it's. Uh, now I hadn't heard about you. Yeah. I had heard there's rumors that it's a semi-known poker player. And that when it comes mm-hmm. out, people are going to you know, be very interested. So that's all I heard. Right. I kept saying, "Well, who is it?" Nobody would tell me. So, so I didn't know anything about right. it being you, that you were suspected. But, but I was like, "Oh, I, right. I wonder who it's going to be." And then I'm like, "Well, I guess I can eliminate everybody that we've seen post anywhere since this happened, since the guy's dead." But, but uh, yeah. I, I, I was like repeatedly checking all the news sites to see when they'd finally reveal the name. And uh, right. I, so I, I, I watched the process where they say that he's dead. Where they know who it is, but they're not going to. Uh, they they they're waiting to notify his relatives. Then mm-hmm. they then they said it's the same guy. But uh, yeah, so I see people were trying to check yeah. on you to see like if so you're I still alive. I, you then... know, we have to look into it more. But I do think Todd that they did not know necessarily that um, it was the same guy from 2017. Maybe they probably did. But I don't think they came public with that on Sunday night. I don't recall that being the case. Yeah, it may have but... been Monday when they did. It. Yeah. So. Anyway, I'm trying to respond to as many people as I can, and there's this this lady. You know, I thought long and hard about this. You know, um, I know that I have a platform here. I can go ahead and, and out some people and say, you know, this, this is one of the people, and, you know, her name is such and such. But I thought about it, and I talked it over with my, you know, with my fiancé. I, I said, I don't think that I'm going to stoop to their level. I don't think I'm going to go ahead and, and publicly give a name. For those of you who do know her name, she's one of the people that uh, I don't think she's the 
the in fact there's no way she's the initial person that um back in 2017 that that accused me of doing this to metro police but she is for sure one of the people that um was telling you know people here in las vegas and, and elsewhere on her facebook and on the phone and and various other outlets that um that I'm dead and that I'm the one who did it. And what bothered me more or less than anything is this person has my personal phone number. Um, She could have messaged me on Facebook. So it's really polarizing because if you really truly thought, let's say I accused you and I thought you did something, Todd. I mean, all I have to do is, get on Facebook and message you or call you or call poker fraud alert radio or, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, especially right. Well, especially if it's, if the person's supposed to be dead, it's very easy to check if it's them because if Mm -hmm. they, if they are still alive, then it's not them. That's a very easy thing to check. So I don't know what the motive, you know, we as poker players, we always try to like dissect it, right? You know, think of it like, like a chess game. Like what's the motive? Like what, why, what's the, why would the person do this? I mean, is it an attention? Did she want attention? I mean, maybe. I don't know. Does she really think that I did do this? Maybe. I don't know. I think some people but, just like like sp- they just like spreading rumors. They just like to be the one to gossip, and I think they just you know, sometimes they they don't want to put in the work to really verify it and maybe ruin the story for themselves. Or they're just so excited to tell it they don't think of it. I, I I know who you're talking about because someone told me you know who it is and it was who was spreading this. So and and that's why I said to you you. It's of course up to you. You know, whoever I said on this show, if you want to out people, you can. If you don't want to out people, that's fine. Who who are spreading this? I I personally don't want to be the one to stoop to her level. Um, I'm a big firm believer. Like I said, I'm not religious. You know, I've gone through a lot of transitions in in my life. um, You know, uh, in the last few years, in particular, and I just don't want to stoop. I want positive things, positive energy. And this is a very negative situation. I just don't want to be more of a contributing factor to, to this. And this particular individual, um, is already going through some dramatic things. And not that I, I'm trying to be sympathetic and, you know, and play onto their, their victim role, but I just don't want, um, it to go any further than, than that. If somebody else, you know, mentions it, that sort of thing, and the, you know, I just don't want to be a part of that. So yeah, I just want to leave a, all that alone. That's understandable, but you know, it, it, yeah. but you should still. I think you should still screenshot that stuff because if it does come oh, up I later do. where it affects you, you should yeah. have that. You know, obviously, yeah. if there's no damage on your end, then fine. But. Right. So, so, what, sure. so what did people say when you when you contacted them and say, "Hey, you know, I'm not dead. Uh, it, it's me. Everything's okay." You know, obviously, I'm yeah. not. I'm not the guy. What did people say at that point? They were relieved. They were, you know, laughing. They said, oh, my gosh, we just wasn't sure because we couldn't reach you all day today. And, and you know, especially to the people who I don't talk to, like, on a constant basis and, you know, that are just more of, like, Facebook friends. And they were really, really concerned. In fact, one of them um, even reached out to my fiancé on her Facebook and tried to make communication that way just to see what this is all about. And um, so, yeah, as you can see, the moral of the story is, you know, you, you shouldn't just make accusations like that. You know, it's just, uh, it's just nonsense. And it can really hurt a person's reputation. It really could. You should really kind of, you know, look more into it 
and you know, go, go you know, as they would say in poker, wait and see that river card first. Don't just start, you know, <laughs> don't just start speculating on the flop. Now, I, I've got know, a question for you. You said your last name is Atterbury. You said your last name is Atterbury. Is how many letters is is Atterbury? I don't know how to spell it. How, how yeah, many? I'll spell it for you. Actually, it's, it's Atterbury. It's A T T E. B E R Y. Okay, let me tell you why so I'm asking that, that. Let me tell you why I'm asking. Someone sure. made an account on my forum. Uh, this is before the uh, Michael Cohen was identified as, as the robber. Someone made an account on my forum, and they were hiding their identity. They were doing it through proxy, so I couldn't see the IP address of the real IP address they were using. And they they were they were saying it's it's a semi known poker player whose name was fourteen letters. And uh, I said, 14 letters? What do you mean? First and last combined? They said yes. And then later, it was actually after Michael Cohen had been identified as, as, as the robber, they, uh, I, then I had heard the thing about you. And I said, oh, well, Darren Lara, that doesn't, that's not 14 letters. But I, I had actually heard before last year when you appeared on the show, someone said, hey, by the way, that Darren Lara guy you played his, uh, his, his video on, on the show – uh, his last name's Atterbury. I'm like, I, I don't care, whatever. But uh, I had forgotten about yeah. that. But but now they must have been referring to you. Whoever that was must have heard the rumor because your name, first and last, is 14 letters combined. So that person was referring um, to you. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so I don't know who that person is, though, because it's a fake account. I'm pretty sure it's a fake account because yeah. they're, they're hiding their IP. And... Uh, uh, but they they seem pretty certain, and then they kind of had egg on their face when it turned out to be this Michael Cohen. Who, that's not fourteen letters, but uh, yeah. So I didn't have my share of haters. Um, you know, there's people without trying to you know spill the platform, but you know, and talk about veganism. I'm not going here to do that. That's not what this is about. But I will say that there are people who definitely don't identify with the way I live my life, and and I was. You know, I came out here to Las Vegas not only to play poker, but to be an animal rights activist. And to a lot of people, I'm pretty extreme. You know, I'm pretty radical, and I've simmered down, you know, lately. Um, but there's a lot of people who hate me just because of my lifestyle and how, you know, I carry myself and what I eat and my decisions that I make on a day-to-day basis. And then, there, of course, there's other people who... You know, maybe you put a bad beat on somebody or maybe, you know, they're hating on you and you might have a lot of money. You don't want to loan them money or I don't know. I'm kind of speculating. But you're always when you're dealing with gambling, you're always going to deal with some kind of animosities potentially. And you're going to have your followers and you're going to have your people who just dislike you for whatever reason. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I have them myself. There's, there's a number of people out there who, who strongly dislike me for various reasons. So, uh, yeah, I, I know exactly how that is. So, yeah, uh, I, I, how did you, at the point when you were you know, most concerned about this, obviously with the incidents recently, now now you're in the clear. Now everybody knows who did it and everybody knows it wasn't you and that's got to be relieving. But at, at the worst point, were you ever seriously worried that, hey, I may be doing many years in prison for something I didn't do? Todd, let me tell you, when I told you a little bit ago that I had many sleepless nights, I 100% being clear about that. I would be thinking about that in bed. Uh, I can't think of how many nights. I mean, I yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought that one of these days, 
you know, they're going to just put just enough information together. I'm in Vegas. I'm a big gambler. Um, you know, I, you know, for whatever reason, I'm making these deposits that I can't, I don't have any legitimate source from income that identify when you're making a fifteen thousand or twenty thousand dollar deposit, but your paycheck dictates you only made fifteen hundred in the last two weeks. How do you explain that, right? Yeah, you can say it's gambling, and you know I'm sure the detectives did their due diligence. I'm sure they did. You know why wouldn't they? So, yeah, you know they they called up friends of mine. I'm not gonna put their names out there on the air, but I've had friends that were interviewed. About me, how long have you known Darren? Does he have a gun and does he carry it with him? Um, have you ever talked about robbing anybody? Has he um, hit such a low to where he was depressed? Has he, you know, and, and to add a little bit more information to the story, Todd, that you don't know, that I'll put out there, is this was around the same time frame that I was going through at the end of a 15-year relationship. So the cops knew that. The cops knew that. They thought that, okay, here's Darren. He's hit a low in life. He's, you know, at the end of a 15-year relationship, you know, he, he's done a lot of crazy things in the past at the casinos when it comes to his gambling. Maybe, just maybe, he could be our guy. Whether they really thought that I did it or not, there might be just enough information there that, hey, he's going to be our guy. Yeah. You know, and that's the thoughts that were going through my head. He's going to be our guy. And you know, just like I know, and I'm not even trying to be sexist here, but if a girl says, hey, he raped me, they're going to put me in handcuffs, take my ass to jail until it's proven otherwise. That's just a fact of life. And I don't think I'm being sexist there because I'm far from sexist. But that's just how how things happen. So I thought, man, I don't have $100,000 laying around to bail myself out. I don't have a cosigner that's going to cosign for the... You know, I'm thinking all these things. What what what's going to happen to me? Yeah, I, I can understand. I can understand. This would be very. And I, I thought about it a lot. And I, and I told. In fact, you know, I even talked about when I when I uh, heard about about you and these false accusations. And you know, as I said, I was with my dad there skiing, and just me and him alone for several days. And I was telling him about your story. And I said, uh, you know, how scary this must have been and and how terrible this must be to go through when you know you haven't done anything you know you haven't done what they're right. accusing you but but you you're afraid that maybe they'll get it wrong and, and maybe you'll yeah. be sitting in prison for for years uh or yeah, even or even sure. even if even if you don't ultimately end up convicted you could go through a whole trial and everything where you've you've got to constantly worry Forget about all the expense in defending yourself, but you've got to constantly worry: Is this going to be it? Is this? Am I going to be in prison for many years for for an armed, for sure. armed robbery? So, so this is it's, yeah. it's one thing to to be suffering consequences for things you actually did, but for something you had nothing to do with to get to get the accusation, and it's very hard to disprove. Uh, I can understand right. how how stressful that must be, and and I know if that happened to me, I would also be in, incredibly yeah. stressed out, especially if, as you said, there were factors that could happened to fall together to make it look like that right. you would have a motive to do it and, and would have been in the state of mind to do it to where maybe a jury could believe it. Yeah, here you got a depressed guy coming out of a 15-year relationship that hit a low. Maybe he needed the money. He happened to be in Vegas at the time. And, you know, truth be told, and everybody knows, people that know me know that 
I don't discriminate on my company. I probably should, but, you know, I know a lot of people in high places, business owners, you know, entrepreneurs, and I also know a lot of people that are as street as they come. They make their money however they make their money. You know, I don't try to, you know, get, you know, dabble in what they do. But, you know, the cops know that, you know, and they know that, you know, I'm sure they've looked at my, my. They, I'm sure they said, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm, I would think that they took my text messages and, and my phone call history and, and looked into this, that, and, and another, and, you know, to come to their conclusions because they already told me that, hey, we're going to be doing this and there's a lot that we're not going to tell you that we're going to do, but, you know, we just need you to be as straightforward as you can. So I thought they had enough to go ahead and uh, and at least charge me and let the jury and the judge figure it all out later on because that happens every day, every day to people. You know, just, they got enough to charge you. That's all they need to charge you. Anybody can you know, get charged with anything, but whether they can prove it or not, that's, that's another story. Yeah, and, and, and I just I, didn't know if I had the money to, to be able to get a, build a defense. Right. And, and also, also to, you, you had the unknown, you had the unknown sitting there. They, they didn't come back to you and say, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, we figured out it wasn't you. No problem. Like uh, you had to just sit there twisting in the wind, wondering if the hammer is going to fall one day, that's got to be very stressful too. And uh, so I have to imagine it's, it's a big weight off your shoulders at this point that this is all over For that sure. now it's a hundred percent known who did it. The guy's dead. That's it. And, uh, um, and that's another that. thing, you know, I, I really, you know, I don't believe in, you know, that type of punishment. Like I, you know, he did what he did and, you know, he pointed a gun, he shot, uh, you know, whatever, you know, towards the cop and he, you know, had what he had coming to him. But I just think that he got the easy way out. You know, I really wish that he was around and, and, uh, to face his consequences and, and stuff like that. You know, I, I'm glad that they found the guy. I'm not too happy that he died. I don't wish death upon anybody, but it, it's definitely him making that stupid decision to rob Bellagio again was really, um, really just, just what I was hoping for, man, because that just, you know, he got caught and then it just like, you know, like I said, it alleviated everything. You know, now I got no worries about that, you know, whatsoever. Matter of fact, I, you know, <laughs> I got a ticket the other day, um, Literally yesterday, actually, I was, you know, over in the east side of town off Boulder Highway and, you know, motorcycle cop pulls me over and, you know, I knew I'm speeding, you know, but you know what? I felt very confident. <laughs> I was pulled over. And I was like, you know, oh, yeah. hey, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. You're like, yeah, that's true. You're like, at least this didn't happen a week ago. Otherwise, they might might be worse. But yeah. uh, now they know I didn't do this. Well, this this is uh, that's very interesting. I didn't know a lot of these details, and uh, it sounds like a, a terrible situation. I'm glad you were willing to come on here and talk about it. And I'm sure all the listeners they they feel for you, and I'm sure everybody hearing this story can picture themselves in the situation and what they would have done and. You, there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. You just you happen to be the um, the, the same height as the guy. There, there's enough similarities in the appearance to where they uh, uh, it, it was hard to immediately refute. And someone reported you, and then you just it, unfortunately some things came together where yeah, you definitely had a lot to worry about, even though you hadn't done anything wrong. And that's that's the worst feeling. But I've never had that happen to me. But if it did, uh, believe me, I, I would uh, I'd be hating life. For a very long time, and I would feel a gigantic weight off of me once the real criminal was actually caught. And so that's it's it's good that they not only caught the guy, but that there's there's zero doubt that he was the 
guy who did it back in 2017, and they the whole thing's over, and no one suspects you. And and this is high profile enough now that now everybody has heard that the robber was uh was this Michael Cohen. So if if anyone who had heard about the one in 2017, like now everybody knows it's the same person, and they know it's not you. Like even people who hadn't heard you before being accused, like no one's going to yeah. think this anymore. It, it, it's, it's been cleared out of everybody's mind and that's, that's good. And now you can move forward. And, uh, I'm glad about that. And I had no idea you went through that over the past year. And it, when you did that video at the Westgate, we had this already happened by this point that you did, you did the video in April, 2018. Yeah. 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 yeah because I, this happened, uh, the Westgate situation was, was last year yeah, in April. And yeah, in April. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's just it. I, uh, you know, I was just trying to, live life and move on and try not to think about the whole Bellagio heist on a daily basis. But yeah, in the back of my mind and, you know, I was always, you know, I'll tell you another true story. I never have not went to Bellagio, um, during that, that year, just because I'm thinking, man, you know, if they really <laughs> think I did it, you know, I probably don't want to be going in. There. <laughs> that's a good you know point. I probably wouldn't have gone there either in your spot. Well, I, I didn't think yeah. of that, but that's that's a good point. Well, now you can feel safe to go everywhere, and you can feel good that nobody thinks you're uh, a yeah. casino robber that anymore. Was one of the questions that that the cop, like you know, his question line up on the initial phone call, he says, "Darren, you know, I have a few questions, you know, and there's one of many questions." He says, "So, Darren, where when you do come to Vegas, where do you play a lot?" And I was thinking in the back of my head, and I, I, I was slow. And I'll send you the recording, too. I, I don't mind to do that. You might get a kick out of it. But I said, um, Bellagio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, he said, where do you play? I, you know, I do play there. Because everybody knows that, you know, that had to be an inside job. They know how much money it is at those cages. And, you know, it had to be a gambler or somebody who has some knowledge of of how to pull something like this off when it comes to the amount of money. And now it's like they know who it is. So it's just such a release. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm happy that that's over. I had no idea when I played that uh, video you sent me last year that this was, this was also ongoing, that there, there were some suspicions by, by the police that you could be the, the, the yeah. white, the white Humpty from back in November, 2017. But I'm glad, right. I'm glad that's all over and you're not white Humpty and you can, <laughs> you, 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 you can go on. You're, you're not white Humpty. You're not half Filipino Humpty. You're, you're not Humpty at all. Right. And you can, <laughs> not Humpty at all. Yeah, you, you, can, you can go, go forward and, and I'm, I'm happy for you there. It's a terrible story, but now, now, now it's at least sitting in a, a good state here and everything's uh, been cleared and everything can move on. And thanks. Thanks for coming on the show. And for sure. Thank you. I'm glad that uh, this is all done. Well, thank you, Todd, again. I appreciate it. When you reached out to me, you know, I, uh, in my initial reaction, Todd, to come on the show was like, I've had other people and other agencies, um, not agencies, uh, organizations, I should say that, that were curious about this up until now. I haven't discussed this publicly and, I don't think there's any really reason to, you know, to do that any more than I did today, really. Um, but it, I thought about it and I said, yeah, this does give me an opportunity to kind of, you know, just expose what I went through, you know. And I didn't want this to be a platform where I got on your show to vent my anger and frustrations and call people out, you know, because a lot of people in my shoes would have done that. Yeah, I am frustrated, but I just... You know, I just want to put it all in the past and just move on. And, that's good. That's, that's yeah, a healthy way to deal with it. It's, what a, it is. it's a healthy way to deal with it, and now and now you can know in your head it's totally done and there, nothing to worry about in the future with it. That's it. Uh, well, thanks again, Todd. I appreciate it. All right. It. Thanks for coming on.
All right, so that was Darren Atterbury, not at Darren Lara. I actually knew, but when I had him, when I was announcing him uh, before coming on, I knew his real last name, but I knew he went by Darren Lara on Facebook, and so I didn't want to put out his real last name if that's what he didn't want out there, but apparently he does. So I do, I do wonder who this person was on uh, Poker Fraud. This person posted this Chop Chop. It's a new account that was made that's posting from a hidden IP from a proxy. And I, I haven't banned it. Just I, I was curious to see where they're going with it. But when they said the 14 letters, obviously they're referring to him. And they heard the rumor too. But it wasn't true. Well, that's, that's a crazy now, thing. Now the, real, now the real Humpty can play the Bellagio too. <laughs> that's right. The real Humpty can show up too. That's right. He's no longer in suspicion. I I still want I still I I still want to speak to you. I, I probably have no way to speak to him, but I still want to speak to the second Humpty who's currently in prison for robbing New York, New York, and find out where did he get the idea to rob with basically the same getup? Did he just see that guy and say, "Oh, that kind of reminds me of Humpty," or did he just happen to imitate the outfit? And but but he made himself black too. That's what really made me think he was trying to be Humpty. I mean, he really the second guy looked even more like Humpty. So. It made me wonder, did he listen to this show? Like, is, is this maybe a listener to the show who went and did the New York, New York robbery? Because it was the second robbery. But uh, that guy's in prison. He's not reachable. I, I would love to know the answer to that. Well, that's... So it sounds like we got the exclusive... You can go, you can go visit him in prison. Yeah, I could. Maybe he'll be happy I to... would like to know, too, how he was able to Facebook Live. Because they usually don't let you do that. I don't, you know, right? Yeah, that's, gambling. A good, that's a good question. We should have asked that. Well, I, I thought it, I think we actually got an exclusive here. He said that he's got another request to, to beyond other things, and he's turned them down. He came on this show. What do you know? We actually we actually got an exclusive with something. It's amazing. All right, we're gonna move on here. Maybe that maybe that'll be for a nomination for this. Yeah, interview. yeah, that's right. Maybe in the two thousand, maybe in two thousand twenty, we'll get a nomination from the Global Poker Awards. In fact, that's the next topic. Good good segue there. The Global Poker Awards have announced their finalists and uh, Poker Fraud Alert has been snubbed once again. We are are not nominated for anything and once again we get zero recognition. So here's the list of finalists. They have a tournament performance. Justin Bonomo, John Sin, Sin won the uh, main event, Maria Lamprulos, who won the PCA, and Dylan Lind, who won the World Poker Tour 5 Diamond. Breakout player, Ali Imzrovic, Marie uh, Konnikova, Ping Lu, Christopher, Christopher Michael Soiza. Streamer of the Year. This is where it starts to get con- controversial, which I'll get to shortly. There's some controversy about some of these. Jeff Gross, Jason Somerville, Jamie uh, Jamie Staples, and uh, Lex Veltus. Vlogger of the Year. This one had controversy as well. Marley Cordero, Joe Ingram, Andrew Neem, Daniel Negranu, and Doug Polk. By the way, notice no Jeff Boski. That's what he gets. Jeff Boski doesn't deserve to be there. That hypocrite. I'm glad he's not on there. I, when I saw Vlog, I was like, please no Jeff Boski. Please no Jeff Boski. Yes, no Jeff Boski. I was, I was happy there's no Jeff Boski. Podcasts. You guys already know we're not on there. The LFG podcast, standing for Let's Fucking Go, 
with Chad Holloway and Jamie Kerstetter. The Poker Central podcast with Brent Hanks and Remco Rikema. The Poker News podcast with Sarah Herring and Jeff Platt. That's the one being sued, by the way, by the music industry. Uh, the Chip Race Poker podcast with David Lappin and Dara Kearney. They're the ones who bashed Negreanu recently about his tweet about uh, the way pros should act at the table. And the Fives podcast from PocketFives.com with Lance Bradley and Donnie Peters. Something I do notice with these five, these five nominees, it, it's very poker news and former poker news heavy. Let's look at this. The LFG Poker uh, Podcast has Chad Holloway, formerly of Poker News, and currently of Poker News, too. He, I think he still writes articles for Poker News. Uh, the Poker Central Podcast has Remco Rinkema, also associated with Poker News. Uh, the Pocket Fives Podcast with Donnie Peters, another Poker News guy, with, with all the Poker News people. Notably missing, besides Poker Fraud Alert, did you notice what else is missing here, Trader Risky? There's another big snub. Uh, I don't. The Dat Poker Podcast with Nick, oh, Daniel Negreanu. Right. Yeah, the, 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 two, the, two, the 2 Plus 2 Poker Cast got nominated every year. for so they, they got snubbed this time. They're not on 2 Plus 2 anymore. And uh, you'd think they'd be bigger now that they joined with Negreanu, but no, they, they did not get nominated broadcaster maria ho lon mckayern nick shulman and lex velhus the second nomination for him another person with a second actually there, there's there's two people in this upcoming list for second nomination poker journalist drew amato sarah herring remco rinkema and christian zetshi media content drew amato again Lance Bradley again, Haley Hints, and Poker Central, Poker Go, and these are for specific things that each of them did. I won't bother to reach, read each of them. Like this is like a, a specific piece of media they put out. Like for example, Haley Hints for the article about Gordon Veo. Industry person, which is kind of a weird category. Angelica Hale, Carrie Katz, Matt Savage, Ty Stewart, and Rob Young. By the way, I recently found out that Matt Savage is a fan of this show. I don't know how often he listens, but he's a fan of this show. He, uh, Matt Savage, yeah, when I played at Commerce at the LAPC, he was very friendly with me. So I, I didn't, uh, I, prior to that, I didn't even know how much Matt Savage even knew I existed. But uh, apparently he does and, and knows about Poker Fraud Alert pretty well, too. The, mid-ma- the mid-major tour circuit... 888 Poker Live, the Run Good Poker Series, the Unibet Open, WPT Deep Stacks, and the WSOP Circuit. The Event of the Year, Party Poker Caribbean uh, Poker Party Main Event, Super High Roller Bowl 4, WPT 5 Diamond, and WSOP Main Event. These are kind of dumb categories. Event of the Year, come on. Yes, there's certain big events every year. Like, why should the WSOP Main Event get an award? It's it's been around for what fifty years. It's a huge event. We all know that. Like, what? Why does it need an award? It's kind of a dumb thing. Awards should be for things that vary from year to year. 
like tournament player of the year. That makes sense. Not event of the year. An event itself does not... If you want to have like new event of the year, fine, but it's kind of dumb. Uh, moment of the year. Uh, Jeremy Hilserkop receives the Poker Caribbean Adventure Platinum Pass. That was the guy who was in that video crying when he got his uh, World Series of Poker trip and then he got a Platinum Pass too. Joe Cato winning the WSOP Closer event just after finishing fifth in the main event. I think that was probably the moment of the year, to be honest. Uh, Doyle Brunson plays his final World Series event or Justin Bonomo winning the big one for one drop completing the super high roller streak of winning the super high roller bowl China, super high roller bowl four, and and one drop. Other trophies they're going to give away, the 2018 Global Poker Index Poker Player of the Year, that's going to go to Alex Foxen, 2018 Global Poker Female Player of the Year, that's Kristen Bicknell, I think it's his girlfriend actually, Uh, Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poker, Charitable Initiative, Jury Prize, I don't know what Jury Prize is, Uh, Pocket Five's Legacy Award, and People's Choice Award for Poker Personality of the Year. So where's the controversy here, aside from snubbing Poker Fraudler, which would be the biggest controversy? Well, there's a few of them. Uh, First of all, clearly those who are doing the nominations didn't quite understand all the categories. Uh, Even one of the people nominated mocked it. If you remember, Doug Polk was nominated for Best Vlogger for 2018. This is what Doug Polk tweeted out on March 18th, three days ago. He said, I do hope to win Best Vlogger for 2018 for my combined zero Vlogs put out. (laughs) These awards are a total joke. (laughs) So, So... the problem is that uh, Doug Polk hasn't vlogged since 2017. So whoever nominated him didn't realize that. They didn't bother to look that he hasn't vlogged in uh, in 2018. Uh, he hasn't uh, even played poker since completing his uh, $100 to $10,000 bankroll challenge. He still has his upswing poker training site, but uh, he doesn't upload much content at all to YouTube these days. And mo- he didn't. He really had a decrease in content in 2018 in general on his site. And none of these were vlogs; these were just videos. So he definitely should not have been nominated for vlogger of the year. However, at the same time, an actual vlogger who is very popular, Brad Owen got snubbed. (laughs) This is what Brad Owen tweeted to them. Hey, GPI, what in the fuck do I have to do to get nominated for Vlogger of the Year? Probably wouldn't be upset if there weren't people nominated who didn't even make poker vlogs. I'm sure referring to Doug Polk. So he's, he's very frustrated about that. That here he is a prolific vlogger who's very popular, and he gets snubbed while Doug Polk, who hasn't done one in 2018, got nominated. So that was a big mistake. Then let's go to the streamer of a year category. Uh, Another situation of someone who doesn't do it anymore. Jason Somerville. 
was not an active streamer in 2018. He did a lot of streaming prior to 2018, but in 2018, he barely did any streaming. So some people are angry that Parker Talbot, also known as uh, Tonka P, and a few others who were popular streamers, did not get nominated. They got snubbed, and yet uh, Jason Somerville, who, who basically did a stream in 2008, was nominated for Streamer of the Year. So it sounds like they were kind of lazy at the Global Poker Index. They, they didn't know much about a lot of these categories and just went by memory. So like, uh, who should we nominate Streamer of the Year? Oh, doesn't Jason Somerville stream? People like him, right? Okay, we'll put him. What about what about Vlogger? Oh, yeah, didn't, didn't Doug Polk do this a lot? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's pretty popular. Let's put him there, too. So they don't bother to look what they've actually been doing in 2018. Um, someone tweeted, a guy named uh, Dr. Jones tweeted, whatever prestige credibility you wanted for these rewards just got flushed down the drain with these nominations. Congrats, you are no longer being taken serious by anyone. Matt Berkey, we talked about him last week with the dots on his head, according to Aaron Massey. Well, dot head... Matt Berkey said, I know any subjective award is going to come with varying opinions, but in an industry that is desperate for growth, I'm sad to see the panel continuing to lead on accomplished names rather than promoting those who are growing the game from the ground floor. Joey Ingram. Joey Ingram, who was nominated for uh, Vlogger of the Year, was not very happy, nonetheless, with these mistakes. And he actually said that he's going to create his own awards the same week as the GPI awards. And he was, in fact, asking for suggestions for his own awards. He said they will recognize people from all of the poker world. Now, I told him that if he's really going to do this, I want to see Poker Fraud Alert nominated for something. I said, you're, you're welcome to make us lose. I just want to be nominated. I just want to finally be nominated. If I'm nominated and we lose, I will be happy. And he said, I got you. So I guess, I guess he's going to do it. So we're going to be nominated and lose. I can tell you that already. And I will be happy. Provided he really does his awards. So there, there's some controversy about this, and they really screwed up to not have really taken these categories seriously. And if they are not following these categories, they don't have to put these categories there at all. If they're really not following the vloggers in 2018, then don't make a category out of it unless they want to do the research. This is a pretty big blunder. Why not at least run this by someone who's in the know? Like privately, just go, hey, this is what we're going to put out there. You see any problem here? Oh, wait, Doug Polk doesn't put out vlogs anymore? Oh, wait, Jason Somerville doesn't stream anymore? Okay, thanks for telling us we're going to replace them. Who, who do you think we should replace them with? Oh, okay, yeah, we forgot these people. Okay, we'll put them there instead. Like, that's all they had to do. They just had to run this by some trusted people for sanity's sake. Last year we got snubbed also. I don't remember what the process was last year, but I found somewhere, this wasn't really made all that public, but I found somewhere, like the initial list that they called down to 
the finalists, and we were actually on that. So we weren't nominated, but we were on the list of consideration last year. I don't know if we were this year, but last year I found that list. I forgot where I found it. And we were there. I'm like, okay, well, at least they were considering us. I always wonder if there might be some bias against us for the Global Poker Awards. because We make fun of them all the time. We make fun of the award. We make fun of the index. We make fun of the owner of the whole thing. So I wonder if they're aware of this and don't like us. Or it could just be that they're not... I mean, they're aware of us because I, I know we were on the list of what they were considering. And, you know, I'm not really taking anything away from these other shows, and I don't know their audience, these shows. So maybe they have a bigger audience than we do. But I, I think we, we definitely deserve a seat at the table, finally. We've been around for seven years. We cover a lot of big topics. A lot of topics others will not touch or do the research about. Uh, this this is a very blunt and honest show. And you guys know, I just come on here and tell it like it is. I, I'm not here to protect anybody or to kiss anyone's ass or to try to put forth a biased viewpoint, I, I really just tell it like I see it. This is a, a very uncensored show in many ways. And I, I haven't... All the ones up there I haven't listened to. I listened to the Poker News podcast a while back, but not with not with Sarah Herring and Jeff Platt. I haven't heard it since they've been involved. And you know, some of the people listed I like, like Chad Holloway, for example, I like him. So nothing against the people who were nominated, but I'd like to see us up there sometime. It's not super important, but what would be nice to be up there, the best part about being up there, I don't really care so much about getting an award. I, I, it is some exposure. I do like when people have a way to find the show. Because... I hear from people all the time that they wish they found this years ago. I, I hear from people all the time they just didn't know the show existed. And we'll get the people who find the show and don't care for it because it's too long or one of other reasons. Because it's not slickly produced. It's just it's a live show that has live show problems. But a certain percentage of those who find the show stick with it and some really get to like it. I thank Adam Schwartz for mentioning this show, both on his 2 Plus 2 PokerCast and currently on Dat Poker Podcast. And I, you know, I try to return the favor and mention them, too, because I know they're a newer show. And I know some people who have found this show who really like it have told me that's how they found it. So I like when people have exposure and then they can make up their mind if they like it or not. If you, if you listen to the show and don't like it and don't want to hear it, that's fine. It's up to you. I just want people to know it exists. Give it a shot. If you like listening to poker podcasts or poker radio shows. Remember they had the award ceremony being broadcast live, but they did it really poorly with like a cell phone that was just propped up on a table? <laughs> or something like that, and we were making fun of it, and we were trying to, uh, we were trying to find a way to mess with it or disrupt it in some way. 
and we tried to call up the hotel where it was taking place and have them move the cell phone or grab it just to see what would happen. It was like really, really, really unprofessional looking. I wonder if they'll do that again this year. Wasn't that back east somewhere? I think it was one of the East Coast casinos. I don't remember where it was. I just remember we called the casino, and, and I, I think Colonel Faber yeah, said, called. move to the left, or somebody's head's in the way, or something. Yeah, yeah. We tried to get them to move the camera, or something like that. And it didn't work, but it was close. Like, they went to go look for it, but they couldn't find it, something like that. But we, we, we tried hard. We tried hard to create a little disruption there with the camera, just because it was so stupid. It was like, what was so stupid was the camera was way in the back of the room. It was like they picked the worst seat in the house and put the camera there and propped it up on a, on a table. And the audio was terrible. And, and the people were just tiny. And the resolution was terrible. I remember, I remember Kate Hall went up there and rambled. I remember that. I don't know. I hope they do it again. And I hope it's a night when we're actually on the air. Maybe we'll luck into that again. By the way, speaking of night on the air, we're going to go back to Wednesday next week. And we should stay Wednesday. I can tell you for sure the show will not be on Thursday two weeks from now because I've got something to do that night. So I believe we shall be returning on Wednesday, March 27th. And then every week on Wednesday going forward except when I can't make it. So this should be the last Thursday show. So don't get too used to the Thursday thing. Okay, we're going to move on to talk about the parlay that took place. A crazy parlay. Now, I've got to explain what a parlay is. A parlay is something in sports betting where you are betting about, uh, you're betting on a bunch of things happening, and all of them have to win for your bet to win. Here's a simple description. Let's say I want to do a four-team parlay. So I'm betting today on the Lakers winning, the Milwaukee Bucks winning, the New York Knicks winning, and the Golden State Warriors winning. So all four of those have to win for me to win my parlay. If three of the four win, I lose. If two of the four win, I lose. One of the four wins, I lose. If none of them win, I lose. Only way I win the bet is if all four of them win, and the only exception to that is if something ties. Let's say you have a spread of, of eight points, and let's say you have the Golden State Warriors minus eight, meaning they have to win by eight, or they have to win by nine or more to win the bet. And if they win by exactly eight, you tie. So let's say they win by eight. Well, then the parlay doesn't lose. Then they you just take that part off the parlay as if it wasn't part of it. So it would become a three-team tar- parlay at that point. But that's the only exception. Other than that, everything has to win for you to win the parlay. So the more teams that you have on a parlay, the harder it becomes to win. Of course, the payout's very good when you win if it's a big parlay, because it's very hard to get all of these right without one wrong. Let's take, for example, eight games. If you pick eight games and you win seven out of eight and you're just doing eight separate bets, you you had a very good day. You won seven out of eight and you'll have won a lot of money. But if you did an 18 parlay and went 7 and 1, the parlay would lose. So that's why parlays pay a lot of money. A lot of gamblers like parlays because it appeals to the people the same way slot machines appeal to people. In that they're betting a relatively low amount of money 
with a very small chance to win a whole lot of money. Whereas if you just bet straight on a game, usually you don't even win even money. Usually it's, it's what's known as minus 110, which means you've got to bet $11 to win 10. So you're, you're never going to win big money betting that way unless you're already betting big money. The only way to bet a little bit and win a whole lot on a long shot usually is with a parlay. You can occasionally find some super long shot sports bet, but usually that's like a season bet. Like you, you take some terrible team or expected, an expected terrible team and bet on them to win the championship. And every once in a while they'll surprise everyone and do it. Parlays are instant gratification. You can do it on the same day. So some guy, some crazy player, crazy in not the amount of money being risked. It was only 25 bucks, But uh, in what he chose to do with that $25, which really looked like it was almost certainly going to be thrown in the toilet, that, uh, that money. He made a 20-team parlay. He did this at one of the recently legalized sports books at the Riverwalk Casino in Vicksburg, Mississippi. On March 8th, he brought $25 in there and made a 20-way parlay. He bet 20 games at once. Now, this parlay existed in several forms. Uh, it, uh, he bet on point spreads where you're getting paid a little bit less than even money, or you're just getting or giving up points on a certain team. Like the example I gave of the Golden State Warriors minus eight would mean they'd have to win by eight. So what happens is the favorite team has to win by a certain amount. That's what's called the point spread for your bet to win. And if you bet on the underdog team, then you get extra points where the team can lose, but if they lose by less than the amount of the spread, then you win the bet anyway. So he, he made some point spread bets. He made some money line bets. Money line bets are where... You're just betting straight up for the team to win or lose. You're betting, you're betting for them to win. And if the team's an underdog, then you get better than even money. So sometimes, like, if a money line is plus 300, that means you're going to win three times what your bet is. So a $100 bet would win $300, plus you'd get your original 100 back. So some people like money line bets because there's no point spread involved. And there's, there's favorite money line bets where you bet to win less than your money than uh, the amount of your bet. So if it's a big favorite, for example, a minus 200 money line means you have to bet 200 to win 100. And then there's the underdog money lines, which are the opposite way, where you get more than your bet because you're betting on an underdog. He also bet on totals, overs and unders, meaning the total number of points scored in the game. You can bet over or under. And he spread out these 20 games on the NBA and college basketball. So they were all some form of basketball, but they were some were point spread, some were money lines, some were over-unders. This person picked 14 favorites, three underdogs, and three overs. So I guess he didn't do any unders. 14 favorites, three underdogs, three overs. The $25 ticket would pay... $104,412 if it were to win. That's how hard it is to win a 20-team parlay. One of the very close ones was Washington at Charlotte in the NBA. He actually took the Hornets minus 200. They were the favorite there. However, with 3.6 seconds left, 
Bradley Beal of Washington went for a layup that would have probably won the game for Washington. But he missed it, and the Hornets ended up winning by one, 112-111, to keep his parlay alive. He also almost uh, lost his uh, Dallas Mavericks plus 6.5 bet. Because the Mavericks were getting slaughtered by the Orlando Magic. And he had Dallas plus six and a half. So he had to have the Dallas Mavericks either win the game, which was looking highly unlikely, or lose by six or fewer. Otherwise, his parlay was losing. It looked very, very unlikely as they went into the fourth. Dallas was down by 19. However, Dallas outscored Orlando by 14 points to only end up losing by five. That covered the point spread. The final game of the night was the Los Angeles Clippers against Oklahoma City. And the Clippers won. I believe that was a money line bet. He bet on the Clippers, and that was it. That sealed the deal. He won all 20 of his games and won the parlay for over $104,000 on a $25 bet. There had been other 20-game parlays placed in Mississippi, but none had won until this one. The vice president of the casino said, We know players are excited about it, and the Mississippi market has been interested in parlays. People like the potential payouts when putting it all together. Some uh, casinos will not even offer 20-game parlays, like uh, in Nevada, apparently, that's not even offered. And... Some people have uh, have been longtime members of the industry have said they don't even remember anywhere a 20-game parlay hitting anywhere. So this might have been the biggest parlay to ever hit, at least at a land-based U.S. sportsbook. This is not a huge sportsbook, this river walk. So they actually took a big hit out of this. The five casinos with sports books in Mississippi only won 457000 in the month of January combined. So <laughs> close to a quarter of that just got yanked away with one better who bet $25. So who knows, Riverwalk may actually be down now because of that. Or if they're not, they're probably pretty close to even thanks to that one guy. It's good publicity for them, though. He apparently bet this at a kiosk. The winning better has not been identified, nor has he stated 
what was the reasoning behind these picks? I have a feeling they were just random. You might wonder, how hard is it to do this 20-game parlay? How, how hard is it to win 20 out of 20 games? It's extremely hard. And I'll explain why. Now, first of all, for this discussion, we're not going to consider the fact that he would bet a lot of favorites. That makes it a little bit easier, because the, the more likely is something to win, the less it'll pay for the parlay, but uh, the more likely that will cover. So, someone who bets a lot of favorites on a parlay is going to win their parlay more often. They just won't get paid as much. The parlay takes that. The payout from the parlay takes that into account, whether it's a favorite or not. But let's, for the sake of argument here, let's just talk about games that are considered even, whether you win or lose. And so we're going to talk about point spreads here and over unders. Those are considered fifty-fifty propositions. In theory. When you bet on a point spread, or when you bet on an over-under, even if you have no skill, you're just picking them randomly, you have about a 50-50 chance to win or lose. That's what the books are usually trying to do, is set the point that they think it's going to be 50-50 to go either way, and the way they make money is from the house juice. Sometimes the, the books will push the line one way or another for certain reasons, including how they think the game's going to go. They'll sometimes take lopsided action. But other times... Most of the time, they, they try to encourage the action 50-50 each way so they can be guaranteed to make money from the house juice. So let's take those. Let's take those basically 50-50 propositions. And let's see how hard that is. Now, to win one, it's obviously 50%. But to figure out what it is what the chances are to win at a 20. What you would do is take 2 to the power of 20. And that number is, which I'm doing right now on the calculator, 1 in 1 point... One in, it's, it's 1,048,576. What does that number mean? Well, if you take one over that number, that's your chance. So you have less than a one in a million chance to win 20 in a row. If you were to stick to just point spreads and or over-unders. One in a million. So you could take 20 team parlays on point spreads and over-unders do them every day. Do one every day for a million days. And on average, you'll win about once. That's how hard this is. Now, why didn't this guy win $25 million then? Why did his $25 parlay only pay 104000 Well, it's because he took a lot of big favorites. There were 14 favorites. He probably took some very big favorites in there. There's also the house juice, which takes away from that. So they, they don't pay exactly what the odds are. So there's probably that too. So it's between the house juice and the fact that he bet on big favorites, 14 out of the 20, that can bring that way down. So honestly, $25 paying 104000 
that's nowhere near what it would actually pay if you were to do mainly point spreads and uh, and over-unders. So he must have taken some pretty big favorites. But it's pretty easy to see how you can figure this out. As I said, you you, you do one... If you were to do one game, that's a 50 chance. Your, your chance is one half to win, 50%. If you do two, a parlay with two games, then your chance is one over four, 25%. Three games, chance is one-eighth, 12.5%. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So each time it cuts it in half. Unless you're doing big favorites, then it's a different story. If something is three out of four chance to win, then it's, it's not cutting it in half. So it seems like what this guy did was pick just a ton of favorites that he really thought were going to win. Did 14 of those and then picked six others for whatever reason. He had three overs and then three underdogs. It's kind of fine to mix three underdogs in there when he's doing these big favorites. Now, this still doesn't make sense to me now that I'm thinking of it. He only got paid about uh, 4000 to 1 on his money. There's something wrong here. I didn't think about it till now. Like, 25 turning into 100000 just sounds like so big. But now that I think about it, 25 turning into 100000 that's really just multiplying your money by 4000 and so how does a 20 like parlay only pay 4000 times the person's bet that doesn't make any sense to me well it depends how heavy dogs i mean how every favorites was 14 there were how many money lines there were he could have been minus 400 minus 300 so it'd make but, it substantially less but, but this less. is so much off of what it should be as i said it's like a one in a million chance if it's if it's 50-50 bits how does that become one how does a million become 4000 that just doesn't it seems like even if super heavy favorites that doesn't make any sense I haven't worked it out. It's just... I'd love to see this ticket. It's weird to me. Well, let's, let's take... I'm, I'm going to do this... I'm going to do this uh, on the fly here with my calculator. Let's take minus 400s, which are going to win um, four-fifths of the time. That's what a minus 400 really means. It's going to win four-fifths four of the time. So, you know, t- ignoring the house juice. Let's just keep it simple. So th- that's what a minus 400 would do. And let's let's take that here. So instead of... Uh, instead of each time the odds doubling, each time... Uh, the odds are only uh, multiplied by less than that. So let, let's let's figure this out here. So I think instead of uh, instead of 0.5 to the 20th power, which which came up as that uh, one in a million, then we would be doing uh, is that 0.8 to the 20th power. Let's see. 
Yeah. So we, we do we do 0.8. That's making great radio to the twentieth power. And then divided one by one divided by that result. Again, I think I think you're right. I think it is because of the favors here. Hold on. So we'll do one. Right, because then I think it makes it go down almost like it's like an eleven team. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It does go way down. I see that. That's what it is. Okay, so I was I was underestimating. See, I've never calculated this out before. I was underestimating how much these big favorites do because if if someone had uh, twenty. Big favorites of minus four hundred altogether. It's actually right. So it's like instead of being a twenty-team parlay, it's becoming like a three-team parlay. Yeah. Well, yeah. They only they would only be paid even without house juice. They'd be paid like eighty-seven to one. So that's okay, right. that's where, that's where it makes sense here. So that's why. So he's somewhere in between this. He got paid four thousand to one. Uh, that's amazing. Right. So he probably had a few that were minus four hundred, maybe a couple yeah. minus you know two hundreds, one fifties. Yeah, that's that's what it had to be because uh, yeah, I, I hadn't really calculated this out before. I, I never realized that that minus four hundreds. If you if you did twenty of them, you would still you'd win all twenty one eighty seventh of the time. That doesn't seem like you would, but you would. That's how that's how easy it is to win minus four hundreds. Interesting. Um, okay, well, that makes a little more sense. See, I, I don't ever bet parlays. I don't even think of it this way. Well, anyway, that's what happened. The guy multiplied his money by a factor of 4,000, and it worked out. Don't go run out and try this yourself. I mean, you can, but you're almost you're almost always going to get screwed by at least one or two of them. It's it's it can be really frustrating to bet parlays for that reason. Because and then you have to wonder what to do at certain points when they start doing well. Like do you do you gamble on the final two legs or do you bet back to hedge your bet? You, you have to start worrying about that. Uh, and you, you can also just have soul crushing defeats where you know, like think about this guy if if that layup went in by Bradley Beal. And Washington won. Then that would have cost him a hundred thousand bucks. Like that's how close it was. Yeah, and it was an East Coast game, so it's not like he could have was nineteen and zero going into it. So right, he couldn't have a chance to hedge it all. Yeah, so he, imagine he loses that one at the uh, the last second, and then he sees the other nineteen win. Like I think how tilting that is, where you don't have a chance to hedge it, as you said. So that's this can be very frustrating. On the other hand, if you happen to strike lightning and hit all of them, doesn't have to be twenty. Let's say you do eight, you can make a lot of money. I, I know someone personally in Vegas who likes doing parlays, and this person won a few thousand dollars recently on a relatively small bet by doing that. So. I guess that's a way to win a lot of money for a little money if you don't have that much money. I, I just think if you have a bankroll, that's not the best way to be sports betting. All right, I want to give you an update on Joseph Steers. 
the guy who was banned from all Caesars properties for card counting and for repeatedly coming back to Caesars properties even after this ban. There's a long saga involving that. And despite all of that, and despite a permanent ban from all Caesars properties, he snuck into the main event by getting a player's card under a modified form of his name. His full name is Joseph Connor Steers, and he signed up for a player's card with the name Joseph Connor Steers, as if that's his last name. And the person didn't check the ID carefully enough and kept it like that, and therefore the system did not catch that he was already banned. He entered the main event in 2017. He was doing well. He was near the money with a well above average chip stack, and they somehow figured out that he was there, and they disqualified him. Would not even give him back his $10,000 buy-in. He sued them for $150,000, claiming that that was the value of his chip stack at the time, which wasn't true. It was an above-average stack, but they hadn't even hit the money yet. So to claim it's worth 150000 it that would not make any sense, but that was his claim. And he made some other claims in this lawsuit. He was representing himself. He is a, a law student, so he did have some knowledge on how to do this. I had mentioned before that they had reached an agreement, but that it wasn't made clear what that agreement was. But now it is officially over. The case has been dismissed with prejudice due to the agreement they made. With prejudice means that they cannot, that the, uh, Joseph Steers cannot refile over this matter, that he's uh, agreed that this is done for good. That it's completely over. He can't decide again he wants to sue them one more time over this. Again, it's not clear what he was given. An assumption was that the settlement was likely that they gave him his $10,000 buy-in back and that was it. That's a guess about what the settlement was. It's assumed that Caesars probably did not pay him anything beyond that. And it's also assumed that, or it's not assumed, it actually is stated in the settlement that each side paid their own legal costs. So Caesars paid for their own attorneys and any kind of court costs. So did Steers, though he represented himself. And there was some kind of settlement. It's Again, it's assumed that probably they just said, okay, fine, you, you can get your buy-in back, but that's it. We're not paying you any winnings. That's what people are guessing, but that's not being made public. I've said before that Joseph Steers does not deserve anything. Many people in the advantage player community had a lot of sympathy for him over both this matter and his other bans from casinos in the East Coast that had to do with Caesars. But I never took that attitude. To me, he always seemed entitled and unrealistic. To me, he seemed like someone who got notifications from the casinos that he was banned, chose to return anyway, and then cried foul when they would kick him out or 
put on harsher bans as a result of him continuing to show up there. It seemed like he was constantly testing Caesars as to what they could do, what they could get away with, and what his right to be there really was. I don't begrudge him for trying. If he gets banned and wants to try to sneak in and play anyway, then all right. I'm not going to hold that against him. But then you can't cry foul when it fails. But he just kept testing them over and over and over. And when the consequences got harsher and harsher, then he would complain about it and say, oh, what was me? Why are you doing this to me? There is something to be said for just dealing with the fact that you're banned and being done with it. Maybe appealing it down the line. If you keep pressing and pressing and showing up anyway to try to spite them, then they're going to try to make things worse and worse on you. And that's your conscious decision to do that. So after doing this repeatedly, we've gone over that before on this show, I'm not going to do it again this show, and then he has the nerve to try to show up for the main event knowingly registering under a morphed version of his name so they don't catch that it's really him. Not only was that stupid, because if he got deep, then obviously they'd realize who he is. So what was he doing it for? Just to min-cash and f- fall under the radar? What, what, what was the goal here? If he, if he got to the final table, do you think that wouldn't be known? I don't even understand the goal. He also said something very arrogant when interviewed about this matter. He said that he doesn't really like playing cash because most of the players are fish and there's just no enjoyment in it. They're mostly bad players. He doesn't get any enjoyment or challenge out of playing bad players. As if he can't find tough poker games. As if it's so difficult to find a a really difficult game with good players. That's such an arrogant thing to say. It's not like this guy is a world-renowned top poker player. Obviously, he's probably pretty good if he had an above-average stack just before the money at the main event. But it's not like he has such poker accomplishments that everybody's beneath him. I'm sure he is better than Fish, but he may even be a decent player, but he's not so good that he can't find a game that's a challenge. That was kind of an arrogant thing to say. I've always thought he's kind of the type who gives advantage players a bad name. Advantage players do need to know when to back off. They know when to stop pushing. And they know when they do push that they're taking a risk. Then they can't cry foul and act like they're being persecuted just because the casino catches them and puts even harsher consequences upon them. And honestly, Caesars has been remarkably well, what, patient what, with him. Sorry, Trump. What does this have to do with being advi- advi- Oh, because that's why he was suspended to begin with. That's I why mean, he was banned. Yes, back in. Yeah, he was banned. He, he was, was just so, right. So right. So that's why they're upset. He is banned because advantage play. Yes. Well, he was banned. There's a whole saga, and we, we covered it on Poker Fraudler in the past, where he was banned repeatedly from I think the Horseshoe in Baltimore. He kept coming back over and over and over again with a different excuse. Oh, you guys sent me a mailer. Oh, I didn't realize oh, that. Right. Like, like over right. and over that's and over right. with, with, with dumb stories like that. When he knew exactly what happened. He knew, he knew you sometimes get mailers after you've been banned. That's, that's very well known that that's what happens. But even when it was made clear to him 
that these mailers are sometimes sent out anyway by the computer and that you're not being invited back. Once that was made very clear to him, he'd still come back with a different excuse. He, he just kept returning back and back and back and back and then, and then complained when he was finally banned from all Caesar's properties. And I said, what did he expect going to happen? This wasn't like... I, I would totally be on his corner if he got banned for card counting, say, from a certain casino. Then he gets a, an offer returns with the offer uh, and uh, you know is assuming that maybe they lifted the ban even the, even if you want to say that he he should have known but he comes back once and then they say up oh, you're coming back i don't care if you got an offer you're banned from all caesar's properties I, I would say okay that's too harsh but this guy returned so many times in a short period of time when they repeatedly told him no you cannot come back here we don't care what you get in the mail you can't come back here kept coming back eventually got banned from everywhere and then tries to sneak in and play the main event Sorry, I have no sympathy. I wasn't hoping he'd get caught. I, I didn't know he was doing it, but like, I'm not cheering he got caught, but I am saying that once you get caught trying something this stupid, you can't cry foul. And it's interesting, I've seen Haley Hintz's coverage of him on FleshDraw.net, and she basically has the same opinion of as I do. Yeah, well, I mean, once you're, I mean, once you're kicked out, to come back in, you know, if he's if he's going to law school, he should be protesting, trying to get an okay to play for the World Series. That that would have been the right thing to do. But to sneak in with a fake name and then expect to get paid—that is a joke. Yeah, well, I, I think he knew he'd have no chance because he violated their re- their request to stay away so many times in a row in a short period of time that it was clear he had no respect for anything they were asking. So they finally said, we're done. In fact, they had more patience with him than I would have had. I, I'm surprised it took that long for him to get it fully banned, if you see the whole saga. So at that point, he knew he was screwed, and, and they, there's no way they would let him. But still, he, he made his bed. That's it. <laughs> That's what you get when you show up like six times in a row in a short period of time when you've been banned and keep getting caught each time. And you finally get a, a blanket ban everywhere from all Caesars properties. That's it. You're done. If playing the main event was important to you, you should not have done this. I, I don't have any sympathy for the guy, and I don't think we'll be hearing much from him because, uh, well, I, actually, I, we might. He might try to sneak in again. Who knows? Probably not to the main event, but I could see him. I, I think he's not done with setting foot in Caesar's properties. I think we're going to see more of this. This guy just can't give up. It's very weird. Well, here's somebody who has to give up because he's been arrested. A dealer in New Hampshire has been arrested for what's known as bottom dealing, and that is dealing cards from the bottom of the deck in order to deal the player specific cards that are going to help him win. Here's this story, and it's not about poker, by the way. There, this is from New Hampshire. A dealer there, Christopher Hoff, who's 40 years old, he's actually from Massachusetts, he was arrested last week after turning himself in to authorities because he was being investigated in uh, his dealing of a game at the Boston Billiard Club, which is actually in New Hampshire. It's not in Boston. It's in uh, Nashua. 
He was charged with theft by deception, which is a Class A felony, punishable of up to 15 years in prison, though I doubt he'll get anything like that, but he'll probably get some prison time. What happened was that the police were called to the Boston Billiard Club in Nashua to investigate theft because they had security footage showing Hoff dealing the winning hand to a player in, uh, in a game called Mississippi Stud, which is a house bank game. And he seemed to be dealing with an unusual style. I don't know what they mean by that, but just the, the way he was dealing looked weird. And then he's dealing weirdly, and then suddenly a player wins uh, 2000 bucks. So they were reviewing the security tape over and over and saying, eh, this doesn't really look like it's legitimate. And the partner in this scheme has also had an arrest warrant issued for him, but uh, he has not been arrested yet. Possibly because he's out of state. They think he's probably Massachusetts, this other guy. They didn't name him. Uh, as I said, this Christopher Hoff was also in Massachusetts, but he turned himself in when he was told there was a warrant for his arrest. Hoff only worked at the Boston Billiard Club for six weeks, and they fired him as soon as they figured this out. They banned the other guy, the winner of the hand from the club. According to the president of the Boston Billiard Club, Kurt Mathias, he said the player was somehow signaled to that table at that time and that he'd figure out a way he had figured out a way to get to the cards at the bottom of the deck so it could work out for his friend. The dealer was immediately removed from the table and the players removed from the table and they were separated. I, I don't know why they didn't arrest him at that point. This used to happen a lot more often. The dealers who did this were called card mechanics. But thanks to the advanced electronic surveillance that exists these days, a lot of card mechanics stop this stuff, figuring they're going to get caught. Apparently Christopher Hoff was not that good at it, and the way he was dealing looked really weird, and immediately they suspected something. I also don't understand why he had to signal the friend. Maybe Hoff wasn't sure he could pull it off, and then he figured out he was able to get the card to the bottom of the deck that he wanted to have end up there and then deal from the bottom. So he probably, as soon as he figured out that he could do it, probably signaled the friend, hey, come over, I was successful. <clears throat> then he dealt that winning hand in Mississippi Stud for $2,000, but the casino caught it. Not very smart. So these... Card mechanics are still out there. They're just not all very good, like this guy wasn't, apparently. He lasted six weeks there. I don't know if this is the only one he cheated with, or if he had done this before and got away with it. My guess is this is probably the first time, because they caught it pretty fast. The, I guess that's all there is to say about that. 
A new casino might show up on the Las Vegas Strip in the year 2022. And it's in an unlikely place on the Strip. Now, Trader Risky, you still with us? Yes, but fading fast. Okay, fading fast. Let me ask you this question before you fall asleep. By the Mandalay Bay, can you tell me what's on the other side of the street in that general area? Like not, it doesn't have to be directly across the street, but the whole general area around the Mandalay Bay. Picture across the street. What what hotel casinos are there? Can you think of any? Well, Trop, I mean, Tropicana, right? But that that's not as, about- no, that's that's too far down. I, I, Tropicana is, is right, but isn't there just an empty? Isn't there just isn't that where the concert was? Um, no, I mean across the street, the other side. I, I think the concert was. Uh, I don't think it was directly. You know, I, I'm trying to picture exactly where Maybe, it was compared to the. Mayor. Yeah, no, because I don't think there's anything across the street, is there? There's not. You're right. It was a trick question. There, there's, there's basically no casino hotels across the street from the Mandalay Bay or anywhere near there on that other side of the street. It's just like a lot of small businesses, convenience stores, and crappy motels. That's all there really is over there. So it's kind of an underdeveloped area, and the stuff that is there has existed for decades. If you want to go back in time to old Vegas, all you have to do is look across the street from the Mandalay Bay, and you see a lot of crap over there. Well, one of the little crappy establishments across from Mandalay Bay is something called Motel 8. Not Motel 6, but Motel 8. Motel 8 was built in the 1960s. If you want to stay at a terrible hotel, which is cheap and is on the Strip, that's where you go. I'm going to read you some of the reviews of Motel 8. Now, there, there is a, a good review here. The first one that shows up on Yelp is actually, or TripAdvisor, is actually a good review. It's got four out of five stars, and it says, Sweet little retro motel right on the Strip. At the time I'm staying here, the ownership has really recently changed. This is a sweet little retro motel in a great location. The staff is caring and warm. No fridge, right, microwave, or coffee maker, but McDonald's and Subway and an awesome pizza shop are nearby. I'm quite, quite satisfied. I'd much rather stay here than a fancy overpriced casino hotel. It's right near the airport, so, no one can, so, so one can obviously hear the air traffic. My room is cozy and comfortable, and I feel safe. I wonder if this is like the owner's son. So... A hundred percent. Yeah. So, so I, I like how they, even the good review concedes that it's super noisy though with the with the airplane sounds. But now here's some more honest reviews. I would say, worse than horrible. Motels of this quality should not be on TripAdvisor, except for the warning not to go there. This place looks like it rents by the hour, or that drug addicts or the homeless live there. They probably do. There is no office. You register at the convenience store next to the palm reader. <laughs> <laughs> you get a palm reading with the room yeah let's say we see in your future you're going to stay at a terrible motel and regret regret your decision you are going to get bed bugs yeah you're going to get bed bug vice uh, it's, it's, uh, someone is going to break in your room and rape you tonight so so the area is sketchy the people are sketchy it was so frightening at 11 p.m that i wouldn't even get out of the taxi the town was sold out for under $600 a night, so or I wouldn't have considered it. 
but I thought it was like a Motel 6. I wonder what night this was. This review was written in February 2018. I wonder if they're talking about Super Bowl weekend. I don't know. Like when when would it have been that expensive? Uh, and and the rate that night was about 200 So I thought I could do that for one night. I can't believe someone paid $200 for this place. <laughs> That's awful. Uh, but it was... Uh, uh, it could have been like a CES or probably I'm sure there's bigger shows for the spaces. Maybe it was CES because this review was written in February, so maybe it was shortly after CES they wrote this. Uh, but uh, I thought it would be, be like a Motel 6, and uh, so I thought I could do that for one night, but I really couldn't. It really is so disreputable and scary that women especially should be warned against going there. And those are a number of short, and there are a number of storage sheds like you might buy at Home Depot for your backyard, but they have a door and a window, so I wonder if they put some guests in those. It was dirty, scary, totally awful. It doesn't look anything like the picture or the listing. In my case, Hilton took care of me and gave me a nice room at Tropicana instead. Yes, people have different tastes, but nothing like this is scary or dangerous should be on the site except with a stay away warning. So in case you think this one from uh, Lynn8387 was perhaps overblown. Here's the next review. Worst experience. Notice the word worst keeps being used. I booked this place through Hotels.com for a family of five adults, but I must say it was the worst hotel I've ever stayed in. The room has a weird smell with no proper air conditioning. Bathroom is horrible. I've never seen such a stinky, smelly bathroom. Never ever going back there. You guys can experience this if you want to go to Motel 8. Uh, not your best option. Well, and the first guy loved it so much. It's yeah, amazing. It's a sweet little retro hotel. Uh, not your best option. The Motel 8 in Las Vegas is, is charming in a way, yet not a motel I would return to. The room seems clean, but unfortunately there was a weird smell in the room. Dork seems quite unsafe, and it's not exactly cheap. If you're booking weeks in advance, you can easily get one of the nicer hotels at the same price. Unfortunately, we were booking last minute. This is the cheapest option. On the plus side, the location is great, and little swimming pools good for cooling off. This is like one of the better reviews, believe it or not. Uh, What's, what looks like is going on here is that they jack up the price when the town gets full and all the prices go up. So what the person's saying here is if you wait to the last minute to book on a popular weekend, you're paying the same price that you could have paid at a decent hotel, like $200. That's crazy. Uh, someone wrote, horrible. You get what you pay for. I stayed on Las Vegas Boulevard, Super 8 you meant to say Motel 8. Super 8 should be better than this. Uh, the bed felt like I was sleeping on a box spring with a board. You check in at a store. I asked for fresh towels, and the housekeeper asked me for the old, old towels first. <laughs> the toilet was clogged. They sent a guy with a plunger. This place is horrible. The owner needs to upgrade and do better for $100. Lastly, there was a roach in the room. That's Motel 8. Now, why, why am I reading all this. Well, Motel 8 was purchased, like that guy mentioned, talking about it being a sweet little retro hotel. It's been purchased by someone who has bigger plans than to perpetuate this Motel 8, which is now over 50 years old. They are going to wreck Motel 8. Don't cry too hard if you haven't stayed there yet. They're going to wreck Motel 8. And in its place... They're going to build a new hotel casino, and it's going to be called the Astral. The Astral is going to be a 34-story, 620-room hotel casino. Now, how do you think that would fit in the little area of the Motel 8? 
what they're going to do, they already did an artist rendering of what it's going to look like. It's going to be a tall, skinny hotel. Because they can go up. They just don't have much space, but they can go upwards, right? So they're going to be 34 stories of a skinny hotel that will end up with 620 rooms. So it looks like there's going to be fewer than 20 rooms per floor. They hope to break ground by early 2020, and they hope to complete it by the end of 2022. They're going to spend a lot of money on this whole thing, a lot more than you'd expect would ever be spent on the lot of the Motel 8. They're going to spend... One million dollars. A lot more than that. They're going to spend... One hundred billion dollars. It's kind of in between there. They're going to spend 325 to 350 million. That's their estimate. How much was the Motel 8 bought for? In July of 2018? 7.4 million. Who bought it? An Israeli named Asher Gabay. He already operates a lot of hotels in Israel. So this is a guy who's trying to expand to Las Vegas. This is interesting because it has been a long time since anything went up in that area. You have the Mandalay Bay, you have that second tower at Mandalay Bay that they called the Hotel at Mandalay Bay. I think they've renamed it since then, but it's all basically the Mandalay Bay. But that's pretty much it. Nothing else over there. Now they're going to try to put a second thing up, and this might be kind of comparable to what they're doing on the other side of the Strip, the north side of the Strip, where they are developing hotels in that area, like Resorts World, across the street from the wind. So Resorts World and the Drew are going to be going up near the wind. Now, there was the failure of the Lucky Dragon, which was an Asian-themed casino that was kind of by the old Sahara, now the SLS, but that one was off strip, and it, it just it had a bad location. wasn't going to get foot traffic, and the Asians coming there, you know, Asians coming to Vegas, don't necessarily feel like they have to come to an Asian themed hotel. It just the whole thing was ill advised, and it closed. The SLS failed. That took over the old Sahara. That was an ill advised project itself. That they thought. A high-end hotel could work over there in what isn't a very good area. So what about this astral that we're talking about? Is this going to work? Nothing new has been built in that area since 1998. That's when the Mandalay Bay went up. There is some belief that this owner wants to build the Astral because of the Raiders coming to Las Vegas. Remember, the Oakland Raiders are going to move to Las Vegas next season. Las Vegas Stadium is being constructed east of the Mandalay Bay. It would only be about a mile away 
from the astral. So there's a belief that maybe that will vitalize the area and make property in the area more valuable. However, there will only be eight home games there. So they can't really count on oh, you know those eight Sundays when we're going to have uh, football that's going to bring in a lot of people. It, it will, but that's only eight days of the year. But that could kind of start to change everything. Once the stadium's there, they may use the stadium for other things. So being a mile away from Las Vegas Stadium probably isn't a bad idea. The, so, so that's it's not a sure thing yet, but it's looking like there's a good chance that will happen. That's the plan at the moment. They haven't broken ground yet, so you never know what will occur. But uh, Motel 8 is probably going to be no longer pretty soon. It is possible Motel 8 really did improve since it was bought, though it's hard for me to believe if the guy bought it with the intention to knock it down, he would have put much money into it. Maybe they improved some things, maybe they're not quite as cheap anymore, I don't know. I actually had that towel situation occur, uh, where was it? Oh, I don't remember where it was anymore. At some hotel, I actually had something similar like that. We actually had four people in our room. And I was asking for more towels, and they were... Whatever hotel this was, was very difficult about it. So, like, I asked for six towels. And I said, what? Six towels? And I go, well, we've got four people in the room. They like, well, we'll give you four. I go, well, no, but we'd like to... You know, we had two in the room already. We'd like to have eight so we can have them for two days worth of showers. And they were very difficult about it. They really thought I was trying to steal towels. And I had to keep reasoning with them. I go, look, I don't want to have to ask again tomorrow. Why don't you just give me... We have two already. We just want six more. And it's if you want, you know, come check the room at the end and see if we have the right number of towels. Just please... And they, they were really, really difficult about that. I forgot what even happened. I forgot if they even backed down. I forgot where it was. It's all a blur now. It's funny when hotels are crazy about things like that. Trader, are you still with us? I think we lost him. We either lost him or he's fumbling trying to find the mute button. The unmute button. Oh, my bad, Druff. I might have dozed for a minute. Was there a question? <laughs> yeah, well, okay, now, now that you're back awake, have you ever noticed that hotels are crazy regarding their pool towels, the ones that you get down at the pool, like those colored towels there? Have you ever noticed that they're insane about that? Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, they, they're so worried you're going to steal them. They're so worried you're going to take them out of the pool area. Uh, cruise ships are like this, too. Cruise ships, they'll give you as many regular towels as you want, but the pool towels, if you ask for more, they ask like you're they act like you're asking for uh, uh, a free upgrade to the biggest suite on the ship. What? You want more pool towels? But why? Why do you need that? Like they really, really give you a hard time about them, and, and then you, they make sure you turn in your wet pool towels to get dry ones to replace them. Like they're crazy about it. And that's just on cruise ships. I noticed at hotels, they're so weird about the pool towels. I never understood that. 
Like, I know. Well, they were talking about putting like um, RFID chips on them. Yeah, I saw not chips, so you can put a little you know button or something. Yeah, I saw something about. I saw a uh, a sign like that claiming that there were RFID towels in uh, RFID chips in the towels. I actually posted the picture somewhere online, and I, I never figured out if this is actually true or if they're just making it up. They, they they were claiming it wasn't chips. They were claiming they had something in the towels that was RFID, like RFID, what was it? I forgot the term they used, but something just sounded kind of doubtful, like they're just trying to make it sound like it's there, but it's undetectable. And I wasn't sure if this Yeah, is- well, I know they had been talking about doing it. This is a few years ago, so... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure if it was true or if it's like people who put up a beware of dog sign on their lawn when they don't really have a dog, just to keep people out of their house. I, I don't know. I, I guess it was kind of a deterrent, though. I was, I was afraid to walk out with the towels. All right, well, speaking of former hotels, there's a hotel that might reopen... And that is the Showboat Casino in Atlantic City. And this is actually surprising because I I thought that was totally done. Showboat was a Caesars property. And when Atlantic City was failing badly just a short time ago, a few years ago, casinos were rapidly closing. And Showboat was one of them. But the showboat has been bought by somebody else. It's not a Caesars property anymore. It is not open at the moment, but it was, uh, it was bought by Bart Blatstein. And he has submitted for approval for a casino license for showboat to reopen. And he's hoping to get a full casino license later this year. And then next year, break ground on a new casino because he actually owns a plot of land next to Showboat and he wants to build another casino next to Showboat with the same license. Showboat opened in 1987 and it actually had the city's first race book in 1993. They couldn't have a sports book because that wasn't legal. In 1998, it was purchased by Harris, which then became Caesars. But in 2014, the showboat closed, and it was actually sold to Stockton University, of all things, at the end of 2014 for $18 million. And Stockton University ended up making $5 million on the whole thing because they sold it to Bart Blatstein for $5 more million for $23 million in January 2016. And in June of 2016, Bart Blatstein said he's going to reopen it, but without gambling. And then that never happened. So it's it's just been sitting there, closed on the Atlantic City boardwalk for several years now. But because of the legalized sports betting and the legalized online gambling, there has been some revitalization of Atlantic City and some belief that casinos which were once unprofitable could become profitable again. The sports books in New Jersey have actually taken more wagers recently than the sports books in Nevada. So there's some hope that 
if you can offer sports betting, that that can really boost your casino's revenue. And that's uh, what they're hoping for with the showboat and the new casino that's going to open next to it. There also has been the opening of Ocean Resorts and with Hard Rock in 2018. So if the showboat goes back open, it would bring back 10 casinos total in Atlantic City. So Atlantic City, I thought was going to dwindle down to just very few casinos. They're, They're now going back up. Largely thanks to the sports betting thing. So at the moment, they're kind of bullish on Atlantic City's future. But I don't know how, how long that's going to last. Uh, right now, it's kind of exciting for everybody to bet sports there for the first time legally. But that may die down once the novelty ends. And Atlantic City will still have its problems. The problems include, it's a bad area. There are a number of other East Coast gambling options now. And I think just in general, the market's saturated over there. I think they're being too aggressive. I I would not want to own a casino over there right now. Maybe something like Borgata, which is far above the others in terms of quality. People know that. But the other ones, uh, I don't think I'd want to own them. And I'll tell you, I was in Atlantic City two years ago. And I was very unimpressed. I remember going into Harrah's there, and it just... Uh, the lobby looked dumpy. The elevator looked beat up. The whole thing looked very trashy. It looked kind of low end. It's it's a different experience than in Vegas. Even though Vegas has, you know, they have their own problems in certain properties, but Atlantic City, it's, it's another step down. Yeah, there's some decent Atlantic City properties like Caesars, like uh, Borgata. I also noticed there's a general bad attitude over there. And I think it's because a lot of Atlantic City gamblers really, really try to take advantage of everything they can. There's a lot of bonus whores over there. And so for that reason, they're just really, really paranoid that people are going to use them for comps and not play. So they're just, they're just very belligerent to everyone. They, they, they just automatically suspect you're going to do that. And they even drive away people who have no intention of doing that, people who are real gamblers that just want to play, and they kind of get treated like crap. Not a big Atlantic City fan. Yeah, it's nice that you have an ocean there, but a lot of the year it's too cold to go in the water. A lot of the year it's too cold to even want to sit out on the beach. Atlantic City does have the advantage that it's 60 miles from Philadelphia and even closer to some of the suburbs of Philadelphia. That's a very populous area. A lot of potential customers that can drive in there. That's where they're getting most of their customer base. But at one time, Atlantic City was the only place you could go on the East Coast to gamble. You used to have two choices if you want to gamble in the U.S. It was either Atlantic City or Vegas. Now there's tons of choices. 
I think Atlantic City's had its time. And, and while Vegas has a lot of other offerings besides gambling that people come for, in fact, they're getting away from being just a gambling def- destination. They're, more and more of the revenue in Vegas is from non-gambling forms of business. Atlantic City, it, it's still on the old model of it's mostly from gambling. There's not that much other reason to go there. Unless you just kind of want to see the boardwalk. That's uh, 775 Fraud 55. We didn't get any phone calls tonight. What's up with that? We got a lot last week, which nobody called tonight. 775 Fraud 55, 775 372 8355. You can also text. From the 505, we got a text. You should have asked Ben what kind of damages the Bellagio may have to pay out to the driver to talk of a PP. Okay, I, I thought he was asking about ben, my son Benjamin. I think he meant Ben's a <laughs> He says, you should have asked Ben. I'm like, why should I ask about damages the Bellagio would pay to my son who's eight years old? What would he know about that? But he said, what they may have to pay out to the driver, talk about PTSD. He's referring to the driver who had the gun pointed at them. That is a tough thing to think about what you would do if someone just shows up to your, the driver's side of your car and, pull, and kind of pulls out a gun? Like, do you open the door and let them in? Or do you try to speed away and hope they don't shoot you? It, 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 there's kind of no right answer there, because either way it could go bad. All right, we have a call here. We had a call, and the person hung up. We had a call. Let's see if the phones work, as I think they do. Uh, let's see here. Oh, I'm getting messages, text messages about... Uh, I don't know what this guy's calling, but it's like hanging up a meeting. Now I'm paranoid the phone's not even working. It's either his phone or my phone. I'm going to make a test call to myself. See if the phone works at all. Maybe that's why we're not getting calls tonight. It's like it rings like once and just hangs up. I know who it is. It's Colin, but why is it only ringing once? That is strange. This always makes me paranoid when things like this happen. Now I've got to see if it really works. Now, see, now it's really... Okay. Call, you're on the air. Hey, is it too late to talk about um, Atlantic City? No. Go, go ahead. Talk about Atlantic City. Atlantic City's dead for simple reasons. You got five Philadelphia casinos with a sixth one about to be built. You got New York City getting gaming. You've got Maryland gaming. There's no need to go to Atlantic City ever again, Todd. That might be true. See, I'm no expert of over there, but it just doesn't make sense to me that they're opening up these extra casinos now. It seems like it should be going the other way. Have you also paid attention where new casino where new casinos go? And what goes next to them or near them? No. Stadiums. Yeah, well. Where are you going to put a stadium? Yeah, Atlantic City, that's not going to be there. 
Well, that's uh, you're, it's it's you're you're driving right now, so it's hard to hear you. So, I, but I I hear what you're saying. So, it's, it's a good point. I, I just wanted to make it quick. Thanks, Todd. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Okay. Someone texting lobster mac lobster mac. Uh, let's see here. Oh yeah, I know what I was going to say. I'm getting a lot of texts about the pieces I'm selling of the World Series events I'll be playing. I'm not going to go over all that again. If you want to hear the whole details about the package, you can listen to last week's show, or you can go on the World Series of Poker 2019 forum on Poker Fraud Alert, and it's all written up there. But I will tell you that people are rapidly buying up shares. And I'm going to have to update the list shortly. But people are rapidly buying up shares, and uh, if you do not act quickly, they will be gone. Now, I'm not saying this to lie to you and get you to buy pieces in a rush because uh, I'm trying to create a, a phony demand. There, there really are rapid uh, purchases going on here, and I just haven't posted them all yet because I, I wait to receive the money before I post it. Because I've had people in the past say, oh, I want to buy this, and then they never send me the money. So then they don't get the piece. So I, I don't want to hold up those pieces if they're not really going to be bought. So, but anyway, if you want to have a piece of me, you need to get a hold of me and do it. A good way to get a hold of me to do this is by texting me at 775-372-8355. You can also email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, a lowercase, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com. Or you can PM me, Dan Space Druff, on the forum, if you have an account on the forum. Those are three ways you can get a hold of me. Or if, uh, on Facebook, if uh, don't send me a message there unless we're Facebook friends already, because sometimes it goes in this like other folder that I don't see very much. Just, just stick to texting me or PMing me on the forum or emailing me if you want to buy a piece, and I'll give you the various options. Well, I'll, I can tell you what the options are. You can... Do a bank transfer. You can use the Cash App. The Cash App, you don't even need an account there. You can just use your debit card. If you, if you just want to pay by debit card, no fee, you can do that through the Cash through my Cash App account. You don't even have to sign up for the Cash App. You can just enter your debit card and enter the amount, and it'll just pay me with no fee. So you can do that. You can do a bank transfer. You can send me Bitcoin. But make sure, before you send the Bitcoin, make sure... I give you a current address to send it to and make sure that we have the agreement of what the rate's going to be. The way I do it is just whenever you send it, that's the rate it's going to be. Better if we just do it by text so I can say send it right now and we agree to the rate right then. And there's one other way you can send money that involves a certain service that uh, has been used to send money online for many years now. But don't just send it. There's people who have been just sending it through that service without asking me. And I don't want you to do that. I want you to please give me a heads up. You're going to send it and have me say, okay, now send it. And make sure to always leave the description field blank. There's been some people who have been making mistakes with that recently. So make sure you do not put the anything in the description field if you use that, that particular service. In fact, a- any service you use to send me money, put no description. It's the safest way to do things. And if you want to see more details about buying a piece of me, just go to the 2019 World Series of Poker Forum on PokerFraudAlert.com. 
And it's all laid out there very clearly. If you have any further questions, you can text me, 775-372-8355. I'm going to be taking my flight in about two weeks to Las Vegas. I have a mixture of excitement and concern. (laughs) I think I'll be able to do it, though. It could end up being a very long hour. It could end up being a very long and traumatic hour, or it could end up being nothing. Okay, just I, I, I could just be sitting on the plane and going, why didn't I do this earlier? This is so easy. I could be sitting there miserable, wondering when it's going to end, and panicking. I don't know what's going to happen. But... Uh, I'm taking various precautions. I'm gonna. I have my little handheld fan that just came in the mail. Works very well. I'm gonna blow air on my face with a fan. I will uh, bring some material to distract myself, and uh, I'll bring a book. Play games on my phone. Bring my computer. Then my computer can't be out the whole time. I'll buy the internet, even though it's a short flight. Probably cost me five bucks or something, but whatever. I'll be sitting in first class. It'll be nice and spacious. And hopefully, what used to be so easy for me will be easy once again. We will see. I will tell you guys uh, after I take that flight how it went. And if it goes well, what that means is I can travel again. I mean, yes, that's only one flight, and maybe that is not representative. Like, if it goes well, I'll want to take other test flights to make sure that wasn't a fluke. But it it really is the type of thing where if the first one goes well, that's a very good sign. And also, once my mind gets used to doing that and that it goes okay, then the anxiety becomes less and less. At one point, I I could not even... uh, go to the bathroom in a bathroom with no window and at one point I could not uh, go in an elevator and now I can do all of these things easily it's it's no problem so uh, the plane is the one thing I haven't tried the one thing about the plane is you're, you're committed. I mean, I, I'm not committed when I first get on. I could, before they close the doors, I could back out and say, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And I'm really going to fight that urge if I get on that plane and I go, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do this. Like, I'm really going to fight it. I'm really going to fight it and say, no, I'm here to do this. I'm not going to let this get me. I'm not going to let this drive me off. I came all the way here to do this. I'm not going to f- give up. Um, but I, I, I hope it'll be fine and I'll take a Xanax before I get on. I'll take a second Xanax if the first one's not enough. I have my fan. I keep reminding myself it's only an hour. And if I if it goes well and I step off that plane feeling good in Las Vegas, I, I I'm telling you I'll, I'll have such a nice day. I will feel so good stepping off that plane in Vegas at McCarran Airport, knowing I got it done without any trouble. 
It has bothered me so much that I haven't been able to fly. It's bothered me so much I cannot go anywhere except for things I can drive to. It's like a restriction. It's it's almost like there's a restriction put on me by the court that I can't leave the state or something, or can't leave these few states around here. Except there is no such restriction. It's a restriction in my own brain. And it's one I must get past. And I know something, some chemicals in my brain went wrong. Something broke back in August, but there's been so much progress since then. And I keep telling myself that too, that I'm not the same person as I was in August and September, in a good way. I'm a lot more like July 2018 now than I was in August and September. I'm a lot more similar to my July self. Except I weigh less. Which is good. Someone just texted me, I wish you luck on your journey. Thank you. I appreciate that. I I never thought this would be like a big thing. I never thought, oh boy, I'm going to take an hour flight and if it goes well, I'll be thrilled. Like I, I never thought I'd say those words. This has been something that's just been easy to do my whole life. As a kid, as an adult, it's always been easy. Just get on the plane. The only thing that sucked about it was it was sometimes boring and sometimes uh, a pain in the ass dealing with the airport. Sometimes expensive too. Those were the, and the food sometimes sucked. Okay, those are sometimes the plane would be cold too. Okay, those, you know, those were all some issues we had. Sometimes the bathroom would get nasty after a while. Those were the flying issues I had. But as far as any nervousness or anxiety on the plane, none. I was fine. It was easy. I got to remember that. I got to remember that in July I took long flights from L.A. to Alaska and back. No issue whatsoever. Five hours each way. Easy. And I'm that same person as I was then. Just had a few things happen. Just had a few things happen. All right, final topic. I'm going to talk about Beto O'Rourke and whether I knew him. Beto O'Rourke is a Democratic candidate for president in 2020. He's announced his candidacy. He attempted to run against Ted Cruz in 2018 and lost. Now he's trying to run for president in 2020. He is the same age as me. And he kind of came out of nowhere to enter the political fray. Now, there there was a lot of excitement about him in 2018. But... uh, Since then, there's been some questions about him. Some things have come out about him that are a little bit weird, a little bit questionable. There's also some concern that he's just kind of an empty suit. He doesn't really stand for anything. A lot of people on the left are starting to get away from their excitement about him. So I don't think his campaign is going to really go anywhere. I think he's too flawed. 
But I read something about him that surprised me and was very interesting and made me want to research more about him. And that was the fact that Beto O'Rourke in the 1980s and the 1990s was involved in the telephone and computer hacking world. And I thought to myself, hmm, well, that is interesting. Because I was involved in the computer and phone hacking worlds at that exact time. And the people I tended to interact with were ones who were around my own age. There were ones involved in it who were older than me. And in my later years of it, some people who were younger than me, though not that much younger, because I was young myself. But I mainly interacted with the ones who were around my age, because those are the ones I could relate to the best. So, for example, in 1989, when I was 17... Uh, when I would run into other 17-year-olds on there, those are the people I'd be more likely to become friends with. Those years where I was involved with it, um, they had their ups and downs. There were some good parts in being involved in that whole thing and some bad parts. But I will tell you, I don't regret my time in that community, and I think it shaped a lot of who I am today. It, it taught me a lot about life. And I, I found a lot of myself through that whole community, even though I wasn't part of it for all that long. But let me get back to Beto O'Rourke. This came out last week that he had a previous life as a computer and phone hacker. And he's not denying it. He's admitted that's true. He's tried to play it down somewhat, but he's admitted it. He arrived on the computer bulletin board scene, which is known as BBSs, in the mid-1980s. Computer bulletin boards were the way people communicated online in the 80s. The internet existed, but it was much, much, much smaller than you know it today. There was no such thing as a web browser back then. It was all text. And people on the internet were pretty much limited to people in the military, academic researchers, and and a few other people at colleges who managed to get free accounts to get on there, but... Um, there was no such thing as an internet service provider. You couldn't just dial in from home. It wasn't that simple. Very few people were on the internet back in the 80s. So the way most people communicated online was things called computer bulletin boards, BBSs, where you would use your computer modem to directly dial into somebody else's computer that's running one of these computer bulletin boards. So instead of like someone running a website, they'd be running a bulletin board, and you would dial into it. And some of them were, were single line. Most of them were single line, where you'd call up, and anybody else who tried to call up at the same time as you would get a busy signal and have to wait till you got off there. And then there were some multi-line ones that were bigger. Those tended to charge money. And those usually had more of like a dating theme to them, the, the multi-line 
BBSs. The single line ones were free and they were just run by hobbies, ho- hobbyists who liked running them. I even ran one for some time. So Beto and I, around the same time in our lives, remember we're the same age, we both got onto bulletin boards in the mid-1980s. Eventually I found things called G-files, which stood for general files, but these were actually just text files which had kind of an anarchist hacker slant to them. And at the beginning of these G-files, it would always have the name of the group that released them. And uh, I actually remember the one, the group that he was part of. It was called Cult of the Dead Cow. It's kind of a unique name, easy to remember. Like it's something you remember years later, Cult of the Dead Cow. And they actually had like a, a text picture of a cow's head. So he was part of Cult of the Dead Cow. And I remember reading text files that they had put out. However, what has made Beto look bad is the fact that he wrote some text files for Cult of the Dead Cow, which weren't just about hacking, which were most of the text files had like a kind of like a instructions for various uh, hacking and freaking exploits. Freaking was the version of hacking that had to do with making free phone call, free long distance phone calls, which is illegal, but that's uh, that's what freaking was. He also wrote text files involving these weird fantasy stories, kind of like shock fantasy stories. He wrote one particular story that's getting a lot of attention about driving and running over little kids and killing them and like the thrill he got out of doing that. Now, he didn't really do this. He didn't really kill any kids or run anybody over, but this is like a, a sick fantasy story he wrote about that. And he claimed that Cult of the Dead Cow put out a lot of those type of stories. I don't remember that. I don't, I don't remember reading those type of stories from Cult of the Dead Cow, but it's possible I just didn't see them. It's possible I may have seen them listed somewhere and didn't download them because they really wouldn't interest me. I was only interested in the hacking and freaking stuff. So I can't say for sure. It's been too long. I can't remember. Maybe I did see these were listed to download and I just chose to ignore them. But he definitely did write a story like that and claimed that was just part of what people in Cult of the Dead Cow did, and it was just kind of a game. Uh, Interestingly, he brags about including a 16-year-old female at the time, a female hacker, that he included her into Cult of the Dead Cow when others objected, and that uh, he felt that just because she was female didn't mean that she couldn't be part of this male-dominated community. He's trying to spin it now that uh, at least he was progressive back then. You know, Even though he was part of a hacker group, at least he was including females. Well, I guarantee that's not what was happening, because I saw this type of thing happening all the time, including in my group. Now, first, let me explain these groups, okay? These hacker groups were kind of the equivalent of street gangs, but they weren't violent. It was like nonviolent street gangs. The 1980s and early 90s hacker communities were very rough. They were it's, they were full of delinquents. They were full of people who loved to cause trouble for each other. They were kind of like trolls on steroids. Not on literal steroids, but you know what I mean. 
a lot of teenagers who just wanted to play pranks, do nasty things to each other, fuck with the rivals. It, it was, you know, it, it had some similarities to the gang world, except as I said, there was no violence involved. But what they would do would be harass one another, dox one another back before doxing that word existed, but they would give out people's info and that would cause trouble. Being anonymous is, is very important to maintain power in the, in the, in this uh, community back then. Uh, once you were, your full info was exposed, then you became much more vulnerable. Uh, but the reason these groups formed was to give people more power, both to both on offense and defense. This way, if you want to screw with someone, you've got a whole group behind you to help you do it. And if people are screwing with you, then you've got your group backing you that will uh, strike back at whoever fucks with you. So that that's why these groups formed. That, that's why I, was, I had a, a group that I was uh, kind of co-running with, with another friend. And that's why we formed it. So we, we had our own group, so we, so we could uh, defend ourselves in that type of world. And we had our rivalries with other groups and our wars with other groups. I won't get into all this, but and, you know we were stupid teenagers and did some stupid teenage things. But getting back to the girl thing, occasionally when you'd be calling up these uh, party lines or kind of makeshift party lines that were would spring up on phone company test equipment that uh, would be known as bridges. Occasionally you'd hear a female voice on there, which you didn't hear very often. Usually it was dudes. So occasionally you'd hear a female voice and all the guys would get so excited for obvious reasons. So these girls, everyone would want to talk to them and they would get invited to tons of groups, even if they had nothing really to bring other than their vagina. That's uh, they just liked having a girl to talk to. A lot of these guys in these groups were lonely. Were they really hadn't talked to girls in their real life? Had never been on a date. Were virgins. So they hear a female voice on there. They have a they hear a girl that if they play their cards right, they can regularly talk to. Uh, they're thrilled to have it, even if the girl lives far away and it's gonna be hard to meet in person. So the second a girl would be heard on these lines, then believe me, she'd be included. There was, there was, you, you didn't have to be progressive and uh, and and believe, a believer in women's equality. You, th- this was just a matter of being horny and being lonely and wanting a girl around. That that's what this was about. So believe me, that's what Beto did. He wasn't doing this to be progressive. He Beto probably uh, you know heard a girl's like, oh cool, a girl. Okay, well, yeah, let's let's bring her in. And of course, he and the girl became very good friends. They probably had sex. I don't know if they did. That's not, it's not known if they did or not. But they remained close for many years. There's a picture of them together at uh, some kind of hacker convention years later in 1997. And I see that you know, the girl kind of has her arm around him in the picture. She has kind of like a goth look. Uh, I'm not sure how old she was at this point. She must have been in her mid-20s also, maybe slightly younger than him. She has very short hair. Uh, she could... It's possible she's a lesbian, like, from the picture. It's not like... I could believe either way. I could believe she just kind of has a short haircut and isn't a lesbian, but I could also believe she is a lesbian. But unless she's a lesbian, I'm pretty sure she, the two of them had sex. And Beta, Beta was a good-looking guy then, if you want to go look at... He's still good-looking now for his age. So... 
a lot of the guys in this world weren't very good looking. So I'm sure if she, provided she liked men, they probably had sex. So that's why he included her. It's so laughable to hear the explanation that he was trying to be inclusive, give females the same credit as the males get. That's not what was going on at all, I guarantee you. And I guarantee you this because I, I watched the way all the dudes behaved around girls in this community. I met girls through this. I, I was involved with some girls through this. And I was actually surprised when I met some of them that some of them were surprisingly pretty. Some weren't, but some were. Some were like a lot better looking than you'd expect to be involved in this community. And someone who was involved in this, but not at the time I was, who is a good example, though, of someone who's surprisingly pretty and you wouldn't expect to be part of this, was genocide, Jennifer Lee. Before she got into poker, she was in the hacker world in the late 90s. I was out of it by then, because I'm older than she is. I'm 12 years older than she is. But uh, she was in it in the late 90s when she was a teenager. And, you know, genocide is pretty. So there were girls like her that, that made it into the phone and computer hacker communities. And the girls that did make it into these communities, they tended to be kind of outcasts themselves. They, they were usually kind of attention-starved. They often had problems at home, uh, problems getting along with their parents, uh, problems with making friends. And unlike what you see on TV, it's, it's not always the unattractive girls that, uh, that have these problems. There's sometimes pretty girls who just don't, really get along uh, socially with other girls that well or have some kind of social issues or issues at home that prevent this, whatever it is, just kind of make them into outcasts and this is where they find themselves and then they get a lot of attention from guys and who worship the ground they walk on and they're, they're very happy there. So I, I actually met some of the girls on these lines. It was, it was surprising how there were a number of girls who were pretty. And what was good for me is most of the guys in this community, these communities weren't very good looking. If they all looked like Beto O'Rourke, I would have had more competition, but uh, they didn't. So <laughs> um, that was good for me too. There were a lot of guys, but as far as good looking guys, there really were not very many. Uh, so anyway, uh, I, I did wonder if I knew Beto because just because he lived in Texas didn't mean I wouldn't have run into him because I, I ran into people from all over the country. I regularly talked to people from all over. So immediately I scanned the article, which was about this. I, fo I found one on uh, Reuters.com. You can find it yourself if you type in Beto O'Rourke Reuters hacker. And I scanned for the names that he used online. And I found them, or at least two of them they listed, and neither of them I remembered. 
But that doesn't mean much because I, I it's obviously not someone I knew well. If I, I remember all the guys I knew well back then, and he wasn't one of them for sure. But if I just kind of ran into him with that name, with those names he used, I wouldn't have remembered if, if we only ran into each other a few times because he was nobody special back then. Uh, he definitely was doing the freaking, which is the, again, the utilizing uh, methods to make free long distance calls illegally. And the funny thing is he denies remembering how he did it, but he definitely remembers. That's another lie. Hundred percent, he remembers because the there were basically two ways you'd accomplish this. You, you the way you would usually do it is you would get there, there were these small phone companies that set up after uh, the breakup of AT and T in eighty four, and these small companies. What you'd have to do is you'd have to dial an access number first, like a local access number, and then dial your calling card number with that company, and then dial the number you want to call. So in order to keep the whole thing to where it's not too many digits to dial, it's already a lot of digits doing all this, but to keep it to fewer digits, they wouldn't make the calling card number very long. They wouldn't make it like 13 digits because it would be too long to enter everything. So they would usually make the calling card number like six digits, which made it incredibly easy to basically brute force hack them. But when I say brute force hack, I mean all people would do is they would set up their computer to dial up the access number automatically and then just try different uh, combinations, different six-digit combinations of these calling cards and then attempt to complete a call to another computer. And if the call went through, then you know you found one that works. And if it doesn't go through, then you know you didn't. And whenever the computer would connect to the where it's trying to connect, it would know it found a good one and it would save that to disk. So you'd let this run for hours and hours and then... Uh, you'd go take a look at what's saved and those would be the ones you'd have. So so either you would brute, brute force hack this yourself in this fashion, which was easy, or you would get them from friends who did this themselves. And anybody who is in that scene remembers doing one of those two things even 30 years later. So for sure, Beto did that. He just doesn't want to admit he was stealing long-distance service. <laughs> just which... You know, he was a kid then. He was a teenager. Fine. You know, it's. Uh, he's afraid to admit it. He just, he just own up to it and say, "Look, I wouldn't do this today." But as a teenager, you know, I wanted to make long distance calls to communicate with other hackers, and that's just everyone was doing it. And I did it too. Didn't think much of it. That, that's what he should say. That's the truth. Uh, the story on Reuters is weird in a few ways. Like, for example, they kept referring to T files. They kept saying that the referring to like that story he wrote and other things that Cult of the Dead Cow put out, that it was uh, they were putting out T-files. That's what they're called in the community, it said. That's not true. They weren't called T-files. I never heard that term ever. First, they were called G-files, mostly in the mid-'80s, and then eventually they became known as, as text files. But I've never heard of T-files. That's kind of weird. Uh, the Washington Post did an article about this, and not surprisingly, they soft-gloved the explanation of Beto's antics in an attempt to make him seem more harmless and just curious. The last paragraph of the Washington Post article says this. In other words, O'Rourke wasn't a hacker in the sense that you might think. A way to describe him at that time was fitting in with, with the understood usage of a word probably meant to something like nerd. 
That's not true. Let's take a look at the word nerd. In recent times, nerd has taken on a charming, harmless meaning. It usually refers to somebody who takes an enthusiastic interest in a particular area of study or entertainment or something like that. You know, like there's the comic book nerds, there's the, the computer nerds, the sci-fi nerds, uh, and and that usually just means someone who's very into a specific area so much that someone could say they're a nerd because they have such knowledge of it of that one particular area. Uh, even reaching back to the 1980s, think of the movie Revenge of the Nerds. Back then, nerds were thought of as uh, gentle, harmless souls, but uh, they were persecuted by bullies. So in recent times, nerd has stopped really being an insult, and it's become kind of more of a compliment. A nerd kind of implies that you're an intellectual, that you're knowledgeable about at least a certain field. Uh, It's sometimes like a little bit self-deprecating, but not in any really bad way. Uh, a lot of people like to describe themselves as nerds because they make it seem, it, it's to them, it makes them seem smarter and more interesting. So Washington Post is trying to say, you know, no, look, don't think of him as a badass hacker who's doing illegal and nasty things. He was just a nerd. Oh, okay, Beto's a nerd. Okay, I can relate to nerds. That's cool. No, that's but he wasn't. He he was really part of this hacker community. He was nerds. The hacker community, I guess you can say they were also nerds, but it wasn't the same thing. You think of like think of the eighties nerds and like Revenge of the Nerds, okay? Um that's not what that hacker community was in the eighties. The hacker community in the eighties were delinquents, to be honest. They weren't really bad kids. A lot of them grew up to live normal, law-abiding lives. Most of them did. But uh, there was a lot of testosterone, a lot of mischief, a lot of one-upmanship. And the groups that reformed, as I said, were in order to gain power, identity, and a kind of a degree of protection. When Beto wrote his child-murdering fantasy stories, it wasn't because he was a closet serial killer, but uh, it's because he wanted to come off as a badass. He, he wanted to fit in with that group. He wanted people to read that and be shocked and think, wow, Beto's dark, man. We've got, we got to hang out with him. Of the entire hacking group matter, he summarized it recently by saying, it was stuff that I was part of as a teenager that I'm not proud of today. And I mean, that's the long and short of it. Except clearly he was proud of it, because as late as 1997, maybe even after that, he was still attending conventions like Hackers of Planet Earth. I wasn't even involved with it at that age. I was long out of it by 97. But he's still attending those conventions in 97, which is fine, but it shows he's not someone who just did this at age 17 and then shortly thereafter grew up and said, oh, man, what was I doing? Okay, well, screw, I, that's not me anymore, man. Like th- he, he was still involved with this well into adulthood. And we can see pictures of that. Why did kids like Beto get into it? Why did I get into it? It's, it's because it, it was forbidden, it was fun, it was wild, it was unpredictable, it was competitive. 
it, it was very appealing to the computer savvy 1980s teenager. And then there were movies like War Games that came out in '83 that glamorized hackers and 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 if you told people that you were into that, it would give you some kind of cred with the general public, like uh, like you were part of that world. People looked up to you in a way. People even feared you in a way. Now, eventually, most of us outgrew it, and and we integrated into normal society as as normal functional adults. And I, I have friends who are, you know, also long out of it that I'm still close to. And we kind of look back at that and go, wow, some of the stuff we did back then, that's crazy. Like, we, we look back at some of those things. Um, but at the same time, we didn't really regret our involvement in it. And... You know, as I said, there were some gains I got from it. I'm sure Beto got from it, too. I made some lifelong friendships. People I still talk with and hang out with today that are, have nothing to do with poker. Uh, I'll tell you, it was, it was key in helping me develop self-confidence. Once I got into that community, within a short time, I had a lot more self-confidence than I had before. That's where I learned to really put the screws to someone if they maliciously fucked with me. That, that's where I learned <laughs> how to do it. Not, not to f- screw with people myself, but, but if, if someone's coming at me, this is kind of where I learned what to do about it. Those are lessons I still take with me today. It's where I learned long before, decades before identity theft became common, that your personal information is fragile and it needs to be protected at all times. I used to talk about protecting my info back in the 80s and early 90s, and people thought I was a nut. Now, it's not so nutty anymore, is it? Protecting your info. Keeping info private. All those concepts that are so obvious today, back then, it was only people in the hacker community that appreciated it. Because we knew that information was the key to everything. Being part of that community taught me how to think critically of people and their motives. And, as I said, I even met and dated some pretty girls through it. I'm pretty sure Beto looks back at that time and does not regret it. Except for right now when he's running for president, it's coming back to bite him. That's the only regret he probably has. I think he should just own it. I think he should just say this is a thing he did when he was younger. and It's not something he would be involved with today, but uh, that it was something a lot of kids at the time did who were into computers. And... uh, and that story he wrote was just to come off as a badass because he wanted to impress other teenagers, but he didn't mean any of it. He'd come off as a lot more real by saying that, too. Here it just looks like he's avoiding it. He's avoiding the topic. Something else I found annoying about these articles about him is that they keep talking about hacktivists. They claim that Cult of the Dead Cow invented the word hacktivist, which is a combination of the word hacker and activist. And it's referring to the hacker groups that 
are operating with political or social motives. They're not just hacking for the fun of it or the challenge of it. They're doing to make some kind of political statement. Now, it is true that in the 2000s and 2010s, hacktivism has been a thing. It's really been happening. A lot of hacker groups now have a political agenda. But I can tell you back in those days, back in the 80s and 90s, that wasn't true. These hacker groups were all very apolitical. They didn't give a shit about politics. They didn't give a shit about social causes. If anything, these groups were really mostly anarchists. As hard as this is to picture, looking at today's tech giants like Facebook and Google and Twitter, the tech world of the 80s and 90s was not liberal. That came later. The tech world in the 80s and 90s was mostly apolitical, somewhat libertarian, somewhat anarchist. There was a tremendous amount of aggression and puffery in that world. A tremendous amount. Oftentimes, when groups or people or factions would be warring in the hacker world, when they would make truces, it would not be from calm rationality. It would be because they feared each other. It would be from the fear of mutually assured destruction. I'm not even kidding. That's, that's how eventually groups or people in the hacker world would come to truces. Especially when they both got each other's info. If you've seen the show Silicon Valley, the Mike Judge show that's... Uh, gone for five seasons now. Season six is a while away, but has five seasons. You can find it out there in places on the web. The Guilfoyle character is a nod to hackers from the 80s and 90s. It's a show taking place in the present, but the Guilfoyle character is a lot like the people you would encounter in that world back in the 80s and 90s. That's what that character is representing. So did I know Beto? I don't know. I can't say I did, and I can't say I didn't, because it was so long ago. It's kind of hard for me to believe, because it wasn't that big of a community. It's kind of hard for me to believe, with as into it as I was and as into it as he was, that we didn't run into each other. I also wonder about this girl. I've seen a picture of her. I have her real name, but I don't have this handle she used at the time. I don't have the alias she used. So I don't know if I knew her because she may have been more memorable because there weren't that many girls out there. So I really wonder who she was. I don't recognize the real name, but I may not have known a real name, but I wonder if I talked to her. I think she's like a year younger than me or something. I'd love to know the answer to that. As I said, I, I, I know this wasn't a guy I talked to all the time, but it's possible we had interaction. It's possible we even fought with each other. I don't know. It's possible if he heard me and heard my name from back then that he would know who I was. I probably will never get this answer. 
but it's very possible we knew each other. And it's interesting that this world, which has really been not discussed very much, even though it was a forerunner to a lot of things we see today, it was a forerunner to social media. It was a forerunner to the whole concept of identity privacy. It was the forerunner to uh, cyberbullying. It was the forerunner to online dating. A lot of things you see today kind of sprung from this in one way or another. But it's a world that's rarely talked about. When people think of online things, they just kind of believe it all just appeared in the mid-90s out of nowhere and that there wasn't really anything before that. But there was. And I was part of it. And Beto O'Rourke was part of it. And I'd love to know more about the truth, about who he was and what he really did besides write stupid stories. Well, that's it. I've got nothing else for you tonight. We'll be back in six days on Wednesday, March 27th. Then we will be back a week from then on April 3rd. If you want to get into the free roll, make sure you get a hold of me well before the show. Otherwise, it's very hard for me to do on the day of the free roll. Just letting you guys know that. You know, I didn't have to take a break during the show. So I didn't play Eric Benzamokin's ad, but if you want to contact him for anything, especially for an arbitration or mediation situation, you can email him, eric at eblawfirm.us, eric at eblawfirm.us. I do thank him for his continued generosity with Poker Fraud Alert. And baseball season's coming up pretty soon. In fact, opening day is in a week. To me, it seemed shorter than it usually is because the Dodgers once again made it all the way through October. So I had a month less to wait than others did, whose a lot of people's teams uh, were done at the beginning of October. But I'm looking forward to that. The big baseball fan, I, I miss it when it's gone. If you're going to be in Vegas in early April, you can get a hold of me. Maybe we can say hello to one another. Always happy to meet people listening to this show. I will be at the World Series of Poker throughout a lot of it. The only time I really won't be there would be kind of like the middle stages, kind of like from June 10th to 24th. I don't think I'll be there, but most of the other period I will be there at the World Series. If you'd like to meet up at some point, I'd be happy to do that. If you see me around, you can say hello and identify yourself. Always happy to meet listeners. And I'm glad I can play poker again. I'm glad I can return to do a lot of these things that I've always done. And it's nice to see that 
I'm coming back. Good night. Shalom.